you professor mike steinel he is an inspiration to us all the, the man does not know the meaning of writer's block unfortunately i don't either which is a problem i'm gonna try, try to keep it short today we got uh, pete dominic coming in at 5 30 so i'm gonna keep things nice and short welcome to the mop up for december 2nd 2021 i'm david Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in New York City where the temperature is 50 degrees, 56 degrees and cloudy as part of this show's efforts to keep our eye on the richest one percent. I want to talk about the president of Bennington College. Her name is Laura Walker. She has an MBA from Yale, and she was the president and CEO of New York Public Radio, WNYC Public Radio, WNYC. My mother listens to it. Every white person in the tri-state area listens to WNYC. Alec Baldwin has a show on WNYC. And I'm going to talk about WNYC because I was researching the salaries and I was reading an article by Bob Henley, who used to work for WNYC. He is a labor reporter and he wrote a piece for City and State New York three years ago exposing WNYC, the NPR affiliate here in New York City. And as I'm reading about WNYC, I finally understood how the KGB, how Putin became the wealthiest man in the world. I never understood, like I knew that when Boris Yeltsin became the leader of Russia and Wall Street went in there and they started privatizing all the Soviet era institutions, I never understood how that worked. I knew it was being done. I could tell you it was being done, but I never understood how former KGB agents with the Soviet Union were able to become billionaires. And what they did is they sold off pieces of the Soviet Union. 
with the help of Wall Street. And I used to think, but they're KGB agents. How do they get to sell off state-owned industries and then become the owner of Gazprom? How, how do you end up, well, the KGB had been stealing money all along and they parked these billions of dollars overseas, laundered money through Donald Trump. But that's not what I'm talking about. I gained insight over the past week into how the Soviet Union turned into a kleptocracy by reading about WNYC in New York, the the NPR, National Public Radio affiliate. Okay, so just like the KGB agents taking something that's owned by the public and then then selling it to the private sector and then becoming rich in an, by themselves, becoming oligarchs. This is how it works in America. And it's identical to the KGB. Laura R. Walker, born in 1957, she is a graduate of Yale. She's got an MBA, a master's in Yale, in, in, from Yale and in Yale. And she, in uh, 1995, became the president and CEO of New York Public Radio. Now, New York Public Radio is a was a radio station that was owned by the city of New York, and it had about 100 employees. And it had been around, what, since the 30s as New York City's radio station. And Rudy Giuliani was mayor in 1997, and he came up with the brilliant, honest idea. Think oligarchs, think KGB, think the fall of the Soviet Union, something owned by the public. Everything was owned by the public when it was the Soviet Union, right? And then it sold off and privatized and all the old KGB agents become oligarchs. How does this happen? Well, in America, the identical thing happens, is happening. Rudy Giuliani, no stranger to Russian, Ukrainian oligarchs, as mayor, sold WNYC, a publicly owned radio station. They they sold it to a nonprofit foundation, right? And it was led by Laura Walker, the president and CEO of, of uh, who then became the president and CEO of New York Public Radio, right? And before she took it over, when it was just a local radio station, they had maybe 100 employees. Now, they have about 600 people working for New York Public Radio, right? Which is great, more people, but where does the money go? According to Bob Henley, who we're gonna have back on the show, he has looked at their IRS filing, which anybody could do by going to Charity Navigator. Uh, according to Bob Henley, all told, 132 employees at WNYC earn in excess of $100,000 a year. They used to have only 100 employees. Now they have 600, 132 of whom are at, uh, getting $100,000 a year for public radio, educational radio, where 
supposedly it's listener supported, right? But they run commercials, but it's listener supported and they ask you for money. Miss Walker, the graduate, Laura Walker, the graduate of Yale who has her MBA. See, she's like a Russian oligarch. She worked in the government before she owned, became the leader of WNYC. She was friendly with Rudy Giuliani. She had connections. She's got her MBA from Yale. She's like the, the, the KGB agent who eyes a, a state-owned business like Gazprom or WNYC. And she says, no, 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 let's privatize this through a foundation. And she was getting uh, close to a million dollars a year, close to a million dollars a year. Thirteen people at this bullshit radio station were earning collectively uh, more than four million dollars. And that's how they 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 privatize public institutions and become oligarchs. It's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, while she was competing with the Tribune media, you know, they talk about competition. She was running WNYC. She was also getting a couple hundred thousand dollars sitting on the board of the Tribune media company. They at one point owned Chicago newspapers, Los Angeles newspapers and radio stations and TV stations while she's collecting about seven hundred sixty eight thousand dollars from New York Public Radio. She's picking up an extra two hundred thousand dollars a year as a board member of the competition. How is she possibly worth to WNYC seven hundred sixty eight thousand dollars? Well, she's not. She is like a KGB agent who's part of the the system of privatization and she's getting her big cut. And of course, this uh, didn't get her fired. This did not get her fired. This theft of public property, this transfer of wealth from the city of New York into Laura Walker's pocket did not get her fired. What got her fired was the Me Too movement. She had sat back and allowed several of the hosts on WNYC to uh, sexually harass employees. And she sat back and allowed that. Why wouldn't she? She's a thief. And she, she stepped down because of the Me Too movement. It's all part of one big problem. You, you cannot have theft crimes being committed against the state without the people committing these crimes not caring about sexual harassment. Laura Walker, Laura Walker is now the president of Bennington College. They they all land on their paws, don't they? Laura Walker went from stealing our radio station here in New York, WNYC, pocketing a million a year while working for the competition, competition Tribune Media. I think they own WPIX Tribune Media in uh, 
in New York City. I think at one time she was on the board of directors of the competition. Why does she sit on the board of directions? Directors, what, what is she, some genius? No, no. She agrees to the CEO's raises. The, the CEO gets to pick the board of directors and the board of directors approve pay. So the CEO surround themselves with equally contemptible people like Laura Walker, and she greenlit all the pay raises to the CEO and his underlings at the expense of the workers. While they're gutting newspapers and radio stations, she nods her head and approves all the money being transferred from the workers to the CEO. That's how it works. She's not smart. She's corrupt. And that's how, that is your course, my course, in how Russia, the Soviet Union, when they privatized all the Soviet era services, how the KGB agents who were able to, you know, were in on it, were able to get their cut and become oligarchs. This is a kleptocracy. This, again, I keep saying that this is not Adam Smith. This is not Karl Marx. This is not socialism. This is not capitalism. We are dealing with kleptocracy. You want to get rid of capitalism? Let's first try it first. Let's try capitalism as Adam Smith proposed. This is kleptocracy. There is these hyper-educated white people who think they're entitled to largesse from the state. They get rich off the state, and then they tell us to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, the reason I bring this up is because my mother and her friends listen to WNYC, and God bless them, Democratic Congressman Thomas Sousi was on WNYC today, and he's running for governor of New York State. They're electing a new governor uh, next year. And as I said, WNYC is the local Manhattan NPR, National Public Radio affiliate. And he was interviewed by the great Brian Lehrer, who's actually pretty good. He makes probably half a million dollars a year that we know of doing a bullshit job of interviewing people. How hard is it to ask questions, but somehow he's getting half a million dollars a year and he has a staff and he has people writing for him and and he's asking you for your donations and he's taking corporate subsidies and they're running advertisements, lying to you and telling you this is listener supported and it's ad free when it's not ad free. And he's making half a million dollars a year and he's interviewing Democratic Congressman Thomas Suzy, who is running for governor. And here are the questions that Brian Lara would never ask Democratic Congressman Tom Suzy, who is running for governor. Why have you traded and sold six and a half million dollars in stocks during the past year? That's the first question you ask Democratic Congressman Tom Suzy, Brian Lara. Next question. Why did you buy one hundred thousand dollars of Microsoft last week? Congressman, why did you buy $250,000 worth of Morgan Stanley stock last week, Congressman? Why did you buy $100,000 worth of Apple stock last week, Congressman Suzy? Why did you buy $100,000 worth of advanced micro devices? Explain those trades, 
Congressman Suzy, Democrat running for governor of New York. And most importantly, Congressman, why did you just sell $100,000 worth of stock in the war profiteering Carlisle Group? Yes, I'm bringing up the Carlisle Group again. Why did you just sell $100,000 worth of stock last week in the war profiteering Carlisle Group, one of the largest, if not largest, investors in defense stocks, whose founder, war profiteer, David Rubenstein, who has his own show, the David Rubenstein show on, 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 on the PBS because he donated $15 million to Ken Burns for his documentaries. And he donates millions upon millions of dollars of his blood money from the Carlisle Group to the PBS. Why did you sell stock in his Carlisle Group? By the way, of course, David Rubenstein, and I will keep repeating this, uh, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and the chairman of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Bette Midler is going to be getting a special award over at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. She should turn it down and demand that David Rubenstein be fired. He's a war profiteer who, who lent his $30 million Nantucket home to uh, Joe Biden and his family of grifters for Thanksgiving. So that's the question that Congressman Tom Suzy should have been asked on WNYC. If he wants to be governor, if he wants to get reelected as, as a congressman, he, he's, he's running as, as uh, for governor as the common sense Democrat. I love that. Common sense. Uh, he's, he's the common sense Democrat who gets things done because he's a lawyer and a certified public accountant. Like I'm supposed to vote for him because he's a lawyer and a certified public uh, public accountant. He's going to give us common sense. What part of common sense? was applied, uh, Congressman, when you bought and sold all those stocks. You're a member, Congressman, of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee. That's the chief tax writing committee inside the House of Representatives, Congressman. You see the tax code before the rest of us do. So what? why did you uh, sell off or but why did you buy Apple and Microsoft? who are, are, are notorious for not paying taxes. You sit on House Ways and Means. Last week, you bought Apple and Microsoft. What are you seeing coming out of that committee vis-a-vis -vis the new tax laws that you're going to implement? What are you seeing uh, in Build Back Better that suggests that Microsoft and Apple won't have to uh, repatriate all those profits that they keep overseas and don't pay taxes on? What did you see? You're so busy buying hundreds of thousands of dollars in stock in Apple and Microsoft. What do you know from sitting on the House Ways and Means Committee? Why are you selling the Carlisle Group? The commander in chief, Joe Biden, just celebrated Thanksgiving, Congressman, in the home of one of the, if not the largest war profiteers in the world, David Rubenstein. So what do you know? Why are you getting out of the Carlisle Group with the war in Afghanistan over? Are you getting the impression that America's pivot to China won't be as militarily expansive as David Rubenstein was hoping? Do you think we should be shorting the Carlisle Group, Congressman? Do you think this peace dividend that we're getting from pulling out of Afghanistan, do you think it's going to last and that it'll lead to fewer dollars going into defense stocks, Congressman? Tell us, because you've been trading stock in Carlisle Group.
Is that why you sold $100,000 worth of the Carlisle Group last week, Congressman? Did, did, why did David Rubenstein lend his estate to the Biden family for Thanksgiving? Is that a leading indicator? Did that tell you something that maybe Rubenstein, the largest war profiteer in the world, is panicking over the, the war being over in Afghanistan? Is that the tell? Is that what you're getting? Is that Was that the signal to sell Stock and Carlisle Group that David Rubenstein is panicking and desperately trying to court our commander in chief, Joe Biden, trying to grease the wheels of war? to make sure the profits come pouring in? Was that was this an act of desperation on David Rubenstein's part, letting Joe Biden, our commander in chief, spend Thanksgiving in his $30 million Nantucket mansion? Yeah. Nobody asked Congressman Tom Suozzi on WNYC that question, at least in public, at least in public, maybe privately, they're looking for, for uh, tips, investment tips from Congressman Tom Suozzi, who wants to be the next governor of New York. Maybe we should have a debate on WNYC. Bring in uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, because he has a different opinion on the Carlisle Group. Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat, one of the good guys, just purchased $15,000 worth of Carlisle's group stock. While uh, Congressman Auzi is selling Carlisle, Congressman Ro Khanna just bought $15,000 worth of Carlisle group stock. That would make for an interesting debate on WNYC or maybe, you know, in Congress. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to see Ro Khanna and Tom Suzy debating whether the Carlisle group is a buy, sell or hold? They're so busy trading stocks when they should be doing the people's business. Why don't they why don't they have a debate over what the better investment is? Ro Khanna, Yale Law School. The congressman from Silicon Valley, Yale Law School, the same school, the thief, Laura Walker, who ran WNYC, uh, stole WNYC from New York City and paid herself a million a year. Now she's off to Bennington College because, you know, she allowed all this sexual assault and harassment to take place at WNYC. So let's have her. Let's have her become the president of Bennington College. I'm sure there are no speech codes at Bennington College. I'm sure nobody talks about sexual assault and sexual harassment at Laura Walker's Bennington College. I'm sure nobody's interested. Nobody bothered to check why Laura Walker left WNYC because nobody's interested in sexual assault at Bennington College. Ro Khanna, people ask me, why, why can't Bernie get elected president? Because we don't have a leftist infrastructure in Washington. Ro Khanna is, in the, is, is the best we can do. He was, he, uh, he was chairman, national chairman of Bernie's uh, run in 2024. Bernie has to depend on frauds like Ro Khanna and... Uh, so we, we have to wrap it up. Let me uh, I'm keeping I promise to keep it short. Do not give money to the PBS. Do not give money to NPR and do not give money to Ro Khanna. Do not give money to uh, Congressman Auzi. Do not give any money to obviously Republicans, any Democratic 
candidate unless they're vetted by Howie Klein. Anybody who's getting money from the DCCC, do not give them money. Do not give them money. Uh, and I want to talk about the great resignation, and then I uh, hopefully we'll bring in David, Do uh, David Dine. Uh, I would love to have David back on the show. Uh, uh, Pete Dominic is going to join us, and I'll calm down. Uh, David Dine, everybody should read The American Prospect and give money to the American prospect. David Dion is a national treasure. And I was reading a piece in his magazine, The American Prospect. Go to the website. There's also a magazine. He has this piece called The Great Resignation. Something's going on here in America. He, there's some stats that he provides. One quarter of American jobs are low wage. One quarter, 25% of American jobs are low wage. And that's the highest percentage in the industrialized world. And in this piece, he talks about private equity, all these private equity firms that are buying up public firms and really uh, private, pri private, publicly held stocks and then taking them private. So you don't even know. Yeah, there's no opacity whatsoever. Uh, more than 12 million Americans work low-wage jobs that are owned by private equity firms like the McKinsey Group, that would be Pete Buttigieg's old firm, or Booz Allen, that would be the Carlyle Group, or Bain Capital, that would be Mitt Romney. And people are catching on. They're quitting their jobs. In September, 443 million Americans quit their job. That's a record. 3% this is all calling David Dyan. Three percent of the American workforce uh, is leaving their jobs. Two point nine percent of our workforce quit in August. And of course, the people who quit the highest uh, number of people who quit come from uh, food services, hospitality. It's low wage workers who are quitting. And here is my suggestion about the great resignation. They can't replace us with robots. They can't. They, they just can't. And uh, they need us. They need the workers. They don't want us to get unemployment insurance. They, they have openly said, Manchin, there are Democrats who are saying, you give them too much unemployment insurance, they're not going to work. Uh, people are quitting anyway. Part of the great resignation must include Christmas, Hanukkah, that is devoid of shit. Stop buying shit. The great resignation has to include not feeling cheated anymore. Stop feeling that you're being cheated. Stop feeling that your children are being cheated, your loved ones, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Stop thinking that you and the people you love are being cheated. And the only way to make good is to buy them worthless shit that is piling up outside Long Beach in some container ship. It's all shit. Don't buy it. Don't buy this shit. The great resignation means I quit this, take this job and the shit you're making it and shove it up your ass.
shove it up your ass. That includes the crap, the, the McDonald's that is killing us, the bad food and, and these worthless toys and, and contraptions that just pile up and make us all look like a nightmare episode of Hoarders. Don't buy this shit. Go on strike. If you're working and you want to quit, but you can't quit because like most of us, you need to pay for things. Keep your job, but save your fucking money and don't buy that bullshit. Don't buy shit for your kids. Spend time with them. God damn it. Stop buying shit and stop giving to people uh, like WNYC or, or candidates like Ro Khanna, whose wife is worth, I think, $100 million. Well, uh, I kept it short, but not polite. Let us now go to somebody who is an exemplar of understanding and love and tolerance. His name is Pete Dominic, and he is the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic. It's great to see you. Can't hear you. They, they love you. I, I love them. I was so happy to see and get and receive your invitation to join you on your show today. And I'm so uh, happy to be talking to you. I was just I was just buying some stuff I don't need on Amazon. <laughs> I have uh, I bought these plastic circles. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know what they do. <laughs> But they were marketed at me and they're like, you love these plastic circles. I was like, oh, <laughs> we need more plastic circles. So I got those and then I got uh, a bunch of uh, old ski boots. Yeah. So. Well, do you mind? Do you, can I talk about that with you? About buying things? I, I don't know if I agree with you on the one point. Almost everything I agree with. I love the delivery. I really did. I was laughing. I enjoyed it. I think it I wasn't was, being funny. You were laughing no, well, at me. Yeah, I la I laugh at your ser your righteous anger makes me laugh sometimes, and and because not in a in a belittling way. It's just it's just wonderful. It's just I I feel like a lot of people like listening to you, including me, because you are channeling our rage, and you do it in a way that can be unintentional. Well, funny. I'm complimenting you, but listen, don't let me get tangled up on that because there's the thing that I. I do think robots are going to replace a lot of people is the point I would quibble with. But anything you want to talk about about that, I'm happy to. And I agree with the almost entirely the materialism, the consumerism and the amount of crap. Be the change you want to see and, and don't buy shit. Right. Now, you have kids. Yes, I have two, two daughters, two teenage daughters. And here was always a bone of contention. Why do I have to buy stuff around this time of year for people? When I can barely survive, why do I have to why do I have to spend money on people as an act of love? And that's not me being cheap. All right, it is. No, I, I you know, it's and it, it, uh, it's not that it's what the stuff never gets used. You oh, I'm going to buy you this board game and you're, yeah. you're not going to play the game. You're not going to play. It. It's the game I played when I was a kid. Yeah, well. They're not playing it. They're playing video games. 
Do you buy crap for your girls? They buy stuff for themselves at this point. Um, you know, they have access to accounts that I run. Oh, hang on. Let's see here. I'm known caller. Hang All on. Right. Hello? Hello? I, okay. Sorry. I, I answer all spam calls on this show. Sorry. Hmm. That was rude. I apologize. I don't mind. Yeah. Um, I'm plugging in to make sure I get the next one. So they buy their own stuff. Did I lose you? Hey, no, I'm. I, they were just. I. T- I looked at my phone because you took that call, and they, those, those, those two humans, uh, daughters of mine, were texting me. They're. They happen to be together on their way home, and they asked about about dinner. And for example, like they'll just go get dinner for tonight. In terms of stuff, I mean, they. They. They're not too. They're, they mostly are focused on their appearance. So a lot of their products are clothes and like makeup and hair products. That's where they spend their money. And the issue I have is that they'll order, my wife does this as well, a, one tube of, of cream or something. And it'll come in a box with, with a bag, the, the inflatable bag packaging. And that, that enrages me because sustainability is a really important issue to me. It's a, an issue I talk and speak professionally about. I teach young people about sustainability and yet my own children are ordering one item to be delivered here on a giant truck burning fossil fuels in huge amount of packaging that's clearly unsustainable and you know what it does i'll tell you what it does spent two days texting my daughter while she was in school because her face was on fire because the new cream she's using is giving her an allergic reaction so it's not even working not even working yesterday Yesterday, she calls me the day after a school shooting, okay? Right. So any parent, any parent that has a, a child in school takes these issues even more seriously because their kid's about to go into that building on that bus again that day. And so she calls me during school. She, only, she always texts me. They text during school, and, but never calls. I get a call, David, and she's, I hear a, 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 a voice in the background, and she's whispering. She's whispering to me, Dad, Dad. I'm like, hey, Julia, what's wrong? Are you okay? I'm immediately thinking the shooter's in the room. <laughs> this is what she says with no context. I had no idea she was having an issue with no context at all. This right. is what I hear. Dad, my face is on fucking fire. <laughs> what do you even... What? My face, I think I'm having an allergic <laughs> on fire. Go to the nurse. What, what, what did kids do before phones where you could call your dad? And I'm like, is there a shooter in the room? What I'm using? It was like some, some kid got his hands on a flamethrower. And yeah, that is... That is terrifying. I, it's one of the things I was always afraid of uh, you know, with my kids in school, that they would end up becoming a shooter. I was, uh, I was always. Um, I they would, I would fit the profile that, that of the parent. They would have an allergic reaction. Yeah. I fit the profile of the parent. Yeah. Of, you know. Uh, yeah. 
the thing with that is uh, more than anything else and California just passed a law this week which is you know you have to hold the the parents responsible especially if they allow their kids to vote Republican no you have to hold the parents have to be held responsible if they have guns in the home this kid apparently his dad bought a gun on Friday on on uh, on Black Friday, I guess he got a deal on a six oh, sour, yeah. and the kid used it the next week. That dad is responsible, uh, and they, California has passed a law, I think, that says just that, and that's the kind of law that that, that seems to be a quote common sense gun law. Right. The the I agree with you, but punishing the parents is what they do in public housing. Like that's how we have homeless people. If anybody in your family is dealing drugs or commits a crime, we're throwing the whole family out of public housing. So instead of hiring enough teachers and social workers, they they scare, they incentivize the parents to do the work that the government should be doing. Like Vice President Harris, when she was the DA in San Francisco, used to arrest the parents of truants. Like, we're going to lock, if your kid doesn't go to school, we're going to lock your parents up. Like, it's different. I, it is different and it's not. It's, it's kind of nibbling around the edges of the problem. The problem isn't the parents. The problem is guns. I fully agree that the issue is access to but it's still access to weapons and while we are not we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good i agree with you and i appreciate your your thoughtfulness and and didn't really realize that or hadn't thought that much about those public policy issues when it comes to housing and, and incentives that way and obviously the drug war is complete nonsense we have to get rid of that for that issue but in this case uh this this hap this is hap this is not hard this is a law you could pass and and hold the parent responsible for allowing the gun to be unlocked. I mean, there's so many things that we have to do as homeowners, as property owners, as citizens in terms of safety at, at work. This is not a hard, a heavy lift. And I think, you know, also having insurance, right. having to have insurance if you have a gun in, in these cases. And so obviously we have to talk about accessibility to guns and interest in guns. And, you know, See, you know, I go ahead. You you have a real life. I don't. I live a life of, of of abstraction, the hypothetical. I'm being serious. I used to have, you know, a real like I'm like just in the ether floating and you're dealing with like home ownership and schools. I just sit off in the corner, read and then point fingers. I figure out who to blame. I'm at that I'm point in my life. I, I, I'm like, I'd make a great grandfather right now. Like I could, I could <laughs> tell you how to raise your kids. If I should be your father. You should apply for grandfathership and create an app, like uh, an app that's like granddad, grand appy, grand app, grand appy. Yeah, you're grand appy and you just, you're, the, you're available for office hours as grand appy. And you do what you just said, because, yeah, I am trying to be the change I want to see, which means I am involved in my local community to try to create change right here. I mean, I'm the guy at the at the Board of Education meetings. I'm, I'm thinking about running for the board. I'm thinking about running for town council because I'm trying to make those changes right here incrementally because it drives me and it makes me happy. It makes me feel good and happy to, to work with these folks uh, and organize and and fight 
racism in this case is what we're doing here. Fight ignorance and enlighten and and try to also bring people together at the same time. I'm doing it in a, in a mostly non-hostile way. So you're running for office. Yes, I may. I may. I may. They recruited me this past round and I agreed to do it. The local Democrats, I agreed to, to run for town council, but it was too late to get my name on the ballot. And I was not interested in running a write-in campaign. But in two years, if we are still, in fact, living in this community, or otherwise just, I'll be making another community better. And you would still do the show? Yes. I like that. But now, yeah. I wouldn't want to be... See, I want to be able to just yell at people. And you can't do that. Even Bernie can't yell at people. Like Bernie knows what's on right. Grand Abbey, on Grand Abbey, you can. See, that's the thing. I want to be America's grandpa. That should be my show. The, the subtitle for this show should be the David Feldman show, America's grandpa. Yes. Because yes. a grandfather, like a, people need a cranky, belligerent grandfather who who their who then their parent who who attacks his own kids and his grandkids and then the parents say to the kids well he was right about you you know uh your elbows on the table you shouldn't have your elbows on the table when we're eating yeah i he love was, it i love was, that uh, idea yeah i love yeah. the i i think there's a lot of and, and then i it's worth the money we pay you as well i think yeah america's official grandfather yeah you could be could you tell us Getting back to your give me a problem that you're having with your kids. What's that? Give me a give me something you're worried about. Uh, one, they're having far too much uh, uh, intimacy, sexual intimacy at, at at what I think is a little bit too. I think they're a little bit. They're going to a little too fast without sharing details, which I desperately <laughs> want to tell you and your audience all about. <laughs> I don't know what the answer to that. I just talk to your mother. That's something. But I would say as your grandfather, as your father, I would say, are they your sons? It's not. I don't think it's a great idea because my wife is a real slut. <laughs> <laughs> I kid my wife. She I, is. Uh, I would leave that up. I, that's something I would leave to. Uh, I know that's probably hey, my daughters. My, my daughters uh, yesterday were in a conversation about slut shaming. They were saying a girl at their school had been slut shamed. And we, we had a long talk about that it was interesting. I actually talk with the girls about sex on a regular basis. And I have always I have always talked about it. We talk about it very, very openly. And the four of us do. And my wife is is not, in fact, a slut. She's, in fact, an amazing role model. And she's she's is certainly playing, I think, that role well. But I'm playing it as well, too, because they are interested in boys. And so I tell them, you know, about how to how to get it over with if you need to quickly and things like that. Right. I never got I wasn't allowed to discuss the birds and the bees. Just never. It was like, all huh? We talk about sec we talk about everything. Sexual assault. I've 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 talked to them all about like preparing. It's one of the thing that things that I hate as a father of daughters is men or people thinking they're being well-intentioned by looking at your kids and saying, you better get a shotgun, you better, whatever. I'm like, why, am I a vigilante? If, if, they, if, if this idea, this, this 
unbelievably egotistical, narcissistic idea that you're going to be there at the moment your kid or anybody you care about is assaulted. We're going to like run through the wall like the Kool-Aid man or jump over the back seat. You're not going to be there. You're not going to be there. And, and then you find out about it that your daughter has been assaulted. What? And then you go show up at his home and fight him. And my joke is got to be horrible to have my daughter be sexually assaulted by a 16 year old boy. And then that same 16 year old boy kicks the shit out of me. <laughs> hey, did you boom? Uh <laughs> um, you teach your kids, your daughters, to take care of themselves as much as possible. So that's that's how it works. That's God forbid something's going to happen. Likely it is. That's the percentage. So you talk to them about it. You say, "Here's what you do in this situation. Here's what you, we've done it all. I've talked about all of that with them, and they both know uh, if you know if something if they get into a tough situation, one thumb in the eyeball, and then just any action towards the scrotum you can. A hard strike, maybe hang, dangle upon it, whatever." Yeah, that also happens to be how I get off, but that's most kids that age don't. <laughs> but that's I'm, so sorry. I'm different. Yeah, I did that. Well, you know, I, I, I'm being serious here and people are, are going to think I'm by the way, I love you. man. I'm so glad to see you. Likewise. And I'm glad Likewise. we put that. There was a big I, I didn't tell the audience about the big fight that you we, you you were on my shit list. And I was on your shit list and it went back and forth and there was angry notes and uh, no, there was. Well, I found out you were Jewish. Right. I, well, yeah. And I apologize. I, a year. I apologize for not telling you the people think I'm joking when I say this. Forget sex education. They they need to teach. I know this sounds I, I, I hate saying this. They need to teach love in our public schools. I hate being the guy who has to say that, but they teach the mechanics of sex. They'll tell you how your body works, but not your heart. They need to teach people how to love one another and that and that sex uh, sometimes is separate from love, but the, the best kind of sex is where you don't pay more than two hundred dollars. <laughs> no, that's I'm, not. I'm, I'm happy to agree with that sentiment, but I don't. I, I think realistically, and the issue that I'm having right now with, with my daughters, and it, without saying too much, going too fast, you know, too too young, is that they're so desensitized to sex because not to sound like some kind of religious uh, Puritan, but it is so everywhere in their faces from such a young age, you can't possibly uh, prevent them from seeing it, which I never would want to. I just want to know that if my daughters have seen a show, like I caught my daughter at a, you know, like 12 or 11 watching the, the show Shameless, which is an excellent show. But if, if you're watching it and you're learning about all kinds of sex at a young age, I just would want to then also talk to you about it. You don't get to teach them. They're being taught by social media, by YouTube, by whatever they're watching. And that's fine. It's fine. But in addition to all of that, which they're going to be hit with, Teaching them love somehow. I don't know how this would be done. I'd be interested. Well, in do you it. believe? Let me ask you a question. Sure. Would your parents ever brag or would you brag that your child is in love? 
Would you brag? Would you when you go out with friends and they go, how's your kid doing? Yeah, I would. You would say, oh, I'm so proud of my child. Yes. They're in love. And he yes. and and they're so I see them together. They're that he he's so understanding. She's understanding. They listen to one another. Mm-hmm. You, you would brag about that. I don't know that I would brag. I know that I would. What's the animal want- behind you? I didn't know you had a dog who's behind you would want to share that i would want as my dog that's my dog indy she's a nine-year-old havanese she always hangs out in the shed with me Aww. and she's seen a lot but i would want to i would want to talk about i would want to share that information with somebody I would, yeah brag sure yeah what, what would you what would what would you be more proud of that your daughter got into some law school or medical school accounting school got a uh, going for her mba her cpa or she's in love. What would you what would you lead with at dinner? If I said, what's the good news? I haven't seen you. What's the good news? And your daughter just got accepted into graduate school or she's in love. What would you be more proud to say? What school is it? <laughs> what would you lead with? Or better yet, grandpa, you're going to talk. You're going to call your father. And, and, and you have two pieces of good news, Pete Dominic, host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic. You're calling your father to talk about the grandchild and you have two pieces of good news. Your daughter's in love and she just got into whatever. Uh, That's a great, you know, I, engineering would, I, would probably, I would probably talk more about the, the school in this case because of the, it's a transition in life and the, a relationship can be trend more transitory, I suppose. It could be much shorter. And the, the debt you know, she's be- accruing, the debt she's accruing lasts forever. But you're well, saying, yeah. but love doesn't. No, that's not what. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Love, love can and and college can be free. My daughter just got, you know, my friend's daughter just got a full scholarship because she's good at sports. My daughter probably won't get at that. She's not good at anything. No, she's a great artist, but like, you know, I don't. So I would I would talk. By the way, I have a good insult for your daughter. This is what I I, I, I'm calling. I came up with a new way to insult your kids this time of year. You're seven candles short of a menorah. I like that. I like that. I like that. (laughs) I I came up with that yesterday and I thought it won't work on everybody. It will. It only will work on. Uh, people of a certain tribe, right? I'm uh, honorary, you know, as you know. You would, you could pass. Italians and Jews could, yeah. I spent inter- quite a bit of time uh, with the Jews uh, yeah. and all types of them: Israelis, Upper West Siders, and Orthodox. Yeah. Well, I haven't spent a lot of time with the Orthodox, but my wife does. She works with them, and so I, I, I hear, and, and they're, you know, she, she loves her clients that she works with. The Orthodox. Yeah, she has Orthodox, uh, mostly women, but some men, and she she really likes them on an individual. What's wrong with her? Quite a bit. I mean, on, it's it's. I think the issues with the Orthodox is how they, you know, established you know communities and certain rules and and, and patriarchy and, and all kinds of things that plenty of, to, to criticize. But on a one to one basis, right. um, they're going to get the rest. Know. They're going to get the rest of us killed. In the Orthodox, the, the ones oh. who. Uh, I can see how you would see it that way. Yeah, they're going to get the rest of us killed. 
They yeah. are. I, you know, either because they're anti-vaxxers or other things. They're just one thing I haven't seen because I know so much about the Jews. But one thing I haven't seen is a conversation between or within like a more secular or or even reformed Jewish community and what that dispute or what that problem you know, conflict is with Orthodox. Like there's gotta be a documentary or I wanna watch that conversation. What 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 both uh, communities kind of say to each other and how they argue because there's a huge conflict, obviously. There is a huge conflict. I would say, really. yeah, I would say Jews are pretty good at keeping it in the community, the, the Jew on Jew violence in the community. It's like they don't, if you wanna be spared the wrath of, some of my family members just tell them you're not Jewish. Then they, they, they right, will, they, right, right, they right. will be so it's, it's like anytime I play a temple, I, 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 they always book non-Jews for temple gigs. And mm. I always, when I'm driving with the non-Jew, I go, you're going to kill. And they always go, but I'm not Jewish. That's why you're going to, you're going to, they just yeah, tell yeah. them you're not Jewish. Make sure you tell them you're not Jewish and, you're going to be Robin Williams to them. I've done uh, I've done a few of those, and I will never forget uh, the response. You know, you, you always remember the response that certain comedians get from certain audiences. And when Modi went up, it was like the Rolling Stones had showed up. He's it a rabbi, totally, right? Uh, is he a rabbi? Now? I think so. Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen him in years, but we used to be pretty close. Judy Gold and I. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, Judy. Well, we we. Uh, I used to open for her at Caroline's this time of year, and Modi would do the show after. And uh, we were always jealous at, at how well he was able to sell oh, yeah, tickets. Oh, yeah, yeah. He always, he always kills. For example, let me give you an example. I, I, again, I don't mean to traffic in stereotypes. Pete Dominic, I'm being polite to you, right? I'm not really getting it, getting into you, into you, getting into it with you, right? Right. Okay. Do you know John Ross? Great comedian, great comedy writer. I don't think John and I have ever met, but I like I like his face. I like his hat. I like the way he looks and I want to look like a little more. I think I am going to I'm, I'm headed in his direction. Well, John is what at, yeah, we'll meet in the middle. John is what we call a Jew. He's oh. a Jew. There's and, two of you. Here. And I am what you call a Jew. Right. The conversation that he and I are about to have will be the uh, boundaries will not be respected let me put it this way but he wouldn't do this if you were he wouldn't do it to you he wouldn't do it to jake johansson because he he john and i will take liberties with each other it's family it's like he's like a brother to me so yeah. there's do you think that's true of other ethnicities yes i do yes i do ah. <clears throat> Go ahead. What? It's not because you're Jewish. It's because we have a, a personal history. I would do it. Jake and I have a personal history, and, and I we take liberties. With you each would other. never take liberties with. First of all, Jake's a better comedian. He's he's more talented. You would never well, disrespect that, that, Jake Johan. Another another low bar to hurdle. There. <laughs> Liberty taking has begun. It seems. Jake Show. Who's your Jake Johansson? is one of the greatest stand-ups who's ever done it. He invented a new, and I had the misfortune of him being the guy I was competing with starting out. I, I didn't, know. I, I, you know, I, I should have picked, like John, I should have competed with John. Yes. <laughs> instead. Be much better. 
And I, uh, but Jake Johansson and I started like at the same exact time. And so I would measure my, I measured myself against Jake Johansson. Not a good idea for one's self-esteem on, on every box that you want to check off. Don't compete with Jake Johansson. And he happens to be John's best friend. Who were you competing with when you were starting out, Pete Dominic? There's always a comic who you measure yourself against. Who is it? Oh, yeah, I think I, did I measure myself by him. I started around the same time that Zach Galifianakis did. Mm hmm at the same club that was kind of a, you know, with us, it was like your home club certainly was mattered a lot in terms of who would, who would be there. And I was at stand up New York more than anywhere else. And, but there was no like competition there. Everybody knew that he was something special and we were trying to be somewhat like him, which is almost impossible because right. he was a chameleon and you never know who was going to show up. Right. You never knew with that guy. So that's one. That's one person. Tonight, I'm actually, on a, on a somewhat similar note, I haven't seen this guy in years, but he's he's in town headlining the club near my house, which is Levity Live. And and he asked me would I, would I want to jump on the shows with him, open with him, because I, I do that a lot, because this club's nearby, and I know so many of the other headliners. Is that Nyack? Uh, yeah, Craig, Craig Shoemaker tonight. Oh, the love, I. the love master. The love master. Yes, I haven't seen him in years, but, uh, but I, I enjoy him. He, we should wrap it up and then because I'll get to John. Yeah. I, here's, a, I don't really know Shoemaker. Uh, I, I remember doing something with MTV years ago. Believe it or not, I was on MTV with him. And was it Nancy Allen? I walked in and he was dating Nancy Allen, the De Palma's ex wife. And mm. I went, okay. I give Shoemaker a lot of credit because. He developed a following without television. It was just a, yes. right? That's a good, that's a, that's a very nice compliment for a comedian. There's a lot of guy, Brian Regan. Uh, I mean, he did a lot of TV, I suppose, Letterman's and stuff, but, but I mean, like there's, I think that's a, a very great compliment for a comedian uh, because they work hard, they, they're consistent, they're organized. And he's also, by the way, I'll leave you alone, but he's a large and like attractive, like sexy, like masculine guy. Like he doesn't, there are very few comedians that are kind of like him physically. Well, I don't know. I mean, John and I would beg to look like correction. <laughs> <laughs> no, we would beg to differ, differ, differ big, beg to differ. That's the name, by the way, that's the name of my autobiography. I beg to differ. Well, I will let you guys get out. I love you, Pete I, Dominic. It's been too long. I don't want to say I'm old, but when I started out, I was competing with Alan King. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say I'm old, but when I started out, I, I was competing with a young Geronimo. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm old, but I think I have arterial sclerosis. Wait, <laughs> hang on. That's not funny. I, Bye. I love you, Pete Dominic. Listen love to stand up, stand up with Pete Dominic, the great Pete Dominic. Bye -bye. <laughs> Hello, John. Hello. I. I heard a little bit of your earlier conversation mm -hmm. with Pete. Sure. And I just wanted to give you a suggestion for mm -hmm. a new name for your show. Yeah. Um, mopping up after grandpa. 
Well, I'm going your route. I'm going to try not to be and I'm going to try to be limber. I'm doing more stretching. I'm doing push-ups. And I realize that the only reason health clubs exist is so nobody has to do a push-up. Like, I haven't gone back to my health club. Oh. And I realized oh. if you just do a, try to do some push-ups and sit-ups, you won't need a health club. Push-ups uh, are tremendous. Uh, if you want to get a chin-up bar, you can put that in the doorway of your house. Push-ups, chin-ups, any sort of, you know, leg lifts. Uh, you get a jump rope. You, you don't, don't need, need anything else. You don't need anything else. Everything is just anything. avoiding those three exercises. It's they've yeah. built an entire multi-billion dollar industry avoiding what our parents knew to do. Was your father an exercise nut? He was like a handball champ back when handball was the thing that the Jews all did. Uh, and he played a lot of handball. <clears throat> Keep saying then, handball. What? It's like you're waving red meat in front of a rabid dog. You say handball, and I'm not going to try to make a bad joke. But you, you kept yeah. saying handball because you knew that I wanted to say something. You wanted to debase yourself. About him handling your balls, and I wasn't going to do that. Thank you. Funny. I so appreciate you not wasting the last 30 seconds of my life. Um, and then he, he got deep into playing golf. So he, after a certain age, he didn't do any physical exercise other than golf. And he claimed, well, I always carry my own bags. Yeah, it's not because you're cheap, too cheap to get a cart. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm, I'm getting exercise. I carry my own bags. <laughs> nah, you don't want to pay for a cart. <laughs> but uh, so how are you? It's good. I haven't seen you in a while. How are you? Tell me some good news. I'm going to exert, uh, assert uh, executive privilege. Okay. <laughs> and not answer that. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. I got a, I got a great new job. I'm a professional manager. Wow. Yeah. So. A professional listen, manager. I'm a, I'm, I'm a professional manager now. Okay. Um, look, I've been listening to the show. Yeah. And you've been going hard after the richest 1%. Right. And I am all for it. Right. Like, fuck those assholes. Hate them. But then you started kind of going after the top 5%. I'm going to kind of move you to block up for them a little bit. Yeah. Call off your dogs. You know, hear what I'm saying? First, they came for the richest one percent, and I said nothing, yeah. for I was not a billionaire. Then they came for the. Actually, I'm going after the richest. I'm going. I think the top ten percent are the problem. Because, hold on, I'm getting another call. <laughs> they get, are. I've got. I'm going to be on another podcast in a minute. Yeah, so the top ten percent are the problem because they enable. They're the, the as. Professor Catherine Liu says, she's the author of Virtue Hoarders, the top 10% are the courtiers of the richest 1%. Well, you're in there, and I'm in there, and so are a lot of your guests. Just saying. You're in there. Maybe. No, you are. How about, do you, have you, have you got, more money than me. I have more money than you? Yeah. Even after your divorce, you do. Really? Yeah. How do you know? 
because I'm a Jew. How do you, you don't know what my books look like. I don't, but I, I, I know I can look at your IMDB page. I know what jobs you've had over the years. Uh, I, I, I can figure stuff out, man. You can figure stuff out. You don't know my vices. You don't know how good I am holding on to money. Maybe I, I know you like to buy a lot of shit. You like to buy a lot of shit around the holidays. I know that. <laughs> I've, I've, I've factored that in. Nobody's supposed to know that I buy a lot of shit around the holidays. Did you get my gift? <laughs> Are you coming? By the way, I chartered was, the plane. I, I got you, I, I got your gift. It was on fire out in front of my house, and I stamped it out. <laughs> and no, I chartered the plane. To St. Bart's, are you for the, the vacation there? Are you coming? Is it the uh, Lolita Express? The Lolita yeah. Express, yeah. Um, uh, what is I'll my IMD? I, what does it say? Does it say I'm successful? No, I mean, I'm I a journeyman. What? I know how much you've worked, and you know, I look. If I'm making you uncomfortable, no, I, I'm a I'm about. a comedy. I mean, I was a journeyman comedy writer, and and so was I. Right, and you know, I know how much Writers Guild uh, pays, and if you stay on a show, they they bump you a little bit every year. And I also know when you bought property in San Francisco that I lost. And in South San Francisco, yes, are you? Yes, the the divorce uh, hobbled you yes. terribly. Yes, but but even even there, like even if you don't have more than me, you have as much as me. How do you know? Okay, I'm guessing because you'd be an idiot not to. Well, and I don't well, think you're an idiot. You don't think I'm an idiot? Not not with money. Really. Okay. What? Look, I'm, I'm looking around at that room. What? What would you be spending any money on? <laughs> That's okay. true. The, now the earplugs are all done. The what, what's this? The lamp I found in the landing. Somebody was throwing the landing uh -huh. out. So I I did a transplant. I did a lampshade transplant. I took an old lampshade, threw out the old lamp, and put it on. Uh, who says you're not handy? <laughs> well, and, and look, and to be truthful, here's the sad thing is you don't need to have that much money to be in the top 10 percent. It speaks to how poor this country is. Right. The, the, the bottom 50 percent are destitute. And from 50 to 80 is not great. You know, you don't need to have that much money to be in the top 10 percent. Right. I kind of like the idea. It's interesting. I'm thinking, like, how does it feel having people think I'm rich and successful? I'm, I'm trying to figure there, there's well, something nice about. Well, hang on for one second. It kind of feels nice what you sure. just said. Well, like, oh, maybe people think I'm really rich and success, like a successful Hollywood type. Like I'm, well, I'm like Rob Reiner. But well, see, that's the problem is. And, and I have this problem, too, and I have to be reminded of it all the time, is we compare ourselves to Jake Johansson to yeah to people. Look, the people who we came up with, who we didn't think were anything that special, you know, went on to be 
like, look, Ray Romano was just another guy doing sets at the Comedy Cellar in New York. And then suddenly he's got a TV show that runs forever and he's a multi-gazillionaire. Um, and suddenly, and suddenly he's a genius. And suddenly Ray Romano's a genius. Right. And who who's the, uh, I mean, you know, and some of them were, I mean, Dana Carvey, when we I was opening for him, was unbelievably genius. And then he went on. But, right. you know, who Rob Schneider didn't seem like. And so all these people, that's who we compare ourselves to. I disagree with you about Rob. Rob. What? You were you were much closer to Rob than I was. So maybe you didn't see his brilliance as a performer. He, he didn't but, kill. OK, he didn't kill as a when we were starting at Rob did not kill. But they loved him. Yeah, fine. Yeah. But then but then also there's uh, people like. My other very good friend, Jonathan Groff, not that Jonathan Groff, the other Jonathan Groff, who was, you know, a, barely a middle act, but then left to start being a, a writer, was a, a great comedy writer and rose to be the head writer of Conan. And now, you know, he's show running blackish and he's got all. So we compare ourselves to these people who are amazingly successful, but we don't look down at all the people who below us who couldn't make a living we made a just to make a living in oh i i, I get to what you're like, saying i, I look down on we, everybody by the way what's that i look down on everybody yes but you know the fact that we've gotten where we've gotten where we were able to support ourselves and actually like buy a house like through doing show business that that's wildly successful compared to the the vast hordes of people who would like to do what we're doing but also it's harder and harder i mean i remember when we first started Everybody was talking about how all the big deals were over. You know what I mean? Like, oh, the big money, the guys who worked on Friends, they all got million dollar deals and development. That that right. doesn't exist anymore. And then 10 years after that, you look back where we were and people are going, oh, they don't make they don't have big staffs of 20 writers anymore. Now it's just now there's like, oh, they don't even do 20 shows. They do 10 shows. a right. year, And it's like it just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I wouldn't want to be coming up now. It's getting smaller and smaller. And everybody it's more and more people and it's getting smaller and smaller. You, they staff up a show and you're lucky if you like a 13 week contract. Are you kidding me? Like it used to be, oh, I only have a 13 week contract. They don't give out 13 week contracts anymore. It's more and more. So the precarity, uh, yep. it, it's uh, it's because it's part. It, it's mostly because the system they figured out how to cheat everybody out of what yep. they're worth. And everybody wants to do it. It's like stand-up. It's like stand-up in New York City where you're performing. You're performing for other comedians. Yeah. It's just more people want that. It's supply and demand. Are you doing stand-up? Uh, no, I have not done any stand-up. All right, let me ask you, we're talking to John Ross, who you should follow on Twitter. I have a tweet, because you your tweets are brilliant, and people should follow you on Twitter at Fun With Friction. And I've been following you on Twitter, and I enjoy wow. your, your, uh, your tweets. And one of the things is that you are a fool. I am a fool. 
by being on Twitter. Because you're okay. looking, it's high school, and you're looking to be accepted by the cool kids, right? Right. Okay. This is a tweet that got 10,000 retweets. I'm going to read you a tweet. Okay? Please do. It got 10,000 retweets. Have you ever gotten a tweet that got 10,000 retweets? No. Okay. Have you ever gotten a tweet that got 42,000 likes? No. Okay. This is from the great Rob Reiner. Ooh, yeah. Brilliant Rob Reiner, who I just wish he would opine more on politics and represent the Democratic Party. Because every time Rob Reiner speaks, the Rust Belt, the people in middle America just love the Democrats even more because people like Rob Reiner and David Geffen, they they should they're the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Get to the tweet. We have Michael Flynn. This is his tweet. Uh-huh. 10,000 retweets. We have Michael Flynn calling for one American religion. We have Paul Gosar calling for the death of the president of the United States. We have Donald Trump actively responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. What the actual fuck? 10,000 retweets. Like you're sitting, well, retweet them. you're sitting there sharpening your bone mot, looking for limote <laughs> juiced and, and yeah. meathead, this pompous hack. What the actual fuck? And people, oh, 10,000 retweets because I love this is Spinal Tap. I mean, just shut, you know, Rob yeah. Reiner funded the committee to look into Russiagate. And the minute the Mueller report came out, he pulled the plug on it. I mean, you know, it's this week's well, fashion, you know, Rob Reiner. I, I'm 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 not really looking for anything uh, from. But Rob Reiner just called. Hang on for one second. Oh, he liked my script. To, to me, uh, it is like it's like being able to walk out and there's a there's a well in my yard and I scream down. <laughs> my bone <laughs> down into the well and something is released then i feel better twitter and, and, it's and like I hear a bit of an echo of a laugh and that, yeah, but, that's but all i get out of it twitter is it's high school and it's fixed like nobody's ever looked into the free like they lure celebrities to join twitter they go you know what you sign up you're automatically you're gonna get five hundred thousand followers they're not real, but we're going to give you 500,000 followers. Right. But you're looking at it purely in a dick measuring kind of way. Yes. Whereas most of what I'm doing, I'm not looking for entertainment on Twitter. I, you know, when there is a school shooting or whatever, it does seem to be the fastest way to kind yes. of keep up with the news and stuff. That is and true. So I mostly just follow news people. I'm not following like, funny people i do you end up seeing because some of the people i follow will retweet something funny from someone who i don't follow so i I end up seeing a lot of the funny stuff it's a way also to kind of go oh did you see that thing yeah i saw it i agree with you you. know you got to see it it's that's the place where you go to see it but it's where i look at news but i'm not looking for to get famous on twitter or to have that 
but I think it's something funny and it's, and it's just, it's, it's like having a notebook. It's like, right. oh, let me write that down. And so I just, say, yeah, I, don't know. I agree with you. Everything you just said is, is, is like a notebook. And I spend more time on Twitter than I do. I don't spend any time on Facebook. I deleted my Facebook account a long time ago and I won't go there. It's just, it's too evil. It's just, what do you do? You look up like what people from high school look like, right? I, I deleted Twitter. I don't, I mean, Facebook. I don't have Facebook. I deleted it. But here's what I'm thinking of doing. I'm thinking, well, I like, I actually use Facebook to promote the podcast. But if I were. If it's evil, is that, isn't that a, maybe bad? What? Uh, if if Facebook is an evil thing that right. is not good for our society, and you go, well, I just use it for this. I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an innocent. I just use it for my podcast and try to encourage body dysmorphia among teenage girls, and that's it. It's okay. the only good use of. I, if I had to do it over again, I would look for you know, who is it? Anthony Sabato. Who's the guy who spoke it? The underwear model. I would find an underwear model mm -hmm. and I would just use Photoshop and Photoshop, you know, I would make myself look really young and good looking. And just so everybody who knew me, you know, 30 years ago would, would go, wow, Feldman really, he Boy, looks good. Speaking of which, a thing I saw on Twitter that somebody had reposted or whatever uh, was this very brief animation that they made. And it's a kind of a close up. Maybe you saw it. I don't know. It's a close up uh, of uh, looks like a mixed race woman. And I believe she had like one of those little, what do they call them? Uh, the ring in the nose, uh, uh, septum ring. I think they call it whatever. And it's just a close up and she just bats her eyes once and then looks over this way and it's a super close you can see all the pores on her skin and she just looks back and forth and you go okay so i don't understand what is this and, it, and you realize it's computer generated it's not a person it was created and it looks like it's completely completely un. you couldn't tell it from a, a human being right. and it, it was just like oh that's the beginning that's it like you're not going to ever be able to believe anything you see ever again uh it was a completely human looking thing in human movement and they'll just be able to put anybody's voice they'll be able to you will not be able to trust anything you see ever right right then again we can see a sequel to casablanca wouldn't that be great you could you know you can you could literally get the the speech patterns of bogart and and uh, Ingrid Bergman and uh, yeah, you could just I can do when I was learning animation ten years ago. They back then they had a thing uh, text to speech where you could type something in and a voice would. I mean, you can do it now. You could you can now like your final draft, right? You could have your script performed and you get all these different voices. It's robotic. But, yeah, very. And, but in a couple of years, if not now, they could have, they could literally take every, they, you could feed everything Humphrey Bogart ever said into a computer yeah. and create a program 
that yes. with a little tweaking will make you think Humphrey Bogart is speaking to you. So why wouldn't you be able to do Casablanca too? And what would you, how would you have it end? Like what happens after? In, oh, how would this? If you had, a, if I commissioned you, if we got hired to write Casablanca too, what would you? I, you know, I, I don't even know where to begin. I'd have to sit down and, and rewatch the original and, uh, which I haven't done in a long, long time. So I don't know. You have you have a, a pitch for CB2? Yeah. Rick uh, contracts emphysema and spends the rest of World War II hook up to an oxygen tank and dies a slow, painful death. Okay. Sidney Greenstreet uh, chokes on his own acid reflux a year later. I'm going to say... How about this? What if, um, what's his name? Sydney Greenstreet. What's the character's name? Rick. Huh? Rick. Rick. Uh, yeah. Rick starts stealing high-end cars and racing them through the streets <laughs> against Vin Diesel. Uh, we got something. We got something. Uh Sam says, play it yourself. It's the Fast and the Furious. Yes. yes. <laughs> I always wanted the sequel to be called Faster and Furious Furious. <laughs> what would it have been like if Bill Cosby had gotten part of the television version of Casablanca, if he was Rick? In I, you know, I can't remember. Of all the ginger, like, okay. Yeah, hey, well, let I, me ask I, I you a question. The, the famous speech. Right. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, play it, Sam. If you could play it for her, you could play it for me. Bill Cosby <laughs> in the television version. We all know that NBC did a television version of Casablanca in the 80s where I don't feel I don't feel like I have my Bill Cosby. OK, I know like, I'm putting out on the spot. I, All I can yeah, tell you, no, I, I just don't have it in my it's like I, I, I have him in my brain now as right. this jailbird. Sm Smigel could do Bill Cosby like I've gone on drives with him where I've just said, just yeah. talk like Bill Cosby for, and I and if I could talk like Bill Cosby, I know that I'm so sick I would get locked into that voice. Like I, I like I'd have to be taken to a shrink. They'd say, "Why, why, are, why is he only talking like Bill Cosby?" Because right, I only have, I only have a few more minutes. Um, I want to tell you that uh, I'm I'm reading um, uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind with LSD. At, well, or psilocybin, you know, what they call psychedelics. They have other different names for them. But um, I, I really think it's an important book and it's an important uh, subject. And I think um, the mushrooms are going to save the world, that the mushrooms are conscious and they are sending us the message. And that that's uh, that will what will we need a transformation of our thinking. Because, and, and, and you talking on your podcast uh, is not going to do it. No. Did you ever do mushrooms with the Warren Spotswood? I did LSD with Warren Spotswood. I don't think I did mushrooms. What was Warren it like Spotswood. doing LSD with Warren? That must have been, I mean, Warren Spotswood, not Warren Thomas. He was Thomas. like LSD. He was like human LSD. He was like LSD. He was 
So what was that like? Well, it's LSD is a hard thing to describe, but, um, you know, it, 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 set and setting is important with how you do it. Um, I, you know, I don't even I'm trying to remember if I even did it with him. Uh, I may have gotten it from him. Um, you know, you, you, you're in your own journey, really. It's not like you're not you're not interacting with other people. You're going kind of inward. So uh, I can't say that doing it with Warren was uh, being with Warren in everyday life was right. was kind of crazy. You experienced that. Right. We have, an, you know, uh, newspapers and have editorial policies and there's an editorial policy on this show. And that is we do not condone the use of hallucinogens. The official position is we do not support uh, the use of hallucinogens, LSD, or mushrooms, unless it's medically supervised. That is the official. It is very dangerous for kids to experiment with I, that stuff. I I I, uh, I agree that it it could be dangerous for kids. It's not really for kids. It's more for uh, middle aged people. You should read the book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to to just be you know completely anti it is like a little bit like being an anti vaxxer and saying I'm doing my own research. I mean, right. you really should do your own research as far as uh, educating yourself to the history uh, of all the research that was done into it and where all that comes from and what they found and what they're doing with it now uh, right. before you opine too much. No, no, what, I, I, I love Michael Pollan and not just because yeah. he's Michael J. Fox and he's Michael J. Fox's brother-in-law. Did you know that? I didn't know that. He's well, married to Michael J. Fox's sister? Yes. Oh, okay. Pollan. Was it Tracy Pollan or something? I, I think her name is Julie. He, the, he mentions her in, in this book. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I can't remember. The name. Uh, he's married to Michael J. Fox's sister, and he's a great writer. In fact, he turned me on to sourdough bread, as a matter of yeah. fact. Uh, he, he and his uh, Netflix series on food is amazing. It's just amazing. I, yeah, I, I'm terrific. just saying that when you read that soldiers with PS, PTSD are being treated with mushrooms or you know microdoses of LSD mm -hmm. that they're that they're discovering that L, microdoses of LSD can treat depression and all these wow. that's great news right. that doesn't mean you should be take that, that you on your own should be figuring out your own dosages of hallucinogens. But but for the most part, I think most people don't need to be on any kind of dosage or regular. It's one of the most interesting drugs. Uh, if an animal does it uh, or people, they don't go back for more. It's not it's completely not addictive. And I, I did it a long time ago and I felt like it was a really important experience in my life. But I don't feel like, oh, I need to do it again. Well, but um, some but some people like Lennon, supposedly John Lennon was, you know, 500 a thousand trips and right uh, and and that that's him and i i would say that for the number of people that it would if if you i think if the whole world were given uh a, a, a psychedelic trip um there would be some people that would be harmed by it but much much more uh the world would be helped by it 
Now, very quickly, when you say mushrooms, not just as hallucinogens, what is it about mushrooms that are special and why are they the future? As a source of protein, because they grow so quickly, they can take carbon dioxide out of the air. What, what is it about mushrooms that are so important? The, that they, they, you know, they used mushrooms, I believe, a, a certain kind in the, after the Exxon Valdez spill that they were able to surround uh i love my mushrooms with oil who doesn't i get a little mushroom some oil you got little pasta freshness huh you don't do characters i don't do characters (laughs) who said that i don't even know what that voice was but yes that they'll be able to sequester carbon um but i also think that they'll be able to tell us uh they, they will be able to change people's minds literally how to change your mind and, and all a lot of things that you talk about about you know rejecting consumerism and accepting other people and you know that love protecting each other and realizing that we are all connected you know you can say that to people all you want and they don't get it and that's the idea of these psychedelic trips is that you experience it and you bring that experience back and you go oh now i see it it's not just the understanding of it it's the actual having experienced it right right you've rejected consumerism to some extent i think to more than anybody i know you're you're on a on a farm, you you don't really, you make your own food, you pick your own crops, you grow your own weed. Yeah. You do. I mean, you're, you're not looking through Macy's catalogs for the, the latest air purifier. No. Uh, and I do, and I bake my own bread, and I, 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 the way you talk about it, the way it's like, you can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. All you do is you put flour and water and salt and you can't mess it up. And it's like, gee, I don't know what kind of bread you're eating. That's horrible. Um, It's easy. You got to get good at it or else like you you stop doing it and you just buy stuff at the store. It takes some time. It takes some practice and it takes some work to actually get good at it. And once you do, my my daughter says that there there is no bread on earth like mine. But it takes some practice. I came up with a, a new character. Ooh. Uh, the guy who tells younger parents, don't worry so much. You worry too much. Your kids, you know, it's like children. It's like a river. Just, you know, take the make sure that there are no branches blocking the flow. There's a nat- children. There's a natural flow and clear the rocks. Make sure there's no beavers built any dams and then get out of the way. Calm down. That's and then you meet my kids and they're disasters. My kids are horror shows. Hold, hold on. Ask who I'm calling. Who are you calling? Lauren Michaels. Ah, because that, that character is so oh, good. I can't yes. tell him about like, mm. you have to have him audition. Lauren Michaels. John Ross, follow him on Twitter. I love you, buddy. Fun with friction. You're doing a great job on your show. Thank you. I wish you meant it. I'm I'm sorry I bring it down for half an hour. No, you're the best. You're the best. Thank you. John Ross, everybody. Wow, I got, wow, somebody, I think John's had a stroke. Remember you said your father, what, what, you know, what really, what was the joke you did about your dad? 
where the punchline oh, was the stroke. I'm, hang on. I said, yeah. hey, let me hang on. Let me do what what our relatives do to you. John, tell everybody that joke from your act where the punchline is the stroke. A stroke. We're, we're, do that. Do <laughs> right, that right, thing. I, I it's great. It's really, you're going to like. He says the, a stroke, and it's so funny. Go ahead. Do the bit. Let me see if I. I said my dad and I uh, didn't get along when I was growing up because he was a very angry type A personality, uh, very high strung. Um, but uh, we get along much better now because uh, he's he's mellowed out. And you know what mellows you out? I think strokes <laughs> almost always brings you down a peg right hard to be an asshole when you're drooling these are right. the tags yes these are, this, this is a great job. hey you know what i want to do i want to create a christmas tradition okay where you tell the story of your father after okay. d-day sure that i would love in fact that should be a christmas tradition the story of john's father liberating france it is the greatest yeah. story. Every time I hear, I have told that story and I get chills uh, with, with the tag, with the phone call that yeah. comes. How many years later did the phone call come? Uh, Got to be probably 30 years, I would think. I think more than 30 years. Well, 44. So I, yeah, I actually more. told, I swear it on my life. I yeah. told that story. I've told that story to a lot of people and I actually get choked up when I when when I talk about the phone call because these boys yeah, these boys your father how old was he Well he was 19 but he enlisted at what age 19 I mean I think I mean I don't know 18 I thought he what told I? I thought he told the Luftwaffe draft office that he was 17 but he believed so much in Hitler. No, I think you're conflating another person, as you often do. Your I father believe. wasn't uh, up, uh, up in with the SS during World War. Oh, I see what you're doing. Okay, um, right, we're going to uh, tell that story next, next week. And in fact, I'm going to put music under it, and we'll make it like uh, Ira Glass. And to be fair, uh, you you did get the chills when you told that story, but that's because you have Omicron. <laughs> They used to be my agent. That was, that was my agent. Yeah, I remember. Does that sound like, an, like, a, like a pretentious... Well, Omni, it sounds like Omnipop. What's the name of the, the virus? Omicron, and the, and the agency was Omnipop. Right, I like, I like that. I love you, John. You're listening. I'll see you next week, and we'll, we'll get music. Uh, is it next week already? Is Christmas? It's going to be several weeks, right? No, but oh, you want to do it on Christmas Day? Oh, I no, I, I no, my wife would kill me. But uh, what are you doing for Christmas with her? You know, the family comes over, and you know, we decorated our tree. Here, you want to see the tree? You have a tree oh. in your. You're not know, supposed like to have the a enemy tree. In the house. Um, That's but, defeat. You know, You've been defeated. That's the. I know. Wow. See, but that's what that when see when in, in intermarriage, John. Yeah, that's when you've lost when the, when the tree comes into the house and it's from a um, they've won. It, it's, it's from a sustainable uh, farm where you it's they're, they're not individual Christmas trees. It's a place where the way the tree grows, 
you cut it and then you leave the, the stump and then new trees grow up out out of the sides and you hike up and you cut down your own tree and it's one price for anyone you cut and so it's fun you go hunting for your tree and you go up there and you cut it down and you know what isn't sustainable what's that your resistance to christianity they they they, they got you when they get the tree when you get the tree that's the deal you make with intermarriage they can't you know what, you know what isn't sustainable what my marriage <laughs> Wait, so you pick, know pick the joke that works yeah. you know what isn't sustainable yeah your erections <laughs> i wish i could get an erection i'd give anything well, to be able to sustain you know erection. what i got you for christmas what a couple of popsicle sticks and some duct tape <laughs> This is the joke from my, uh, there's a joke in my act that John gave me that I cannot wait to tell. There's Ben Burgess. Tell but Professor Ben Burgess, author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, is joining us. There's a joke that John Ross gave me, and it's a joke that it gets, if I have to do stand up, it just, I jump out of bed because I get to tell this joke. So how does the joke go? This is a gift you. No, it's your joke. You tell it. Um, well, so it's uh, I can't. Don't jump out of bed too fast. I know. I, uh, I don't need Viagra. It's insulting to a woman right before you're about to make love to have to take a blue pill. What is that saying? to a woman when you excuse me honey you're very attractive but let me just sneak off for a second and take a blue pill so i can get an erection to make i don't do that that's tacky i when when i find a woman who's attractive i just whip out two popsicle popsicle sticks and some duct tape because <laughs> i have class I, i'm not going to take a pill I don't need the pharmaceutical industry to help me with a boner. I got two popsicle sticks and some duct tape. <laughs> I made it my I made it my own. You gave me the joke, but I made it my own. It's a great joke. And now, as the great Bobby Bitter said to the Pope, <laughs> follow that motherfucker. I love you, John. Next week, we'll tell the story of your father, John Ross. Bye, Mike. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Joining us either in Michigan or Georgia. Where are you today? You're in Georgia, where you teach mm -hmm. at Perimeter. You also teach at Rutgers. You're a columnist for Jacobin. You've written Give Them an Argument, which is also the name of your podcast that you can watch on YouTube. And you've also written Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. I want to ask you about Christopher Hitchens. When you said to me today, what should we talk about? I said, Orwell. And you said, what are you talking about? And I thought... Didn't he write a book on or no, he wrote a book on Christopher Hitchens. What is the difference between Christopher Hitchens and George Orwell? Why did I confuse um, the two? Well, uh, Hitchens wrote about Orwell. Uh, he um, and by the way, I should say I'm, I'm not teaching a perimeter right this second. Um, I might 
teach a class there soon. But uh, anyway, yeah, so Hitchens wrote a book called Orwell. Uh, they like the subtitle, a little bit of it is a nod to that book. You know, it's called Why Orwell Matters. Uh, and uh, the difference between them, I mean, I, <laughs> probably a lot of differences. What uh, is the name of your book? Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Okay. So it's kind of rooted in the Orwell book. Yeah. I mean, like I said, part of the title is a reference to, uh, to the Orwell book. Right. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously Orwell was a, was a novelist, which Hitchens was not. He hung out with a lot of novelists, people like Julian Barnes and Martin Amis. And he said it made them realize, him realize that he couldn't do what they did. You know, he, he wrote essays, but you know, he never tried to do that. Um, I think that um, both of them had low points and did things, you know, that that I, I certainly have a low opinion of it at certain points in their careers, you know, which, although very different, you know, in the two cases. Uh, but I think that what I think that like probably the most important difference is just that there are products of very different historical eras. Uh, and, and I think that did, a, you know, I think that part of the explanation, that middle part of the, the title, right. How he went wrong uh, does have to do with that difference. So, so in my understanding of Orwell, and it's not much, is that he taught us not to trust the Soviet Union, which was mm -hmm. good. And he taught us the dangers of totalitarianism. But near the end of his life, he became a rabid anti-communist who named names. Is that, a f is that uh, true? Sort of, sort of. Uh, and how so, problematic uh, is that? Is that consistent with with the Orwell who went fought against? Yeah, so 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 I will say, uh, I think what he actually did do was bad, uh, but I don't think it's quite. I don't think it's quite the way. Like I think that like a lot of leftists, you know, there's a telephone game thing, you know, with the way that they talk about that. It's not quite right. Okay. So uh, you know, which is not to say that the the real version is great, but uh, but it's not quite that, right? So uh, what people, because when you say name names, right, what that suggests is something like the House on American Activities Committee, where you know, you you go there and you you know you tell people you know who's a red and you know and then you know they're called before the committee and you know and and if if they don't cooperate, I mean God knows, right? You know you end up like Dalton Trumbo going to jail for you know for um, contempt of court or you you at the very least end up getting blacklisted for your job uh and and that's not actually what was the case here uh i think uh i think what actually happened in this case is while orwell was 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 dying uh he um there was some sort of project that like the british version of the state department i might be getting this very slightly wrong, but I think this is at least about right, you know, was doing where they were trying to find writers to, you know, to counter, you know, Soviet influence and, you know, and, and so, you know, somebody who's working on this asked him for advice about who would be good for the project uh, and 
uh, he, you know, and, and I think at that point, you know, he was he was trying to remember, you know, and, and he he mentioned like, you know, he had like a private diary that he asked somebody to go get for him. You know, he said, okay, here's some people who I don't think would be appropriate, you know, because I, I think they're fellow travelers. So I, I don't think you should ask them to participate in that. So I, I think that they really, the dramatic consequences of naming names in the context like McCarthyism doesn't apply to this, where you can criticize them, and I think you should, is the fact that he's somebody who had a political position about the Cold War such that he would have been asked that question in the first place, right? Like, uh, in other words, uh, this is what I was saying about the, the dramatically different historical periods, that they both went wrong in one way or another, but I think in interestingly different ways, right? So um, I, I think that the way that Orwell went wrong by that point in his career, I mean, you know, he, he never became a right-winger. He was very much a supporter of the Labor Party and the era when the Labor Party was actually its most radical who's doing things like nationalizing the coal mines and creating the nhs uh and you know so he was you know a much more moderate socialist than he'd been in the 30s but still definitely a socialist uh but uh you know he was sufficiently afraid of the soviet union that even though he did have a few places where he sort of said we need something like what would ultimately become the eu to balance out american power uh still he was he was willing to sort of throw in his lot, you know, with the United States, you know, because he was, he was so concerned, uh, I, I think in a really exaggerated way, you know, about, uh, about the Soviet Union, you know, I don't know, winning the Cold War. Uh, and, and I think, I think that was, I, I think that was a, a bad mistake, right? I think if you look at things that happened since, since Orwell died, uh, I, I think Noam Chomsky always got it right when he said that the Soviet Union was a regional gangster, but the United States was a global gangster. Right. That uh, you know that like within the Soviet sphere of influence in, in Eastern Europe, it would sometimes you know do things like you know sending the troops to you know to 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 crush you know local governments that had gotten too independent or introduce certain democratic reforms, but they really had no aspirations beyond anything but that sort of buffer zone in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, to protect themselves against, um, you know, what they saw as Western imperialist encirclement. You know, that was like Stalin and his successors, what they thought they'd learned from World War II. Um, Talk to me if you could. This is really interesting. This is I can't re- wait to read your book. Uh, I haven't gotten to it yet. The moral arc of the leftist universe, because uh, Orwell you say was a socialist or at least a supporter of the labor? Yeah, 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 definitely. But what what changes? Is the the Spanish Civil War, does that that sort people out? What what happens if the Spanish, I'm going to, Ethan Hershenfeld is early. I'm going to, he's he's distracting me, so I'm going to turn his video off. He's in red notice, by the way, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I think that the Spanish Civil War is an important part of the story with uh, with Orwell. Um, so I, I mean, I, I think that uh, just to just to recap really quickly for anybody who's unfamiliar with this, yeah, uh, and you know during the civil war in spain when you know you know franco was you know rebelled against the spanish republic and and there were all these international volunteers who went to fight in spain and this is all you know part of the context of franco rebelling is that spain to a certain extent was undergoing you know a a left-wing you know revolution and and you had you know certainly cities 
you know, and, and you know, that were, uh, you know, areas that were largely taken over by, you know, some faction of, you know, radical socialists or anarchists, uh, although they did, you know, coalesce into this big popular front to try to stop Franco. Uh, but during the phase of the Spanish Civil War in which Orwell was involved, uh, beyond the sort of main army of the Spanish Republic, there were all these militias that were controlled by different political factions that were doing their part to fight the the fascists. So um, Orwell volunteered for this kind of quasi-Trotskyist militia. It was called PUM for Party of Marxist Unification in, uh, in Spain. Uh, and he actually wrote a book about it called Homage to Catalonia, which, uh, which is... You can slow down you know, I mean, because this is, this is something we're going to be talking week after week about going into no, the new year. So you can, you can, if you want to talk about the Spanish Civil War and how it affected Orwell, I please, let, let's, there's no need to, to speed through this because we're going to be pushing your book. And this is important stuff that, so. Sure. So, so let's, so yeah, so let's do, not try to do anything but Orwell today and then maybe like right. have a little preview of how it might relate to Hitchens at the end. Right. But, uh, right. but yeah, so, um, so, Orwell wrote this book called Amish Catalonia, um, which, and this clearly the point at which Orwell writes this book is Orwell at his most radical. Um, it, it, it's, it's this, you know, ode to how, you know, in this region of Spain, uh, you know, where, um, you know, they, you know, it was, it was run, you know, by, you know, anarchists and Marxists and, you know, and, and all of that. And, you know, workers had taken over, you know, all of these businesses and um, and the and he's even, you know, he's even pretty cavalier. In fact, even Christopher Hitchens, as much as Hitchens hated religion, uh, says that uh, Orwell was too cavalier about this, you know, about the sort of way they'd like burn churches. And, you know, and, See, Hitchens, and who, who said Mother Teresa should you know, is burning in hell. He offended Hitchens. Yes, wow. <laughs> yes, that's because uh, you know because Orwell's position was look, the Catholic Church is on the side of the fascists, so you know, fuck them. Uh, like, like you can shoot all the priests you want, and I'm for it. You know, wow. but um, and and, he, and that was that was that was a little too far even for Hitchens. You know, even though he idolized Orwell and obviously hated religion, but uh, right. uh, but yeah, so. Uh, so this is so this is like Orwell, his most flamingly revolutionary. You know, his position in the in the book is that uh, you could only stop you know you could only stop fascism by by having a socialist revolution. If you stop short of that, you're just going to be letting fascism back in the back door anyway. Right. Uh, and but of course, this was very far from the position of uh, the Soviet Union. You know, the Communist Party of Spain, etc. Right? That those. Those forces thought that people like the Pum, you know, this this kind of semi-Trotskyist, you know, militia that uh, that Orwell was part of, people like the the anarchist militias in Spain, you know, etc. They thought that these guys were like wreckers, that they they were um, that they were trying to um, that they were trying to like prematurely you know, wage revolution in ways that would actually get in the way of defeating the fascists in Spain. And that it was, it was actually really important to, to stop that. That was the, the Moscow position at the time. And, uh, and because the Soviet Union was really the only power that was um, giving guns and money to the Spanish Republic at that point, like FDR, I think, wanted to, but, you know, Congress wouldn't let him. Um, so given that, the... Uh, 
you know, obviously, you know, Stalin's views had a lot of sway, you know, even be, you know, even beyond the sort of natural influence of the Communist Party in Spain. Right. And, um, and and eventually, like they really cracked down in a, in a pretty vicious and ugly way on, you know, groups like the one that Orwell was 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 part of. And, you know, he, he saw that crackdown happening in Spain. And that that's really what, you know, turned him much harder than he had been before. You know, I mean, you know, against the uh, the Soviet Union, because, you know, because he says in that book that when he first showed up to Spain, he would have been just as happy to, to join like the main army. In fact, that was kind of his plan at the time. It's, you know, it's really just that this is like the first recruiter he ran into. And, you know, and, and the difference really didn't matter to him as long as he was fighting the fascists. Uh, he was good. Uh, but seeing the way that um, that, you know, they were really bringing like the well, what would become the KGB back then it was called the GPU into Spain and and um, and and you know killing you know people at you know at the sort of final stage of this crackdown and and really viciously cracking down on it uh, really convinced him uh, you know that was like the first big you know I don't want to oversimplify his his trajectory here but you know my my impression is that that's like what really convinced him that uh, the Soviet Union was was bad news to a much greater extent than he might have thought before. Um, there's a there's a good book. There's a good movie, by the way, that's um, it's you know, it, it doesn't you know, it doesn't like call the character George Orwell or anything. And, you know, and it's, it's it's not quite, but it's at least obviously somewhat inspired by the Orwell book. Uh, it's a Ken Loach movie. It's called Land and Freedom. Um, you know, people want to uh, want to check that out. Uh, but hey, where does it uh, take yeah. place? What's that? Land and freedom takes place where? Oh yeah, land and freedom takes place in the Spanish Civil War. It's it's okay. a it's a it's a story about a British volunteer in Spain who follows somewhat the same trajectory that that Orwell did uh, in real life. Uh, I mean, fictional character, but you know, it's like I said, it's it's. Well, let me ask you a question because we're, we're yeah we're 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 almost out yeah, of time. I, 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 I should I should just say really quickly that Christopher like, Hitchens in Iraq. Yeah, right. Well, this is the yeah, and that's a big subject. It's what a lot of the book is about. Uh, but you know, is is how how somebody who who started out with like you know most of what he wrote about politics for the first like thirty years of his career, I agree with. There's some important exceptions. We can get into those, but you know, but but most of it, I I agree with, and it's very well said. So so how is it that he ended up in this place where he was actually willing to, you know, support like the worst thing that the United States has done in, you know, decades. Um, he began to view, I think, Islamo, the term Islamo fascism. I think he's Christopher Hitchens saw something in Islam that Orwell saw in communism. Is that fair? Um, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, or, or really not even what Orwell saw in communism, but presumably in religion, you know, what what Orwell saw. I mean, Hitchens's view in the last years of his life. Uh, and and you could say if you want to trace a line from Orwell, that's like a bad line. Right. You know, that's like a you know, way that Orwell influenced him in a bad direction. This would be it. Right. That he that 
he saw um you know that like totalitarianism per se was the problem uh and he had this kind of view that religion was like the primordial fount of all of all totalitarianism uh and uh, and so it all had to be combated uh both in the sort of american evangelical varieties right one of hitchens most memorable lines is you know when he was on sean hannity you know hannity and Combs, and you know was never invited back when he said the day after jerry falwell died that falwell had been so full of shit that if they'd given him an enema they could have buried him in a matchbox (laughs) (laughs) uh we're going to continue on this i you know i I don't mean to uh sure 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 i don't mean to brat go ahead and i'll tell you yeah yeah there's, there's there's a lot to say here i would just i would just say that um you know, there's a if, if you want a good sense of Orwell's political trajectory, um, not quite by the time he got to the point we were talking about earlier, but, you know, certainly well along the way. You know, there's a classic essay he wrote in 1946 called um, Why I Write, uh, where, you know, he says um, the uh, here's a line, the Spanish War and other events, 1936 to 37, turned the scale. And thereafter, I knew where I stood. Every line of serious work that I've written since 1936 has been written directly or indirectly against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism, as I understand it. Um, now, that's Orwell. I think that I think that in Hitchens' case, the reason why I said what sort of went wrong with Hitchens is, is different from what went wrong with Orwell. I think that a big part of his I think a big part of the story here has to be Hitchens giving up over the course of the 90s on the idea that any sort of socialism was ever going to happen, uh, even though that had been previously what he dedicated his life to. But as you say, lots to, to cover here. This is probably right. what we can get to. We're going to be do, we're going to be talk if you'll come back. Uh, and we're going to focus on Christopher Hitchens into the new year with your segment. Be, uh, I don't one of the one of the reasons life is unfair is I got to meet Christopher Hitchens several times and I don't think you did. No, no, certainly yeah, not. This is the, this is one of the things. One of the most unfair things is that Triumph the Insult Comic Dog gained access to candidates that regular journalists could not. And Christopher Hitchens, in my previous life on the Dennis Miller show, for it was yeah. a frequent guest. Speaking of people who became fascists, the, uh, Dennis yeah. Miller, and literally, you know, but what. Working for Dennis was great, and I, I'm not a star effer, but when there was somebody I wanted to meet, I yeah. exercised what little influence I had. So I used to hang out in the dressing room with Christopher Hitchens. I would, we'd get him his scotch. I think it was scotch, and he really yeah, yeah. Johnny Johnny Walker Black, right? That's yeah. that's what he drank, and he re- and he chain smoked, and I couldn't believe how much he was capable of ingesting before he went on, and. I literally sat at his feet and asked him questions. One of the things he said to me before, this was before 2001. I, I mm. it, it was uh, around the time of the, intif- the second intifada. I said, so mm-hmm. what did we do about Israel? And he said, I hope I, I'm, he was drinking. Yeah. <laughs> He said, you bomb the Temple on the map. Just level all these, re- level all these uh-huh. 
uh, buildings. Yeah, yeah. Just get just go in there with the military, destroy all the 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 Jewish, the Christian, and the Islamic buildings, and your problems in Israel will be over. Yeah, that's that's that's. I, I mean, I I've, I mean, it's a fun line. I kind of see that as Hitchens is most ridiculous. Right. Uh, although there, I, I I think there is a uh, I think there is an interesting story to to tell about. That's uh, an unfair. Views, but, I you know, I feel guilty because he did say that to me, but he said it in a dressing room. It wasn't for public consumption, yeah, and, I mean, and he I mean, had I mean, been consuming. I mean, I mean, you, have, you, have, you have no trouble convincing me that that's something he might say, right? But I don't know if that's time. something. I don't know if that's something I should have. But anyway, uh, yeah. well, I'm, 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 gl- I'm glad you did. I, I always like yeah. those stories, but yeah, I think there is an interesting story to tell about his views about Palestine, but some future installment. Yes, Ben Burgess. The name of the book is. Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, why he still matters. Hold that up uh, because is, I'm about to buy it. Hold it up closer to the monitor, please. Christopher Hitchens, that's a beautiful cover. Christopher yeah, Hitchens, what to, he got uh, right. Hang on for one. Let me plug this because I'm about to buy it. And I'm not hinting that you should send send it to me uh, like you did every other book you've written. Uh, I'll buy it myself. I will send it to you if you want. No, 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 I'll yes. buy it. No, 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 no. Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why it still matters by Ben Burgess. Buy this book. I haven't read it. I can't endorse it. I haven't read it. But I can tell you to buy Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, as well as Give Them an Argument. And I can also tell you to listen to Give Them an Argument. It is state of the art on every level. And I can tell Professor Ben Burgess do you want Catherine Liu's phone number? Virtual uh, orders. Yeah. Sure, yeah. No, I, I think it'd be fun to talk to Catherine Liu. She is amazing. We should have Professor. Good. Thank you. I hope to see you next week. Professor. All right, comedian. Thank you. I see Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, who was missing, and we have Ethan. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Follow me on Twitter. Friend me on Facebook. When we come back, we will be joined by the Hershenfelds. No. No. I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Pig for love. My appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Thank you.
ladies claim that my lips are delicious. Others won't come close because they think I'm suspicious. Please pardon me if I'm somewhat repetitious, like a hand in a glove. I'm a pig for love. What's up, Dad? How you doing? How's it going? Welcome back. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Were you singing? Uh, there's Ethan Hershenfeld. Can you turn your video on or do I have to turn you on? You should record. You should record with Professor Mike Steinel. I would love to. That would make a, uh, a great. Now, uh, joining us, let me give you gentlemen a proper introduction. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. Ethan Hershenfeld is a comedian. And Hello. Are you about to go on, sir? No, I just finished shooting. I was shooting an episode today of a TV show. I had a gig. It's this uh, CBS Bull. show called Bull. Yeah. So, so where are you? We just, I'm in the dressing room at the studio. The studio is out in Ridgewood, uh, Ridgewood, which is like on the border of Queens and Brooklyn. And that's where all their sets are and the dressing rooms. So we shot today and I just finished it timed out perfectly. And they have very good Wi-Fi. Are you wet? I'm a bit schwitzed. I get schwitzed because I get excited to see you and to see the doctor. I'm schwitzing. Maybe I should. Yeah. And because no, you know what? heat is on they don't care about you know this was something my dad had in common with jimmy carter back in the day he was all about keep the house like 66 68 put on a sweater right what are we doing here we're still just burning all of this fossil fuel it's insane we don't need it i'm yes meanwhile i have a sweatshirt on that's not smart right so doctor do you remember my harangue my constant harangue um turn off the lights yeah you're making. Oh, I, you said, yeah, like we were supporting Saudis rich. Yeah, you're making the Saudis rich. That was his uh, his mantra. Yeah. Right, right. Doctor Hershenfeld. I, earlier yeah. in the show, I came up with a a subtitle, a, a log line for for my show, America's Grandpa. That I I think that I should call myself America's Grandpa because I. I'm not responsible for my opinions, but I can tell people how to behave, how to raise. I, I think grandparenting, what role does a grandparent play in human development? There is a carelessness that comes with being a grandparent because you can opine and say things and then the parents, if it's, you know, if everybody's alive, the parents can serve as moderators of what information is being handed down from grandpa. How important are grandparents in the development of a, 
a, a, a child? They, they can be extremely important for the good or not for the good. And if they opine too much and stick their nose in places where they shouldn't be, that's not so much for the good. If they are supportive of the parents in a genuine supportive way, and if they provide a, an emotional connection with the grandchildren, which is not as hot and heavy as it is between parent and children. And I can give you an example of that that I just ran across today. Um, <clears throat> they can be a, a wonderful emotional buffer. You see this young man here? Yes. Who is so, such a wonderful, talented, um, everything. And, and don't so, forget Ethan. Ethan's also here. Yeah, Ethan's here too. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we seem to have a very good relationship, right? Mm -hmm. I ran. In fact, no. In fact, it's a disaster. See, that's <laughs> the magic of TV. I don't know what were you going to say. I ran across a little note he, he wrote to me at age six or seven that I can't. I think I know the note. <laughs> it says, fucking F-U-K-E-N, fucking daddy. <laughs> I hope you live a disgusting life. <laughs> I think Your I gave son, it. I found it a number of years ago and gave it to you. I thought, that's, yeah. Now I would have written back. You can't yeah. like a That's a bad choice of words. Disgusting life. That's kind of that implies that yeah, you're not necessarily enjoyed. unhappy. Like right. disgusting is how other people would view my life. But I may right, be like, happy. So you might want to come up with a better word than disgust. I would have noted it. And handed it I back was, and say, write it again. Right. I was I was six. I was not much of a reader. <laughs> or a writer, for that matter. <laughs> well, you got to read first before you can write. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also wanted to point out, by the way, I, if I never apologized uh, for, for handing you that note, um, I still don't. No, I'm <laughs> no, I didn't apologize. I'm sure I deserved it. I have no Please doubt. Accept. I've no doubt that I deserved it. Okay. Wow. Um, let bygones be bygones. What I want to say about grandparents is they can be, I wanted to pick up on something that the, the good doctor was saying, which is that in the case of a grandparent to grandchild relationship that is supportive and loving, that can come in extremely handy in, in the event of an air disaster where the parents are lost. Because that it's rare that all all those generations are together on the airplane. So it's the grandparents. It's good to have them kind of right. in the on deck in case of the air. Just good point. Yes. Right. So I have a fantasy of how I would be grandparenting. In fact, I'm thinking of adopting grandchildren. I'm thinking okay. of just going out and getting grandchildren without having to go through my kids as intermediaries, because I'm not sure they would allow me to grandparent. I think I would make a great grandparent because 
I would sit at the head of the table and pass judgment on everybody and tell everybody what they're doing wrong and how they have to think and how they have to behave. But I would do it over the top so I would lose all credibility, but there would still be a germ of truth in what I'm saying so that on the ride home, my, my kids could say to my grandkids, Grandpa, he's out of his mind, but he was right about Nixon. That he was right about. The stuff oh. about shooting anybody who voted for Nixon, that's over the top. But he is right about Nixon. Uh, but, to, you know, and that to me is that's a Jewish grandfather, isn't it? I think you should be kept away from anyone <laughs> under 25. But isn't that basically a, a Jewish grandfather? Because my, my grandparents were immigrants and I didn't really get to have Stop. them. Some. My my father's father had a uh, I, one of my great memories of him. He had a, a, a beautiful Chrysler. The, this Chrysler was sort of gold colored with, I think, a black top. And it was about 32 feet long and it had a very big trunk. And you put the key in in the back where there was like an eagle. There was sort of a logo of an eagle. And you, that was the trunk. And in the trunk there, he had like a, a few six packs of Schlitz. <laughs> Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, he had like warm schlitz. Oh, he was an auto mechanic, right? Yeah. He, he would fix he fixed the springs on the bottom. It was a little bit specialized, right. but yeah, he yeah, right. but that was a, a good memory. He would he would keep schlitz yeah. or local Wilkesbury beer, uh Stegmeyer. It was Gibbons, yes. Yeah, but it was maybe it was Gibbons. It was cans of I think lukewarm beer in the and he was also, he was a very good joke teller. I think he's actually a really good example of how a grandparent can be excellent because apparently he, maybe in, in certain ways, he wasn't a great dad, but he was kind of a great granddad, a super, an, ex, an excellent granddad because he was very generous. He always had a joke. He mm -hmm. was very playful. He liked to kibitz. He was like a, he, he had an, a kind of absurdist streak. And that's perfect for a grandparent, but that's not necessarily the greatest um, quiver of of, uh, of traits for, for a, a parent who should be there and be on top of things all the time. See, I didn't have, both my grandfathers were escaping pogroms that they probably caused themselves. They, kept, they come to America and they say, welcome to America. Guess what? You're going back to Europe. Here's a gun. You're going to go fight. In war. And they, so they all, both my grandparents fought in World War One, And one came back. His lungs were ravaged by mustard gas when he ordered uh, something about a joke <laughs> about mustard. I don't know. Uh, I ordered a side of coleslaw gas. Anyway, so I, and he died when I was a kid. I didn't really know him. Uh, and then my other grandfather had Parkinson's disease. So it was not I didn't have a strong like a grandfather. And, and I always had this fantasy that there'd be a grandfather who would say, you know, your your parents are idiots just between you and me. Like, just, you know, listen to them. Oh, but, but I you're both your parents are idiots. That's the role of a grandparent. Just, you know, obey your parents, but they're idiots. Yeah, right. And they went there. He wet his bed till he was 15. <laughs> um, David, I'm thinking maybe this, the, 
instead of America's granddad, how about America's step granddad? <laughs> it makes me more emotionally available if it's a even step. Le- yeah. Even more attenuated, just less responsibility. There is an old joke. Why do grandparents and grandchildren get along so well? Because <clears throat> they have a common enemy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, I want to ask you about luck because it's December. Luck, luck, Sorry. Somebody in the chat room said Ethan looks like he's in a detention center. It's so funny that they said that because when I was having a lunch here, you know, we went over that you get your little to go lunch and I'm sitting here. It really feels like it's in the exact dimensions of a cell. See, I'll show you, though. There is the name like. The character is on the door. Robert so the Woods. Name of the character is on the door, but then besides that, it's very—it's the exact dimensions I think of a either a freshman dorm room or or a detention center. Like, yeah, it's an ICE detention facility. It's that. And this dimension. is Robert Wood, I believe, was one of uh, a president of CBS at one time. I wonder if they're as yeah. I wonder if I think I'm Woods. Let me check the door again. Do you have my name? Oh yeah, I'm Woods. Okay. Yeah. Luck. This is, I want to ask you about luck, gambling, depression, and casinos, because there's a bill before Congress right now that would pretty much make Indian casinos, would allow them to spread throughout the country. And of course, the uh, you know, casino operators are against this. They they don't. Las Vegas and Atlantic City doesn't want. They don't want to dilute their business. It's December. The there are times when I feel lucky. I, I remember there's a scene uh, in uh, the movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis that Kevin Costner was in, and they said uh, after they avoided. Bull Durham, yes, with Susan Sarandon. No, uh, it's not 13 days, but it's it came out. It's, it's Kevin Costner. Uh, he, he, he plays Kenny O'Donnell in uh, and it's a it's a pretty detailed uh, representation of what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And after it was all settled, I think uh, McNamara says to Bundy or somebody says, we're on a roll. Let's roll the tables now. This is where we can make a deal with Khrushchev on missiles in Germany. You know, we can like we're we're on a lucky streak. And I remember seeing that movie. It came out in 2001. And I thought that's kind of interesting when that's a good lesson for life. When you're on a lucky streak, ask for things like like if, if things feel good. You know, apply for more jobs, you know, call up comedy club owners and, you know, ask for work, ask for things when you feel lucky. That's mm-hmm. how I view that, that they that there are strings of luck. I do. I, and I've I, noticed I, that in life that there are I go through lucky streaks. I think I think any statistician. By the way, that was the one subject in math I could never get my head around, statistics. And what are the odds of that, that you couldn't be good at statistics? Anybody know what the odds are of that? I, it's so funny you said that. I actually had a joke very similar to that about how bad I said I was good in math, but bad, bad at statistics. 
batted probability. What are the odds? I mean, I literally had that. Really? Yeah, we we have very. What are the odds that I saw Thug Thug Jew and accidentally stole it? No, no, no. Is it in Thug Thug Jew? I don't think it's in there. Oh, okay. No, it's not. I think I left it out. Okay. I think. Anyway, listen, um, it's an illusion. Any statistician will tell you there's no such thing as, as luck. There's no such thing as a streak. There's simply random events. And then in with hindsight, you, you can attribute uh, patterns. Uh, you can look at you can find patterns looking backwards. Yeah, I think I heard a, a sports statistician um, debunking that idea, which is so prevalent among announcers. He's due for a hit. He's due for a hit. No one's ever due for anything. Uh, you're going to get a hit or you're not. It's that whole thing with like uh, when you flip the coin. Each time the chances are 50-50, even though you feel like you're due. However, 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 if you believe that you're on a lucky streak. Exactly. It gives you uh, some added confidence in yourself that may promote your chances of whatever it is you're going to try to do next like go for a job interview or bomb the Soviet Union. <laughs> you, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, it, it's exactly that. It's the perception of the, the random events coupled with the emotional effect of your perception, which then can lead to behaviors that actually will right. promote feel is, is your luck. Absolutely. That, that is what happens. Yeah. And so when they say count your blessings... In a way that is motivating you to see a pattern of happiness, like the, uh, of a lucky streak, that if you literally look at you, you say, what do I have to be grateful for? Uh, you see a pattern that's int- that, that. So how does yeah. I'm going to turn Emil off, if you don't mind. Welcome. He's coming up at seven. Thank you, Emil. Uh so that leads me to gambling, which I think of all the vices, it is the, the most. The only one that comes with free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> well, prostitution. I mean, if you go to a bordello, they throw in the drinks, I think. I, I haven't worked at one for years, but. Yeah. To me, gambling is the most pernicious because it's been normalized. And, and I was in a- I was in a, uh, my dollar coffee place this morning, like an idiot. I got the $5 coffee at this one place and a chocolate croissant. Then a few minutes later, I found myself in the bodega getting the $1 coffee and a, and a roll. So I had both the, in any case, there were, there was a line, there was a woman in front of me who was just doing her regular buying of that lottery ticket. And then another woman behind, and they were really going over in the details. Did you get my regulars? Did you get, and I thought this is legalized government executed crime this and you said actual- i'm i have a role you want to be on a role i just ordered a role i don't yeah. have a joke there i'm sorry yeah. that was bad yeah. I, yeah. I took a I, I risked it and i failed i had no, a role that, joke it's a tax on the poor that's what the lottery is it's an extra yeah. tax on the poor but I, it is, but it's it is cruel in a country that has no social safety net. It is absolutely grotesque to watch people throwing their cash. I mean, there's a million other things that you could you could buy. You know, buy a seat, buy a buy, buy a bond, 
do something with the money, but you know, buy a book. This, this, the lottery really should be illegal. Right. And then you, you have this new phenomenon of, and I, I love Patton Oswald, but he's doing commercials for, is it Caesar's sports book? And then you have Ben Affleck, who, according to the gossip pages, is a degenerate gambler. What I've read is that one of the reasons Jennifer Gardner uh, divorced him is because he's a degenerate gambler and he's doing commercials for. But he. But he but he he owns that insurance company, though, right? Affleck. Oh, oh, that's Affleck. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's different. Um, Uh, I I don't like to I don't want to be that kind of person who would cast aspersions on someone in the same field but and that's, like, and that's why we have like i love Patton oswald he's been good by, like i like this he was one of the first people to support this podcast but i he's doing commercials for for yeah. sports books you know i, I can't was, i was simply going to say that Affleck's. i mean Affleck's acting in that in that math movie with Matt, it was so horrible. His acting was horrible. It's shocking me that that guy became good. Uh, you're talking about Goodwill Hunting. Yes, yes, right. the, the math movie. Anyway, how many scenes, like the the scenes between Robin and Matt Damon, did that remind you of your father? Did you know having a shrink was Where, was that? Oh, Robin Williams. Oh, that. Yeah. You know what? It is funny. Those all those shrink movies. As the kid of a shrink, the one that really stood out was Ordinary People. Judd, Judd Hirsch. Hirsch. I was, yeah, Judd Hirsch. And there's a hug. There's a hug, and there's that sort of. And then Robin Williams has that hug moment. It's not your fault. And I think I had internalized the uh, ethos of of my father's clan of shrinks, which is you know it's it's much it's much more. There, there would be none of that. So that always struck me as really false. But in retrospect, there very well might be shrinks who do that. Like John Hirsch. And- there are. And recently there was a discussion online of the American Psychoanalytic Association. And somebody raised the question, um, what movie therapy uh, is your favorite? And a very well-respected guy said, uh, the relationship in goodwill hunting is my favorite all-time favorite therapy relationship and i often watch it just to get rejuvenated you know the great moment for me is when robin williams gets really aggressive because matt damon is being really cheeky and mm-hmm. hyper cerebral and then he makes a, a, a crack about about his wife it turns out she's dead sorry about the spoiler but robin williams then he threatens he, he really threatens him almost with murder. I can't remember what he says. Like, I'll, you know, I'll end you. I think that's his line. I'll end you, which is different than, I'm sorry, we have to end for today. Right. Which is what shrink. Yeah. Robin. But I, I think what people like about that interchange is that it is real. There's nothing phony about it. Well, but it is, isn't it phony in, in terms of therapy? You don't, I don't think, frequently get a therapist threatening the patient's life. Uh, it's not. It's 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 not in the playbook of prescribed <laughs> techniques. But are you? Have you threatened? <laughs> have you, are you telling us here that 
that you did you threaten the patient today? <laughs> I don't often get viscerally angry at a patient, but I once did many, many years ago of someone who was in a certain situation, um, a very nice, you know, thoughtful person, and somebody shows up with a gun. And this person confronts the person with the gun. And I yelled at her, probably because it scared me. And I yelled at her, guns are not the business of doctors. Guns are the business of cops. So stay the fuck away from people with guns. Oh, somebody and had brought a gun to a, into a certain situation. And the shrink and thought she could deal with somebody holding a gun. Yeah. Right. And then it's ironic that in getting angry at her, you then pulled your gun up. <laughs> two yeah. wrongs, two wrongs, two Lugers. Uh Robin will, I will wrap it up, but it's interesting about Robin. He, he did something and he didn't always succeed at it, but he went, he was willing to risk mosh, mawkish sentimentality, which is, you know, like Chaplin, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and you, when you, it, it, it takes real courage to, uh, be willing to fall into mawkish sentimentality because some, most of the time you're going to fail at it. But when you succeed, you you know, uh, and and that I always feel lucky that I came out of the San Francisco comedy community because it was Robin's community. He kind of, you know, pat, you know, you just wanted to, whatever. It, it, he just had, and it was okay. I, I, it was okay to fail. The, the um, thing about um, failure is nobody sees when you fail, nobody sees it. If you make a bad movie, if you write a bad television script, the beauty of failure is it, nobody sees it. So you can fail. You can, if you make something that's horrible, you write a bad song, nobody's going to hear it. So write it. Go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, I was simply going to say, someone put it in the comments. Ed Poets Society is the, right. I think the high point of that whole, what you're talking about. It's so moving and so beautiful and so heartfelt. And in a way, you could say over the top, but it's it's just absolutely right. beautiful. Yeah. That was uh, a friend of my father's name, Bob, used to say to me, what are you afraid of? If you fail, nobody's going to see it. I like it. Then again, if you do it, but then if you're a comedian and you have a spot on the Tonight Show, they're going to see it. There's like, it's gonna, never again. Never again. They're never going to see me again. On yeah. yeah. Anyway, Doctor Hershenfeld. Wait, wait. I would, I would like to second um, Doctor Burgess's recommendation of homage to Catalonia. It's an amazing book. Okay. And Orwell was an amazing human being. And we're going to get him on the show to promote his book. Get him on the show. Yes. We will. That would. Oh. Yeah. 
Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. Are there any charities? This is the season. Are there any uh, organ? You don't have to. I don't want to put you on the spot. Uh, PETA. This is a, a PETA T-shirt sent to me by a friend. It says, si no es tu mamá, no es tu leche. If it's, if it's not your mother, it's not your milk. So it's a vegan. It's promoting veganism. It's very cute. P-E-T-A. Even if you're not vegan, to aspire to it and to do that a few days a week, you're helping a lot. So, peace. yeah. Okay. Uh, next week, Dr. Hershenfeld, if you can think of a uh, a charity that you want to promote. The David Feldman Show. <laughs> well said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, nobody here is making a uh, million dollars a year. The highest, I think the highest we pay uh, our digital vice president is 750 grand a year. And then the we have a woman who's in charge of our membership drives. She gets a million. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, you're listening to the David Feldman show. David Feldman. It would be great if this show uh, were, you know. Uh, anyway, Dan, do you want to do community billboard? I have Emil here. I lost track of everything today. I have Emil here. Hello, Emil. Good to see you. There's. I did. You know, I always get inspired by the Hershenfelds. You know, you're talking about gambling. And uh, I, I must confess, I was, for a period, a degenerate gambler. Now you're just and a degenerate. Well, that is sort of like the word that sort of goes with gambler when people want to either brag or, you know, or like, you know, admit that they were gambling. You know, it's it's a it's a word that uh, just often comes up to associate with gambling. And I just think that, you know, it's easy to put down gambling. It's hard. But if you have been in the throes of the gambling uh you know, it's really an addiction, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just feel it. And after a while, you, you don't even care if you win. You, you just want to throw your money out there because you want to be in action, right? You want to, you, you feel charged by the possibility, David, that anything can happen, that you can be, you know, that this $5 or however much you're, you're betting could, could be, could, could go on a, a 10 to one or a 15 to one. I, I was, I was on horses. This is before I met my wife, before I met my wife. Cause I, I no, this is, I'm not going, uh, must <laughs> hang on. Yeah, no, nope, nope, not going to, no, nope. my wife saved me. My wife saved me. And I was Dan? only, Dan, I was, <laughs> no, I was, no, you, you, no, Dan, Dan used to be on, no, Dan was under horses. He was I'm under sorry. horses. <laughs> <I'm> sorry, <laughs> David. I'm going to make it to the end tonight. So no, no, no. What's what's what I'd like to do is let's do community billboard with if 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 because we're we're only let's with we'll do it with Emil. Okay. Yeah, I, I like yeah. the community. Yeah, Because I, I, yeah. I, I, I in Norway. I, yeah. Uh, because Emil's an old friend and you're a friend and we can, uh, do you know Dan Frankenberger who runs everything here? Who's in charge? Of course. Anything of course. that goes wrong is his fault. You do know that. 
I know that. I, I, I know someone to blame. I, 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 I like Dan. I mean, I, any, I cannot oil, tell you. Look at the way he's such a pretentious. Look at the way he dresses. He's just so. I mean, you, with the beret. <laughs> yeah. And this black scarf. He's just reinvented himself. He's just taken on this character that it's and, and it just makes it so easy to want to now. Dan, uh, I've always been this way. <laughs> oh, the scarf and the beret. And yeah. The, oh, and the pipe. The pipe. And the pipe. I, I, I don't have a pipe. I have a microphone. Yeah. I, instead of a pipe. Yeah. Uh, well, I sent you. A, I sent you a couple of pictures, David. Yes, I did, and and um, and, and you're much uh, better looking the, with that the beret and this. I was going to make it. I'm not going to do the joke. Uh, hey, Dan, so, tell us about office hours this week. Um, this week on, on a Friday at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern, we have office hours and hours coming up, and that is a 24-hour event that usually ends up being 30, 36, 40-ish hours. So you can go to davidfeldmanshow.com and uh, click the office hours link to sign up for that. And I have a few uh, plugs to read as David's yep. pulling up the pictures here. Well, let's just talk about office hours very quickly because we had a meeting last night. Joe in yep. Norway, who is here right now, was, I think, was way past his bedtime. Uh, but I wanted to thank everybody for showing up for office at the meeting for office hours. And I understand that there are still some openings if somebody wants to teach or host a segment on office hours, there are still openings correct because it's 24 right. hours for for office hours we uh typically have half hour segments and for office hours and hours which is uh the first friday of every month and it goes for 24 hours uh scheduled right um there's one hour slots so if you want to teach or talk about something um lately professor john has been doing twilight zone episodes where fantastic. we watch fantastic yeah it's awesome yeah, so if you're just new to this show, we have new listeners all the time. Every Friday night at 8 p.m., we do a thing called Office Hours. You need Zoom. That's all you need. Go to my website, hit Office Hours, and it'll take you to the the entry page, and you just fill it out, and you're in. No passwords required. I host the first hour of Office Hours at 8 p.m., and then at 9 p.m., it's turned over to the community. They run it by themselves. We have moderators. I cannot tell you how satisfying. Uh, and Emil and his wife have... That's why I wanted to do this with Dan. It was very yeah. satisfying, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, you know, I... I can't do it this week, but in the next hours and hours and hours, that, that's what I like because I'm on the West Coast, but I'm going to try, I'm going to try some, I'm going to justify my meditation without you telling me that I'm actually doing something immoral. You know, yeah. Some, Narcissistic. Some kind of autoeroticism or something. Yeah. Emil and I have, we, maybe we should stage a debate, which is morally superior meditation or masturbation. I think masturbation brings you closer to the universe than meditation. I think meditation is inward, narcissistic masturbation without using any tools, without juicing 
Well, it depends if you have towelettes. With I no real leather. <laughs> I just think that meditation is the me generation. Meditation is me, 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 me. And masturbation is you, 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 you. It's us. It's inclusive. You is like sheep, you mean? That I often think of that. Oh, okay. what, to, I see. I see. No, I no, think concentrate. No, I'm being serious. I think without I, using I pornography, too. without mm -hmm. using pornography, masturbation is morally superior to meditation because you're getting yeah. out of yourself. And and so I think, unless you're using pornography, in which case that <laughs> that doesn't count as 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 the platonic ideal of masturbation. I, I just don't, I can't take this seriously. Masturbation is a prayer. It's a prayer. Oh okay. God. We'll have to <laughs> talk about Masturbation yeah. without pornography is a prayer. Whereas meditation is, is, is you're cutting yourself off from others and digging deep into the, the universe through your own prism. It's, it's, uh, it's immoral meditation. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought that if I hadn't studied, but you know, the end. See, you don't have to study, Dan. Here's the, here, see, <laughs> professional managerial class. You're getting something out of yourself. It's no, the professional no, it's manager. You got to study. You got to study. Here, here he is, Mr. Harvard. Mr. No, I'm going to no, turn no, Dave, the Reverend Dave. off. Hang on. Let me turn the Reverend off. He shouldn't hear this. The end result is that what you are universal, that you are you're one with 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 all. And you are. You know, did you go to Harvard? Who? You. Uh, yes. You I, are. I you are part of the ma professional managerial class. And you your way. You have to study to get close to God. That's no, your, no, yeah, yeah. I'm the I'm the buffer between you and God. You take my course so you can get closer to God by learning meditation. I'm telling no, you, it, folks, if you didn't go to Harvard, taking, masturbation. That the <laughs> that's the close, the shortest are distance you between you and God. Masturbation, David. What? Are you certified? Are you certified in masturbation? Because then, you, if without a certification, you have no. There no, you go. You have to. You have no standing. This is typical of the professional managerial class: the confiscation of trade. You take something that's pure and natural, like right. masturbation, and you add layers of bureaucracy and red tape onto it, so you can get your cut. Nobody okay, has to right. teach you how to masturbate. I had an uh, uncle no who really, kept trying no to, and really. I was like, it's fine. I can do this by myself. I don't need your help, Uncle Maury. But and, and, you... <laughs> it's having no him free really 40 million at a time. <laughs> what, Dan? Okay. Go All on. right. We're, we're running by... Uh, Emil, I, you're, I love you. You're, one of, you're my oldest friend here. I think I've known uh, I, you longer than John Ross. Probably, yeah. Probably. But that's all right. I don't. I don't like you know parade and, and around. You're 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 a that. better human being than I am, but you're, you're wrong about that. Looking, friend. God, you're so. <laughs> the truth is just coming out of you today. You're better than I am, but your meditation. <laughs> the, the stuff of that meditation. Veritas, you know, veritas. I don't know. The stuff of that meditation is really. Oh, hey, it's Harvard David, bullshit. David, wait, wait till I tell you about my my foray into self hypnosis. Okay, now that 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 that's right. interesting. Let's do. Uh, we have some stuff here. What is this, Dan? 
Oh, please don't tell. I thought I was going to crash the uh, computer. What is that? <laughs> oh, boy. This is coming from Hannah. And what we have coming up tonight uh, on Office Hours and Hours uh, this weekend is D's Knots. <laughs> D's Knots. <laughs> So what uh, is this? Live at live at office hours and hours, Dave and PA has a knack for finding really cool wood knots and carving them into cool things. He also has a knack for teaching people how to do cool things with cool knots. Hannah has a knack for learning things from Dave, and they'll be collaborating live at office hours on Saturday, December 4th at 5 p.m. Eastern. So come watch them look at these knots and <laughs> uh, learn about these knots, play with these knots, and find cool stuff hiding inside these knots. <laughs> that's great. Uh, a second picture to that. Yeah, let me see. That's great. These knots. Uh, there are some very uh, well-credentialed people who should not be making these nuts jokes in the chat room. People who uh, have accrued a lot of uh, debt going to getting higher educated, making these nuts jokes. What, what are, what, what's with these nuts? <laughs> well, I have a couple other quick plugs to read um, from Tom Weber. Uh, yes. He wrote me saying, Barb and I are doing a special 90-minute live stream Christmas holiday concert on December 5th from 2.30 to 4 Eastern. And um, they're doing that on Facebook. They do their uh, concerts Tuesday nights at 8. Um, so you can find that on Facebook. You can search for Tom and Barb Weber, singer-songwriters, Fair Weber, to find that event. And also uh, uh, Saturday, December 11th at 4.30 Eastern Valley Vox Theater is having another of their live Zoom movie uh, theater. What, what is the date on that? For Valley Vox? Yes. For Valley Vox, it's December 11th. Um, they say, get your jingle bells on and join them for their screening of the Finnish Christmas classic Rare Exports with special guest Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Ah. It's going to be a question and answer will follow uh period will follow the film contact them for a free zoom link at valley vox on twitter or email them uh at valleyvoxtheater.com and the theater is with re at the end ah okay so so and we always like to bring up um inviting people to check out uh ralph nader radio hour oh wait i have a picture of the pope giving jeffrey epstein communion with Ghislaine maxwell Oh, very good. You see that? Yeah. Absolution too, or just communion? Oh, well, I guess you'd have to absolve them of their sins before communion. I swear to God, I, I saw that picture. <laughs> My first reaction is, what is Jeffrey Epstein doing getting communion from the Pope? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't like this guy anymore. <laughs> okay, what else is going on? Um, that's all I got. And with the Ralph, Ralph Nader Radio Hour, I just want to remind everyone that we're uh, pushing people to check out the Congress Club. Check out the Congress Club. Yes. And if people want to promote uh, something from the community, how do they do that? Um, you can send me an email at dentfeldman at gmail.com and I'll get it up there on the show. Thank you. Dan Frankenberger, nothing gets done here without you. I appreciate it. So long. So long. I'll see. We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk. Let's meet at 730 tomorrow before office hours starts. Is that OK? I'm in. OK, because there, there's stuff we have to. Yep. OK. Thank you, Dan. Dan Frankenberger. 
Emil uh, joins us. We uh, let me alert the affiliates that we're running. I I, I think we're going to do t- uh, go ten minutes behind. Let's finish this up in twenty minutes, Emil. Is that okay? It's fine. That's fine. Dan. Yeah, we have tw- We'll do twenty minutes, and then we'll bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn at yes. eight ten, and we'll be back, sort of back on schedule. Ten ten minutes isn't. Uh, the worst thing. 20 minutes. Let's talk about what you want to talk about. I kind of. Well, I look, I just want to finish up this thing about gambling because yes. I love, I love that the Hirschenfels always bring up this, these ideas that, that you know, and, and I, I didn't realize you hated gambling so much. Yes. But here's the thing about gambling. Gambling is about people who have no hope. It gives them hope for just a second. It's, it's most often false hope you know, long odds. But this was my, I learned this from my father who came to, from the Philippines in 1928, you know, no money, you know, he comes to America for the depression. It, you know, he saw gambling to him was his way out of whatever, his predicament. And his predicament was was really vast and vast and discriminatory, you know, by, you know, you know what what America did to, those Filipinos who came over in the twenties. So I think I was able to resist for a long time, but every now and then you sort of get into that, that the excitement of it. And then it's not the hope, but it's just the excitement. And then you don't even care if you win or lose. You're just like throwing money in a hole Mm. and it's sick. It's a sickness. And a lot of smart people get into it. Yeah. Very. I know. uh, and then they they have to pull themselves out. Either it's uh, cards, or it's you know it's the poker thing came up, and everyone got into poker. Uh, horses. There are some people at Harvard that I knew who are really heavy into horses and cards and all that. And and it's sad. And what what that makes me happy. Of, anytime somebody well, from I'm Harvard, sure does, anytime yeah. somebody from Harvard fails, it. it an angel gets its wings. <laughs> well, I know uh, a handful who did fail. Good. They, uh, some angels must have gotten the wings. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so gambling. But look, let, the thing I want to talk about is well, the news this week. Is well, hang on. Let me just say something about yeah. gambling. Yeah. One third of gamblers, they say, there have been studies, one third of gamblers end up having to commit crimes. That, well, that, they, that, that the okay. pattern is and, and the suggestion is that gambling creates crime because you're broke. So you have to commit crimes. It is not a net plus when the government, yeah. the government. When when this when we deindustrialized America in 1974 mm. and stopped making things, it's no coincidence that the government turned to gambling, lotteries, and Indian casinos, and Atlantic City. Atlantic City came into being, I think, 1977, right after the deindustrialization of America. It it is to exact wealth from the middle class to pay for things in lieu of taxes. Yeah. And it's and it's 
it's, it's a form of destroying the working class and, and making them, it, preventing them from rising up. It, yeah. It's a distraction. It, it, it's like an opiate. It, it says, no, no, you, you can get lucky. You know, we've, we've transferred all this wealth to the 1%, but if you come to this casino, you too can get lucky. And this has become a country of the lucky. So that's yeah. why casinos are part of the problem. We we promulgate the idea that if you're if you win the genetic lottery and you're born, uh, you know you become Warren Buffett's kid. You won the you're entitled to money. That money is about luck, not work. And that's really what's wrong. One of the well, reasons. It's a- it's unfair. Look, it's definitely unfair. But right. a- after a while, it's unfair because people are in a um, they're not themselves. They are taken over by this addiction. And and and, where- and I worked I spent a year of my life in Las Vegas, just Las Vegas alone. There yeah. are people whose job you, you there's a level of evil. That's oh, yeah. Become mundane. It's it really is the banana the banality of evil. That is what Las Vegas is. There are men and women who put on a suit and tie and go to an office every day, and their job is to reach out to degenerate gamblers right, and bring them to the casino so they can take a mortgage, a second mortgage on their home, empty out their child's college savings it's terrible and and that's and and it looks like a respectable job that they have customer relations the real problem is that the game that they get you hooked on is rigged against the players right i mean there's a reason why in craps uh you know they you know they bar certain numbers or they put certain things certain restrictions so that the odds are always in favor of the casino. So the casino wins no matter what, but the gambler will eventually lose. If the gambler all, you know, plays, you know, and you know, all day, he will eventually lose. But it's presented. It's presented that the government is sanctioning this stuff. It used to be, it used to be the mafia that that did that. Now it's the government and they're saying we're bringing jobs to Branson yeah. because we're introducing casinos. Those are not good jobs. They're they're bad. They're they're bad jobs. The it, jobs it, it, themselves it, it, are bad and they're evil. They're evil. How about, how about this? PETA is working on trying to end the subsidy of the racetracks and the casinos in New York. Um, Why are, are animals gambling now? No, has no, it gotten no, to the point now where no, where, where, no, where no, horses are thing. betting? Here's the thing. I was into the horses before I met my wife. I was into the horses in the 70s. I didn't meet my wife till the 80s. She saved me. I had a wife, uh, my third wife, the horses were into her. It was like a Catherine. (laughs) There, I got the joke. That's a Catherine the Great joke. I think I better better on the top half of an exacta. So uh, (laughs) anyway, the uh, the, PETA is working with the state of New York to try to eliminate the subsidy that the state gives to the racetracks. And and um, the the industry is trying to say that, oh, look at these jobs. But like you said, they're lousy jobs. And uh, like, like I said, uh, it's it's not, I mean, they, they're, 
I'll have to let you know, on, on, uh, I'll have to ask my wife about where they are in the negotiation, but it's millions of dollars that the state subsidizes these tracks and the tracks are, they're, they're loser tracks. They're loser tracks. Why are we subsidizing? Well, good question. Good question. I'll, I'll have my wife come on in an office hours and explain that case because, uh, you know, that's a big uh, issue in the legislative, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the New York legislature right now. So anyway, I, I wanted to, to mention that, but there's so much news going on today. First of all, you know, like the whole SCOTUS thing with abortion. I, I really feel like, uh, you know, it's, you know, Roe v. dead, right? It's dead. It's not, it's not. And we got to prepare for the life after Roe. And that means California tourist, uh, abortion tourism, come for the sourdough, stay for the abortion. Hmm. It's, it's they're they're preparing for it now. The state is preparing to be the abortion magnet for people who need to, you know, you know, need to to exercise their right, which has been taken away from them by the Supreme Court. But that's happening. That's happening in California. And abortion you know tourism that, is what you're saying. Abortion tourism, and you know the the thing about precedent. I mean, Breyer. Made, made a good argument about what about precedent. But, you know, people who followed civil rights law know that Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned by Brown, which said that, you know, you can't have discrimination in the schools. So, you know, it, it that that was like a 55, 60 year turn. So maybe and then we're 50 years since Roe. So maybe it's 50 years that we see the, the pendulum swing. And precedents change. And it's terrible to think that we are, you know, in terms of rights, you know, uh, uh, reproductive rights first to go next. Well, we, we know what's happening with voting rights and, and, and civil rights are not sacred. They're, you know, 1964 Civil Rights Act. So maybe we're going to start seeing all of it go. And, and if all of it is, is political, because the Constitution can't be seen as this sacred document that, you know, is, you know, that is above politics. Uh, I think, you know, we're more in more trouble than 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 we we realize. And it's, um, you know, it's the con the Constitution in our democracy. You can hear in the oral arguments how. Uh, it, we were just going the other way when Kavanaugh was asking about how well he was asking the Solicitor General of Mississippi. He was saying, well, so uh, there's nothing in the Constitution about these rights. And really, the, you know, the Constitution is neutral and and it's not up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, we're going to make it up to the states. And if it's a state state's rights thing. Right. There's your basic historical theme. Uh, every state will decide what they want to do. And. Here comes, and they have been preparing in California for a kind of uh, abortion tourism uh, set up so that California becomes a place where people can. Well, play that out for me because there are rabid anti-abortion people and they, and they talk about a civil war. Mm. If you're trying to gin up religious crazies to take arms against their fellow Americans, maybe abortion uh, would be 
something that that could that could be it, it right? could, but like invading you know, California. You could get an army of Texans to invade good. to go to war with California over the sanctity to kill Californians because life is sacred. Well, you know, you have that law, too, in Texas that says if you're a Texan who goes outside to get an abortion, you can sue. So who knows what's going to happen? It's going to be crazy. We're, we're going to, you know, that bounty. It, it's I, I don't want to think, well, think about, about this for the, one second. Let, yeah. let, 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 let me process this for a second, because you said something mm. profound and disturbing that California is if they overturn Roe v. Wade, it's left to the states. Correct. Right. Right. Correct. And so we will know the red states from the blue states by their whether or by not their they abortion rights, by their abortion rights. And then you can then if you are a if you're David Rubenstein, war profiteer from the Carlisle group, right. who's in the business of selling weapons to countries and police, National Guard, doesn't it benefit, isn't it better to bring the war home if you're a war profiteer? Wouldn't wouldn't Texas invading California, a holy war, wouldn't that benefit people who have no who have no stake in this country? If you live in if you're a a, a venture capitalist you have I no state. It, it's it's in I your best interest for America to go to war against itself. Look, I just hope it doesn't go that far. But already we seem to be heading that direction when you look at uh, Lauren uh, Bo- Boebert's statements about uh, Ilan Omar. And you see there's no real effective uh, apology. I've, I, I've always said, if you apologize, you can't say... If I hurt you, I apologize to you. Uh, for everyone else who hears me and uh, thinks I'm right, hey, right on. You know, they're all suicide but, but, bombers. But just think about this for a second. It's the it's the power of money mm. over government. You don't need if you if you are a multinational like Amazon or Apple right. or ExxonMobil an insurance company, a bank, you're immune to uh, space, geography. Yeah, we, we already kind of have that. You know, right. So you, so if you're looking for people, what is more efficient than a complete breakdown in order here in the United States in terms of the police, the National Guard, just separatist fighting that would benefit the oil companies. You need oil. You need uh, it would as long, go ahead. As long as someone's making a profit, right? There's as a lot of profit in war. Why not bring it home? Why not? Why have why spend money shipping Tomahawk missiles to Saudi Arabia when we can use them on our own people? And I'm being serious. Yeah. Well, so we're, there's going to have to be a move where if corporations are doing that and corporations are persons, then we'll have to have a a movement to abort corporations. And that will make uh, right. that, that'll be a subsequent thing coming up. I, I you know, I, I just I mean, you I can fight it, a whole, you know, war, there's you got to go to war over something holy abortion. Yeah. 
you know, this will get it's a religious. It's, it's yeah. a religious war. People will take arms up against the state of California in the name of religion. And well, let's the, see what let's, let's see where the allies are. What other states? Washington, right? Oregon. That's about, that's about it. <laughs> New I, York. I, I can't, I can't. Oh, yeah. New York. Definitely New York. Maybe Nevada. Would a Nevada be pro-abortion? Uh, I don't know. I Too many Mormons. I, I, I don't know about Nevada. Arizona, you'd think, but no, I don't think so. See, I think it's very limited. Hawaii. Oh, we'll go to the Hawaiian vacation. I'm talking abortion. about I'm talking about when you look at what the far right is saying. Yeah. They are talking about a holy war, uh, a kind of uh, a kind of American jihad, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and well, we and we laugh about it, but when you look at the people who people want war just for this, you look at the people who invaded the Capitol on January six. They could be talked into anything. Exactly. Yeah, they're very very uh, uh, prone to like that guy in that FBI. A video that was released uh, he was arrested who uh he uh tasered fin uh, officer fanone he said uh this guy rodriguez i believe his name was said hey I, donald trump needed my help you know he, this is this is why i'm big on self-hypnosis now because i understand that seriously meditation leads me to self-hypnosis because you understand how how prone people are to suggestion. Yes. And the, the power of that. Because, look, you, you're a comedian, and I, have you ever performed with, with hip, hypnotists? Yes, I, and I'm prone to hypnosis. Yes. I am. I've I, been I, hypnotized. I, I believe in hypnosis because, you know, there's a lot of myths. Like, you're, you don't go under. You're totally in control. And uh, we'll have to talk about this another time. I think Elon Omar do, talked about my people's ability to hypnotize the world the, the jews didn't she say the jews have hypnotized the world was it Ilan omar i don't know if she said that hey you know a big a big moment in jewish american history the first husband there lighting the menorah yeah at, uh, in the white house yeah okay, i hope I he look. catches fire yeah here here here's one thought here's one thought about this holy war that you're talking doug about you talking about doug m off the los angeles lawyer right right that guy that, that guy piece first, of shit. first First uh, spouse or whatever. Uh, I know you don't like him. I, I don't. I don't like what his him. law firm does. Well, yeah. Well, see, he he's a lawyer. He's a Hollywood lawyer, which means there's a history of anti-labor. Yeah. Abuse. That's Go ahead. True. That's true. Hollywood That's lawyer. True. OK, look, a, a couple of things I want to get through. So, you know, I saw Biden today on this uh, uh, Omicron uh, thing, yeah. the, the Omicron war. You talk about holy war. This is the war we're at. We don't need the made-up holy war that we were just talking about for 15 minutes. We are in a war against COVID. And in his statements this week, he keeps talking about the patriotism and, you know, you know how it's important to be in this war. I think he needs to, to sell vaccination as, you know, join the COVID war, but don't go into it without a gun. Get vaccinated. That's going to convince the Republicans, because you're talking about the split between right and, you know, the blue and the red states. Uh, CNN did an analysis that showed that you have a 50 percent greater chance of dying if you're in a red state. 
there's there's the division. We're already in that war. But people should, you know, we're in the war against the virus. Get your gun. Get vaccinated. That That's my message when I do my show on the Internet, because the only reason why I should do a show on the Internet is because I balance out all the, the anti-vaxxers and all the misinformation folks. I know you don't like to have people who aren't, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, the reverend's wife, the reverend's wife should be the only one here talking about. Right. People who know about vaccines and all that. Okay. Look, I got a couple other things in the time remaining uh, to talk about. World AIDS Day was this week on Wednesday. And we were both in San Francisco at at the time when it was like ravaging ravaging our our Rolodexes. It was called, wasn't it called GERD? Weren't they calling, what was it? They weren't calling it AIDS. They were calling it GERD, GERD. right? Uh, no, no, it was it was AIDS, and not when we knew each other. It was called like no, gay plague it, it or was, GERD. It, it, no, it was it was AIDS because I was one of the first people to do a story because like when 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 Fauci came out because he was ahead of things. That's the ironic thing. He's out there talking about Omicron this week on World AIDS Day when he was in San Francisco or you know he was putting out the word about AIDS. You ought to be. You know, fearful of this, but no one took it seriously. And and so I was working the weekend and I happened to be doing one of the first stories because no one took it seriously in 81 in San Francisco. And, um, you know, and so to think this is where we are, we're like, uh, you know, millions of people dead and no vaccine. No, vac- this is on the PETA podcast this week. I talked to a, an animal uh, or a, a science, a scientific researcher who works for PETA now. She's a science advisor. And she says why we haven't had a vaccine in all these years. It's because we're using monkeys, which contract monkey AIDS and not human AIDS. And we will not get off that monkey track. We continue to do the same thing that leads us to no effective vaccines for humans. That's why, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of people have died uh, billions of dollars spent, wasted, because we can't get off the monkey track. So that, that's my uh, that's my AIDS, my PETA podcast AIDS story. Can I say one more thing, David? Yes. I know I know Barry Lynn's coming up, but you know I'm, I'm I was really upset um, by um, the the Michigan shooting. I, I I always am. I always talk about shootings. I'm I'm anti gun. Uh, and I, they've been very careful to release information about all the victims. And finally, you know, I see a picture of one of the four people who died and the 14 year old girl is Hannah, not Hannah, Hannah, uh, St. Juliana. And I saw that her picture, they don't talk about her race or ethnicity. And her parents were, were too, they were too distraught to talk. They, they deferred to neighbors who said glowing things about this 14-year-old. But I saw that girl's picture, and I knew she was Asian. I knew she was part Asian. And especially when the, a respectful television reporter said, don't call her Hannah. She, he berated the anchor and said, her name isn't Hannah, it's Hannah for the... If you've ever been to Maui, you take that road to Hana, and the road to Hana is one of the most 
beautiful scenic drives in all of Hawaii. And I just knew, you look at her picture, you, I heard the thing about the name, and I just knew we're dealing with an Asian American who was killed. And, and suddenly, you know, for a lot of people, Asian Americans specifically, when they see a victim, they see a crime like this, sometimes it's easy to say, okay, not us. This is not us. This is, we're not a part of this. But I know if people are looking at Hannah's picture and they see her, it's totally relatable. And it just, it just got me because I have three kids who look like Hannah. They could have been my kids. In fact, you know, like they talk about her, she would have played on the basketball team this week after being a volleyball star. And, you know, for me, I was the soccer coach of all my kids, all my girls, I was their soccer coach. And I know what it's like to be a parent of a 14 year old. I just know, I just don't know what it's like to be a parent of a 14 year old who was murdered at school. Right. And that was just. And you know, as a white, so, as a white man, I know what it's like to have a child who's a serial killer. As a white man, I know what it's like to have a kid who shoots up a school because they tend to be white men, don't they? Well, you know, they, they do. I mean, I used to think this shouldn't be a white person's problem, right? Why is it uh, a white person's problem? It I, is, you know, it, it, when, we talk, know. when we talk, it, it, it really, uh, we have to wrap it up, but we should, they tend to, they, they all seem to be white men. Doing and look the, at the community, Oxford, Michigan, 90% white. 90. I mean, this is, you know, I, and I thought, well, it's Michigan, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see more diversity. There was more diversity in Parkland in Florida. Um, but am I, can I, can you think of any schools that were shot up by anybody other than a white male? Uh, no, but you know, some of the, the shootings in business office buildings have been, you know, there's one Filipino guy it, in our years in the eighties in San Francisco, shut up that building. Yeah. It, but that was a domestic matter. He was right. going after his wife, but I can't think I, I really, I can't, but it was, I just felt for the family, of course. And I just, I never met Hannah, uh, St. Juliana, but I just felt like when I looked at her picture, I know this woman or this girl, I right. know this young who has robbed of her life. Emil Guillermo, well said, sir. Thank you. As the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they drop new podcasts. Every He drops a new podcast for PETA every Wednesday. Read them over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. If you're thinking of donating, that's a good place to send some money. Also, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, would be a good place to support. If uh, you want to go into a time machine and revisit Giving Tuesday, which was earlier this week. Thank you, Emil. Follow Emil on Twitter, Emil Amuck. Watch his live stream. How do people watch your live stream, sir? They can go to Twitter at Emil Amuck, E-M-I-L-A-M-O-K, or just see the replay on amok.com or go to YouTube. I don't have anyone 
watching my YouTube channel. You will be one of the first. You'll be a charter member, and I would appreciate it. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Emil Guillermo. Let us now go to either Massachusetts or Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is about to join us. Do you see the scroll? Do you see the scroll, Reverend? You have to unmute yourself, sir. Uh, maybe I have to unmute you. There you no, go. I, how about this? There you go. Yeah, I do see the scroll. It's a scroll. It's, it's very eloquent. Thank you. It's the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being a member of the Supreme Court Bar and an attorney, he is also a ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. So much to talk about. So much. Let me ask you a question, because I know you're burning. I'm sorry to keep you waiting, and we're running. No problem. We're, as usual, we're running a little behind, but... Uh, We'll do, we'll do our time. Uh, I apologize to the guests. Uh, we're a little behind schedule. I'm sorry. How was your Thanksgiving? Oh, you spent it with me. I did spend it with so you. So you had a bad it Thanksgiving. Was, it was, no, it was a, just a great, just a great time. Are you in Massachusetts or Washington? Yes, I'm still, I'm still in Massachusetts. I have, I have a, a question. When's the last Please. time you watched 101 Dalmatians? Um, I think I was six at the time. Have you sat with your grandkids and watched 101 Dalmatians? No, I have not. Can I offer up a suggestion? Of course you can. Watch 101 Dalmatians with your, your grandkids. If you're, it will, it's just amazing. It's just such a beautiful cartoon. I watch, I can't believe I was watching it. I'm rewatching it. By myself. Really? Yeah, by myself. Really? It's just it's just a beautiful it's just beautifully done and the acting is done. <laughs> so if you're if you're feeling down, go get yourself a copy of 101 Dalmatian. Z uh okay. Wait a wait, 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 wait a second. The acting is great in an animated film. Yes. Okay. Yes. The only thing I remember about 101 Dalmatians when I saw it at, I was six. And I saw it in Allentown, Pennsylvania, right next to the city of Bethlehem, where I grew up. And uh, they were having, they had a little pet store. And since I wasn't anti-pet at the time, and they had a, uh, a raffle. You could put your name in and you could win a stuffed Dalmatian. And I never won anything. Speaking of the gambling stuff you and I, Neil were talking about, but I won that. I don't know where the stuffed dog went, but you know it was. Uh, that's the only recollection I have of it. There was. I might go back and listen to it again. There was a. An, go ahead. Well, there was the blowback. The unfortunate blowback was people started buying Dalmatians, and Dalmatians are can be chewy and jumpy and a little difficult, and uh, you got to be careful with. Dalmatians, uh, so, and and people should not be breeding Dalmatians. That's the correct. Other, that's they the should problem. not be. 
We don't need any more dogs being bred. No, no, we don't. No, we do not. Before we get too deep into dogs, yes, I think that you and Emil have an unfortunately too positive view about what happened earlier this week in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case at the Supreme Court. Well, if only there were a lawyer and a minister who could talk about abortion. Yeah. So what That's happened? That's how I got into the whole separation of church and state issue. Was really? The abortion issue. Really? I had a, I had a roommate uh, about halfway through my uh, college years, and um, he told me before... Did I tell you this before? No. Did you? Oh, okay. No, he, he, we were about to have a spring break. And I said, where are you going for spring break? And he said, I'm going to London with my girlfriend. And I said, that sounds like fun. And he said, no, it's not fun. We have to get an abortion. And I said, wait a minute. Why don't you just get an abortion, you know, in New York or Massachusetts or one of those places that's liberal politically? I didn't even realize at the time, this was probably 1967, that the Catholic Church was so powerful in those two states that liberal on lots of things, they had utter prohibitions on abortion. And when I, when that hit me, I thought, wait a minute, you know, I think I'm against Vietnam, I'm favor, I march with Dr. King. But I didn't know this. I didn't know that powerful religious organizations had this control over the life of the people that lived in the state, whether they were Catholics or not. And it was a giant wake up call. And it started me down this whole interest in making sure that the government relies solely on non-religious arguments in order to make policy of any kind. And so what what the conservatives, because I I do read the National Review they, they, and I don't know anything about this. There are some people who say we need to tighten restrictions on abortion after the first trimester. I, I don't know what the truth is, but in the National Review this week, they were saying that we have some of the loosest restrictions on abortion, that, that when you look at Europe, it's unheard of to see abortions after the first trimester. Do we know if that's true? Uh, I I think statistically it's true that most abortions occur in the first trimester. But this idea that you, you treat abortion differently in every trimester, that was really the design of Roe versus Wade. And they kind of wrote a statute as many of its critics of Roe versus Wade, right there on the spot, and said, first trimester, nothing. There may be some modest things you can do in the second trimester, but states can do anything they want in the third trimester. And then in 1992, when the other case that was talked about the other day in the Supreme Court all the time, the Casey decision came down, and they said, well, if the fetus is not viable, you, you can pretty much do anything unless it presents, and this is the key phrase, an undue burden on a woman's right to obtain abortion. This is all predicated on the notion that uh, in the second trimester, there is not fetal viability. 
And what the argument was yesterday at the court, a lot of it was devoted to the fact that liability has changed. And uh, the, the Solicitor General for the state of Mississippi kept saying we have new scientific data and the new scientific data demonstrates that viability has changed. You can save fetuses earlier and fetuses, after all, uh, also feel pain. And that, of course, is complete nonsense. But uh, and just so do we know order, if I, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that there are some issues that I'm up on and some issues that I'm not. Do we know of first trimester premature babies who who were born in the first trimester who who survive? I don't think you can survive in the first trimester. I'm not sure that no one has ever survived, but you would I, think, I think though, that moving forward with science, they would be able eventually maybe to grow a, a fetus outside the womb, a hydroponic baby. Couldn't they do a hydroponic baby? Maybe. Let's worry about that, though, after we guarantee women the right to make a choice. 80% of the country, 80% of America, two thirds of Americans want Roe v. Wade to stand. Correct. So what does that what? mean? What does it mean? What, what does it mean if Roe v. Wade isn't overturned? What is Roe v. Wade? Well, Roe v. Wade is a 50 year old precedent. And Sonia Sotomayor, who I, I'm more and more impressed with her every time she opens her mouth on the court, she says to the Solicitor General of Mississippi yesterday, will this institution, referring to the Supreme Court, survive the stench that this reversal of Roe would create in the public perception that the Constitution and its readings are just political acts? And I think the answer is no. And in fact, to tell you the truth, much as I have, the Supreme Court's been a big part of my life so much, um, I think it's already stinks. I don't think there's anything that could happen in this term and much of what has happened in the last few terms on any issues, the First Amendment, bad decisions on the Second Amendment, it stinks already. But for her to say that, and there were gasps, apparently, I talked to some people who were there uh, in the courtroom when she made that statement about, can this court survive the stench of overturning Roe versus Wade? But the, the reason I suggested you and Emil were a little too... Uh, positive about this. The, the general rap is that in about 26 states, there would be sufficient protections existing now, even if Roe versus Wade was overturned, because states have made decisions uh, to do something to protect it in advance of this possibility. But I want to tell you a couple of things that happened yesterday. One, uh, Justice uh, I'm trying to think who who asked this. Um, somebody said, um, I, I guess it was in a conversation with the chief justice, who people thought, well, he was trying to come up with some kind of compromise. And he was suggesting to the lawyers, and Julia Rickleman, who, who was 
arguing on behalf of the women's clinic in Mississippi and who works for the Center for Constant for Reproductive Rights, which is another group group that's really good. If you want to go back in history and do something for uh, Giving Tuesday, that, that you can't. He kept saying, but is, does it make that much of a difference if it's now 23 or 24 weeks of viability? If we just said you can't have abortions at all after 15 weeks, would that be a serious problem? And, of course, Julie Rickleman said, of course it would be. And it, it's terrible that one of the problems with Roe versus Wade is this idea that it's okay for the government to make these decisions about what it is that can or cannot be done with a woman's decision to deal with, with the pregnancy at any point in the pregnancy. I mean, this idea that if you pass some magical time, it's 25 weeks, then the state can ban it. I don't think there's any circumstance ever up until the time of birth when a woman doesn't get to make that choice. None. So Roe versus Wade is already, in my judgment, a kind of a, a backsliding from what ought to be the rule, which is that this is not a matter for government to decide at all. And what we saw yesterday at the court was not only... Uh, a claim on the, on the part of the Solicitor General of Mississippi, who who said that uh, uh, when asked by I'm trying to, I can't remember which justice asked, and uh, the, the question was, are you are you saying that the woman has no rights? And he said, no, women always have a right, just like everybody involved in this has a right to claim from the beginning, from the start. In other words, in his view, not only does a woman, yes, have some rights, but fetuses have rights also from the moment that there's a kind of a a sperm-created egg fertilization at the moment near conception. So that's bad, because when he says that, then it, then you wonder, well, what does that mean? Because it's kind of couched. So The Guardian uh, this morning has a story about all of this, and they interview the National Right to Life president, who tells, um, she tells uh, I think the BBC, actually, says, well, of course we want the Mississippi law to stand, but here's the kicker. We'd love to see them go even further and say that unborn human beings deserve precisely the same protection as born human beings. So they are not interested in just moving the dial of when you could and couldn't have an abortion. They don't want anybody to ever be a have an abortion. And more importantly, they want the definition of a human being, of a person in the Constitution. And I, I think I've said this before. Uh, they want that person, that fetus, to be a person for constitutional uh, reasons. And of course, that means that all these states that think, well, you know, we can have, as, as Emil was talking about, a kind of a, a tourism industry in California, people can go and have abortions. You can't do that if, not with this case, but with the next case, if they say, no, a person includes a fetus. You cannot legalize murder in any state, including in California. 
So and then so step. Roe v. Wade, if so, as as I understand this, and thank you for this, they overturn Roe v. Wade, then it's a states' rights issue, right? Temporarily, temporarily, but that won't be good enough for the right to lifers. They will then turn their vengeance on the blue states that perform yeah. abortion. Where are we going with this? Because who is ginning up the right to lifers? How many people you've been, first of all, 80% of Americans do not want to overturn Roe v. Wade. 80% right. of Americans think abortion, at least in the first trimester, should be illegal right. in all 50 states. You have dealt with the religious right. Who is ginning them up? What I was told 20 years ago is they never really wanted Roe v. Wade overturned because then they lose their fundraising. Then they, then they lose their reason for being. So they don't lose their reason to being if they overturn Roe v. Wade, you just said, because the next fight is to outlaw abortion completely. We're so how many true believers are there in the right to life movement? Well, I think there's an enormous percentage who are true believers, notwithstanding that they may know or may find out eventually that their own daughters are sometimes getting abortions. I mean, they but this is an incredibly powerful argument. And I've, I've heard this, well, they really don't want it to go away because then they won't have anything to raise money about. The problem with that is they will have something. They will say, since the court has permitted this in so many states, because there will be about 21 or 22 states that will immediately, because of past legislation with so-called trigger laws, those trigger laws will be pulled and abortion will immediately be determined to be unlawful, a criminal act in those 21 states. Well, earlier, so, so earlier, to, yeah, so earlier to, with I think it was with Emil, I was saying there are forces controlling our ideology and my ideology, yours and the, the I don't want to say the crazy Christians. Let's just say the dangerous Christians who have guns, who think they're on the, they're righteous, who will take arms against abortion providers and are, as despair continues, economic despair, nothing better than the distraction of war waged on each other it it benefits it benefits the ruling elite for us to go to war with each other over a woman's right to choose correct is absolutely that- no absolutely absolutely does and with george tiller's murder and the murder of other prominent providers of abortion we know that a lot of these what people not a lot necessarily, but enough, um, all of a sudden have, um, they've already done it. The war has already begun. They're going and it will into, be financialized. Case, they went into a church. You know, he was, a, he was serving communion in a church. 
and a guy came in and shot him. So they, and, they will finance. Let's be clear here, Reverend. There are forces in our country who want to financialize our divisions. The, 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 the media wants to, will cash in. Every time there's a shooting, you go to CNN. If, yep. if there is a, uh, what is it, a de facto war, not a, yeah. right, a de facto civil war, we can have right. a de facto war in this country that will be beautiful to watch. You know, let's, I'm, I can't go out tonight, I want to watch the war on CNN or MSNBC. Yeah. It's great for politics, it's great for fundraising, it's great for the armaments in, industry, yeah. us killing each other over a woman's right to choose. A breakdown in order is great for the police. Sure. It's great for it's great for everybody who has a financial stake in this country. Correct? Not, yeah, you're not going to get an argument from me about that. So this but thing is but, being ginned up. This thing, this abortion thing, is being ginned up. Because there's money involved in getting people upset about abortion. Yeah, there definitely is. But but the fact of whatever happens in the Mississippi case, or if my uh, depressing prediction is true, that they then go after all abortion completely, the, the Supreme Court has already in that case some years ago called Hobby Lobby, basically bought into Hobby Lobby's contention that most of the forms of contraception that actually work are themselves abortifacients. In other words, these pills and injections, any of these chemicals are inducing abortion. And so when this came up in the oral argument, I was in the court at the, at the time, and I mean, they said that, and, and even the people attempting to make sure that Hobby Lobby didn't win didn't argue with it. They just let it go as if it was obviously true. There's a marvelous book called How the Women's Movement, How, How the Pro-Choice Movement Saved America. It was written at least 10 years ago, but the premise of the book is that we're kidding ourselves if we think that they're going to stop at abortion because they are going to go after every form of contraception. It's a very persuasive book. It was a very prescient uh, argument. And we're seeing that now because when you have Hobby Lobby saying, well, the reason we're not going to cover contraceptions in our health care plans is because we're against abortion. Remember, they won that case. They won that case. And uh, it's hard. They're not going to stop. They're not going to stop until they get rid of contraception. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that there are people, and and we ignore them at our own peril. Uh, sorry, I have uh, food in my mouth. That's okay. I'm, be I'm being rude. Uh, but daycare is reading about daycare. 
you talked about daycare, you're, there was an opportunity to provide federally funded daycare in this country. We spend more on bailing out the airlines each year than we do yeah. on providing daycare to children. There are people in this country who think daycare is evil because women should not be working, that kids should be raised by the mother, not the state. They really believe that. Yeah, and they're still saying it. I mean, I just saw somebody quoted as saying that uh, a couple of hours ago. It's saying the the, women should stay home. They should take care of their babies and raise them because we don't want the government to become a national nanny, which is a phrase they use about everything. And and indoctrinating our children at an early age. Yeah, with critical race theory. Right. I mean, really. And they also believe that women should not be working. There are people who believe that women should be home raising children. Right? Exactly. They really believe that. This is a huge, a huge issue. Um, This comes up so consistently in the religious right. And, and it still does, and it certainly did during the 25 years that I was kind of directly confronting them. They, they have ideas that are so bizarre. And now the judges that are being selected have the same kind of bizarre views on the edge of uh, any kind of reasonable thinking. Even if you're a so-called conservative, a jurisprudential scholar, basically a lot of these ideas are completely insane. Yeah. They're completely nutty. And when when I used to argue with somebody like, uh, uh, who's that idiot that has a, a talk show now on, on Fox on Sunday nights? There's an idiot on Fox News? Yeah, but only on Sundays. On Sunday nights? Uh, Mark Levin. Mark Levin. Mark Levin is a nut. But I used to think, well, this guy's a really fringe character. He's kind of entertaining to have debates with but he's crazy but now the a crazy jew by the way not, not a crazy christian a crazy jew well you know i don't know what he is he's a crazy uh, jew okay well he's um but the kinds of interpretations of the constitution that he used to support are now supported by at least three maybe four members of the Supreme Court and a vast number of people in the federal appeals courts, which are the last place you get in 98% of the cases that are filed in federal courts. They don't get to the Supreme Court. They get to an appeals court and uh, they die there. Yeah. Constant vigilance. The thing that my flaw, I have many, but one of the flaws that my many flaws. One of them is I, I get bored refighting old battles and I ignore the battles that I fought uh, because I don't want to, I'm on to new battles, but there are people who don't let go of these battles. And then you have to really, I have to go back now and argue the Vietnam War or I have to go back and argue abortion or but these these arguments never end they just no, they just they, 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 they you think it's settled and it's you know 
as something as simple as <laughs> supply side economics. Yeah. I thought that was settled when Reagan ran up. I think he tripled the budget deficit. Correct. And raised taxes Correct. and raised yeah. taxes. Yeah. And now I'm hearing, well, the fact that he raised taxes is why he tripled the. But I mean, no, I we I don't want I don't want to I, guns. You know, right. I, I, re, I was when I was a kid, I can remember, as you said, hand you pointed this out. Handguns were, were on the table for outlawing. Sat like the, why? Absolutely. Why do we allow Saturday night specials? Only a crazy person would think <laughs> that anybody should be allowed to own a Saturday night special. And we have to re-argue it, not because the American people have changed their mind. Their mind has been changed by armaments manufacturers think tanks who are exactly. who are hired think tanks hired by the NRA by yeah. Colt 45 or uh, Smith and Wesson to, to to brainwash people into thinking it's called a think tank <laughs> to, to think up ways to convince you to think a certain way nobody in their right mind believes that there shouldn't be an assault weapons ban. And yet there's and, and enough. The polls of, all show that too. And the polls all so Of course. So we well, don't even we haven't even been convinced of any of this. We're when you say there's gonna be a, a Sotomayor says there's gonna be a stink on the Supreme Court, who cares? If you're if you're sitting on the Supreme Court, who cares what how the, what the American people think of the Supreme Court? The, 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 the American people have contempt for Congress. They have contempt for everything that's supposed to fix things and, and, and doesn't. What does it and matter? You remember the Supreme Court bar. So yeah. what if the American people don't trust the Supreme Court? What, that's not yeah. going to that's not going to strip the Supreme Court of any power. No, but it also, but it, but that that's the kind of thinking that I think a lot of Democrats in the Senate had, and you have to look no further back than the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, and you know the Democrats basically gave up. They 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 thought we have certain procedural ways that we could maybe delay this, but why bother? Amy Coney Barrett had written before she was even nominated for the Supreme Court that abortion was, in her words, a barbaric practice, barbaric practice. Almost nobody asked her about that. But then yesterday, she proved just how out of touch she was when she asked the attorneys for the women's clinic in Mississippi, well, doesn't it, don't we not have as big a problem because we have safe haven laws? Safe haven laws are laws in a lot of states that say that if you have a child, the child is born, you know, the fetus has become a child at birth. And if you take that child to a hospital or certain other institutions in the local community, you will not be prosecuted civilly or criminally for anything you do. So the idea that you can carry a fetus into term to be a child and it's okay because you can give it up for adoption 
It's just, it's, it's, it's so ludicrous. Does, does she not know that it costs money to go through pregnancy? We have a crappy healthcare system that doesn't take, take care of people and certainly doesn't take care of pregnant women. It also means, does she not know giving birth is actually dangerous? Statistically, it's like 14 times more dangerous than having an abortion. But she doesn't care about any of that. Here is a woman with seven children. Is that right? Seven. Two adopted children. And the other five, I guess, she just had. And she is so irresponsible. I put this on Facebook when it happened, and I got a lot of pushback, even from liberal women who said I was I was a shaming a mother because I thought couldn't believe that she actually took all of her kids. I think one was not did not go to the big White House ceremony in the Rose Garden when Trump announced that she was going to be his nominee. She brought her kids. That was a super spreader event. She took her kids there. And, uh, you know, honest to God, what what mother would willingly take their children into that place instead of just saying, you know, it's not going to be that safe. I don't think a lot of people are going to be wearing masks. You should watch this on a monitor. You should watch this on television instead of coming with me into that into that miserable, miserable event. So don't tell me she's pro-life because she's not. And don't tell me she's a good mother because she's not. She's a bad mother. And I, I should have clarified when I first posted this, and it's a bad father, too. Who takes their kids into a circumstance like that? And what did we learn today from Mark Meadows, or at least a leak to the extent that you can figure out what it is? He says Trump had already tested positive for COVID at the time of that event. And then he was on something uh, earlier today, and he said, "He said, well, I, I may have misspoke. And, and if you can understand that, then you could probably understand the jury instructions in the Rittenhouse case. Mark too. Meadows says he misspoke when he said that, that well, Trump he, tested positive. It's very unclear what he, he thinks he, he is, spoke about. Yeah, Mark Meadows is the worst of the worst. Freedom Caucus. Yeah. He's a supplicant. He breaks down and cries. He, he literally, he literally got down on his hands and knees and begged Speaker John Boehner to forgive him when they tried to do an end run around Boehner and elect somebody else as yeah. Speaker. And when Meadows realized that Boehner kept the job and Meadows mm. was going to be marginalized, he literally yeah. got on his hands and knees mm -hmm. and apologized. That's who Mark Meadows is. Yeah. And remember, as I said last week, he's also the guy who has posited the possibility, and this is the Constitution permits, of having, if the House of Representatives turns into a Republican House, that they name Donald Trump as the Speaker of the House. Right, which would be the best thing that could happen, seriously, for the Democratic Party. You know, if that becomes the, the rumor... Of course, that's good for the Democrats and they can oh, run they can run against Trump and not have to do anything. Well, that's that's true. But I mean, I rather than uh, not elect uh, a few more progressive Democrats in the Senate and the House, um, 
we're going to be in really bad shape. Okay, so play this out for me. You live in Washington, D.C., and I've been brainwashed to hate Donald Trump, and I do. I hated Donald Trump 40 years ago when I lived in New York City. I know who Trump is. He's a mobster, Uh, and not a good one, by the way. Not uh, and but I've been brainwashed that we're this close to fascism. And if the Republicans take the House and the Senate, then Trump wins or somebody like Josh Hawley, somebody. And then we lose democracy. You know, I have to hear Rob Reiner wringing his greasy paws. You know, this is the most important election. Give to. And I'm thinking, all right, what happens if the Democrats are not in charge? What kind of fascism are we looking at? Now, I know that Biden is better. Aesthetically, at least. It's a better look. I'm being serious. There's an aesthetic of... Well, there is, of course. And as Harriet Fraud said, he's not going to shoot protesters in the street. Biden isn't going to send... You know, Trump told Milley and Mark Esper, the head of the Defense Department, send troops into the streets. And Cotton advocates for this. So... uh, the Democrats are better because both you and I will still be able to talk on this show. That's correct. I, I think, <laughs> I don't know. Do you think, how bad could it get with people like the Freedom Caucus in charge of our lives? How bad, how much do you fear they're having the levers of power in Washington? Well, I'm tremendously concerned about that. Uh, but we lose abortion. We lose gay marriage, uh, same-sex yeah. marriage. Yeah, yeah. We lo- and uh, we lose any gun control at all. So everybody is walking around. Everybody with guns. will. Everybody will have guns. And uh, after this term in the court, those of you in New York City, of course, will be able to watch people openly carry. There will be no requirement, as there is in New York law now that a person explain why he or she needs the gun in the first place. But we saw with Kyle Rittenhouse, the only thing that stops somebody with a gun who might be good or bad is somebody else who has a gun who might be good or bad. That's what we learned from the Rittenhouse trial, that that in, in the fog of street war in America, people carrying guns could or cannot be bad or good so why i mean mean, the rittenhouse case is is why it's like you watch that and it doesn't matter whether or not he's guilty or innocent the the wayne lapierre the gun lobby should be locked up this this idea that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun who decides who the good guy and the bad guy is. And and then who is he an active shooter? Some people see Kyle Rittenhouse and they think he's an active shooter. They don't know he's a good guy with a gun. Yeah, all right. So they shoot. They, I mean, 
But, you know, what, the, what, what, how stupid is this country, Reverend? This is a dumb, this is a stupid really, country. Yes, we, we have become dumber and dumber. And as you and Emil were talking about the Oxford, uh, Michigan murders yesterday, here's a 15 year old, Ethan Crumbly, who shoots and kills four people already as we're recording this. And maybe another will die overnight. 15 years old, kills at least four people. There is on his cell phone a discussion of killing students the next day. Um, They recovered a journal in his backpack where he talks about uh, needing to take out murdering students at that high school. And the parents, the other thing they've found is in his social media accounts, how excited he was that his father had just days before the shooting purchased this super handgun that he used to kill people. So now question, I don't know whether you can, probably Wayne LaPierre is not uh, guilty of a felony, but the parent, the father who bought the gun and was so careless, maybe that's given him the benefit of the doubt that he was so careless that he let the gun just lie around the house so that his kid could find it. That's a kind of liability that ought to carry criminal penalties. But hasn't you're a a lawyer, haven't the gun industry, isn't the gun industry, haven't they inoculated gun owners and gun manufacturers from liability, civil cases? Well, Well, certainly they have for gun manufacturers. But that was a legal theory that I frankly, I never thought had any legs at all. Not, I just didn't think about that. But, but I think that the prosecutor in Michigan has said uh, the, the day after these, these murders that she is looking at ways to go and prosecute at least the father, maybe both of the parents. And I think you can still do that. I think that you can have, uh, I don't know the state law in Michigan uh, that you might use. But in general, there are ways that you can say there's been such a reckless disregard for the use of a weapon that if somebody else obtains it and uses it, you know, you've got liability for that. And I think they should do that. What the hell kind of parent takes a kid <laughs> to a super spreader event or what kind of parent lets a gun just lie around the house so that the kid who's obviously been fetishizing guns for a long time because there's a long history that he has of that. Why why should that not be liable? Why should you just say, well, I just, uh, I left it around. How was I supposed to know that my son who loves guns uh, would pick it up and take it to school? That's a baloney excuse and it doesn't hold up and it shouldn't hold up. And parents who do this should know that they're gonna be held liable for what happens. Right. It's not just a thought. It's not just uh, it's not a thought crime. This is buying the gun, leaving it sit around and knowing that your kid loves guns. He was a big he was a big hunter, apparently, also, and right. that he was going to be able to obtain it. Right. That's totally irresponsible. And it ought to be criminalized. Yeah, that's not right. Yeah. Michael Bloomberg was running for president last year. Remember Michael yeah. Bloomberg? It's 2021. So in 2020, Michael Bloomberg 
ran for president. He self-financed, right? Yeah. Yes, he did. And one of his platforms, one of the one of the things he ran on was that as a billionaire, he could fix things. And one of the things he mentioned was every town USA, every town for gun safety. He yeah. uh, run by uh, John Feinblatt and every town for gun safety is a 501c4, a 501c3. And this is a billionaire, Michael Bloomberg, solving a problem. I, I alone can fix it with my business acumen, business, every town for gun safety. And he uh, donates about 36, 40 million dollars a year of his own money yep. to this 401c4. And they have offices and salaries cost 40 million dollars to run every town for gun safety. And things are getting worse in terms of gun laws, not better. That's that's an example of people who are craven, opportunistic capitalists like Michael Bloomberg, who think I, I have money, so I must be smart. I can fix the gun problem. And he creates some kind of infrastructure. And human nature is such that infrastructures are self-perpetuating. And the infrastructure is less concerned with getting guns off the streets than it is in fundraising, the new building, hiring people. They bring in other hyper-educated elitists who are passing through this cause onto their next 501c3 has nothing to do with solving the gun problem. This is it. it what And, and I, I don't want to go after David. Is it David Hogg, the Parkland kid who got into oh, Harvard? Yeah. 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 I have nothing against David Hogg. And, I, and, I, and he should not be tormented by Marjorie Taylor Greene. However, he is a Harvard student. He is a self-promoter. And all of a sudden, he's, while at Harvard, get, getting into bed with venture capitalists to make a pillow that competes with Mike Lindell. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait. You're David Hogg from the Parkland school shooting. Uh, you're telegenic and charismatic and why should I follow you now? Why do I, why, why should I, you know, he's just another Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine who's wearing the, the left-wing fashion. I feel bad what happened to him at, at Parkland, but there's this self-dealing that goes on on important issues where, that are life and death. How do we get rid of these people? Why are we allowing life and death issues to be co-opted by opportunists? Or has that always been the case? I mean, I think it depends. Do you, do you think that uh, in the civil rights movement, for example? Um, no, Martin Luther King was Martin Luther King didn't have any side hustle. He didn't have any side hustle. How about the other people who were around? You know, 
Jesse Jackson. I mean, I know him. A couple, is, is except a for a couple, of, a couple of uh, Pepsi bottling contracts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, but there have to be. You have to have these organizations that are going to do the right thing. You have to have anti-gun. I think there should be another organization that just goes after handguns. I mean, yeah, they, you know, they, all these mass shootings with AK-47s and similar uh, uh, guns. But that's a minuscule percentage of the number of people who get killed. And it's they're, they're killed, at, as in Michigan yesterday, by people with handguns. And See, so here's, here's, is, here's the thing. Why isn't I, there... Here's the thing. Yeah, here's I mean, the, the here, here's the problem with this country. So people are struggling economically, yeah. and they have to work. That's the problem. And so you do a benefit for a cause. The people who run the benefit say it's not fair to ask a to ask. Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine to donate his time. His t he's Tom. So let's pay him to do this benefit. He'll donate some of it, or maybe he won't. Uh, I saw Tom Morello do a private party for a venture capital fund holding a guitar that says this machine kills fascists. Yeah. I mean, I, I was literally watching Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine playing the ghost of Tom Joad and these Coke addicted models and hedge fund managers were jumping up and down. And I'm thinking, well, he's full of shit. And then I realized Tom Morello went to Harvard, uh, which he did. Uh, the, the economic precarity in this country breeds a desperation that forces people who want to do good to perpetuate these infrastructures that are more concerned with perpetuating the infrastructure than curing the problem. This is what economic precarity breeds because nobody has the, nobody has the leisure time to donate their time to a good cause. You should be paid for your time is, is what, how they yeah. justify well, well, this, you know, I did three years. Yeah, I mean, I did three years of this uh, uh, national program called Voices United for Separation of Church and State, and I always was sensitive to the fact that you cannot and should not ask people to work for nothing. If somebody said, if you approach somebody to do a benefit, and they say, "I'm not taking any money," if it's their idea, great. But this idea, and we found very creative ways working with the artists like Ani DeFranco and others to, to say, we'll give, we'll give you a part of what we make, but we need you to do this for us. So she comes to a place like Washington, D.C. She sells out the place immediately. She makes a little money. We make a lot of money from it. And everybody's happy. And everybody respects the fact that you can't do things for nothing. You cannot expect let me, let me serious push back people on that. to do it. Go let, ahead. Me, let me push back because my experience as a comedian was always being asked to do benefits. Yeah. And when I was offered the money, I was 
appalled. And then people said to me, no, 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 take the money. You deserve it. I go, but it's for, I don't even want to mention the charities. And sure. and you, you can give it back, but you need to take the money. Uh, and the, the argument was, should the waiters and waitresses at this event be working for free? What about the caterer? What about the food? What, you know, should they work for free? And looking back on it, let me mute everybody. Can you hear me? I have to unmute you. I'm unmuting. L looking back on these benefits that I did, the question should be asked, what's wrong with this country? Why, if, if you're doing a fundraiser for child, I hate to use this, for cancer, for childhood cancer. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm cheating rhetorically, but I'm going to go ahead with childhood Do cancer. It. You either are going to donate money to put an end to pediatric cancer or you're not. A meal? Well, I, I, I want you to raise money for pediatric cancer. And, and he, there's more to just raising money. We're going to give you a meal. There's going to be an auction. You can there's a vacation place in St. Bart's and there and there's going to be and Tony Bennett is going to perform. You either want to cure pediatric cancer or you don't. The the roots of New York City society was, well, we want to we're, we're rich. We're robber barons. We want to put on nice clothes and dance but it, it's kind of unseemly with everybody, like kids dying in the street here in New York City. I have an idea. Benefits. New York society was built on benefits, which exonerated them from being accused of conspicuous consumption. It, it, and so we have to stop thinking that charities are good that they're no they're not charities are <laughs> charities are every time you see a charity it says your government has failed that's an example if, if the fact that th that we need a saint jude's which people should give to despite the bad yeah. press saint jude's is a, a neon sign that says the american government is failing children in the war on cancer Every charity that pops up is a reminder that your government is failing you. Every soup kitchen that's run by a church or a nonprofit is a reminder that your government is failing you. Yes, all that's true. But what do you do with the, the kids with cancer in the next year before the government, if it ever decides to do the right thing? Who is going to raise the money? I agree. You know, I give a lot of money to. I agree, but it has to be providers. We have I to be. We have to be out in the open about the money. I agree with you hundred percent, and I think people should give St. Jude's. I agree yeah. with you, but we have to be. We have to be out in the open about the money and, and the layer upon layer of bureaucracy in these institutions, which, like. Like, uh, what's his name? Uh, 
John Feinblatt, president of Everytown for Gun Safety, which has $36 million of revenue each year. It's a failure. It's Michael Bloomberg's little 501c3 and 501c4. It's a failure. It should be shut down. It's not working. It's not working. um, Of course, if it didn't exist, even less, there'd be no pressure at all from the other side. There are a lot of gun groups, not just his. But I disagree with all due respect. I think here's the thing. Half-ass commitment lets people off the hook. When you have something that's half-assed, like every town for gun safety, it it lulls people into a, a, a soft slumber of oh somebody's on this, somebody's on this. But it's it, it's it it creates the illusion that Michael Bloomberg is trying to get the guns off the street. He failed at it. He's a failure at it. And, and he should close down every town for gun safety, which used to be mayors against uh, illegal guns, which bought up, some, right. you know, for the, the four gun action committee. And there's like these layers and layers of bureaucracy and shell organizations and 501. And, and so I want to get involved with uh, getting rid of guns. You know who you need to speak to? You need to speak to the brilliant. What's his name? This piece of shit, John Feinblatt, president of Every Town for Gun Safety, which also owns Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action. They, that's, they, they just built this bureaucracy of failing 501c3s that self-perpetuate and accomplish nothing. The gun problem is worse because of people like this, because they're not they're. They, they're not in it to get rid of guns. They're in it to build their resumes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I don't believe that you can do this in an all or nothing fashion. I don't think you can say, well, we got to get rid of all these gun bureaucracy. But it is very important. I agree with you. There's so many charities dealing with exactly the same issues. Have they ever thought about sitting down together and going and like, let's forget the salaries people are getting. Let's just be honest and talk about if we work together, couldn't we do more? Couldn't we actually stand a better chance? It's called government. It's called government. It's called government. But if government is the enemy and the not the according Democratic to me, Party. not a, not according to me. No, but no, but not according to me either. But the point is, the, the majority of people in this country do not believe that government is a solution unless you ask them very specifically. If you say something, should government provide help for people who need child care? Even Republicans, they'll say uh, probably, probably, but. That's not going to make it happen. Right. Well, we need to change the conversation. We have have to wrap it up. We do need to change. Yeah, we do need to change the conversation. And we need to make government look like it's actually doing something. And but we nitpick it. And uh, occasionally that happens on this show. You know, Biden does something that's not perfect. People say, well, he's no good. Uh, The guy's not even been in office for a year. 
Uh, I think you can point to a large number of things a man does. And maybe we can talk about that next week. Yes, thank but, you. I, 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 sorry for, uh, sorry, I, I got a little worked up. Oh, sorry. It's okay. No, it's yeah. not fair to you. I apologize. Don't apologize. I'm really sorry. <laughs> okay. Do you do confessions? Hey, do you do confessions? I only do them privately. Okay. Uh, so if you call me, I can forgive you. Okay. And and this picture is so great. This is <laughs> the, uh, Jeffrey Epstein yeah. with the Pope yeah. and Ghislaine yeah. Maxwell. That's Jeffrey yeah. Epstein, be, like get, do, getting communion from the Pope. Yeah. I guess he's not that bad a guy after all. Well, he's certainly a bad. He's not a not a not a good Jew. I'll tell you that. He's now dead. He's yeah. Dead. But what well, kind we'll of see Jew? Where that, we'll see where that trial goes. I'm not terribly optimistic, but uh, we'll see what happens. I don't mind. Day. I don't mind the child trafficking. It's the the communion with the Pope. What kind of, <laughs> that's how, you know how embarrassed his mother must be right now that her son Jeffrey. All right, thank you, the Reverend Barry W. I'm sorry, I was a little too uh, high strung today. Uh, Reverend Barry W. Lynn has dedicated his life to separation of church and state for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. And besides being an attorney and a member of the Supreme Court bar, he is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and you think he's great, meet his wife, who is the only person allowed to talk about COVID on the show. Well, we have a couple of other people, but thank you, Reverend. I, Absolutely. I hope thank I you. wasn't, I, I talked too much. I apologize. You're listening. No, don't worry about it. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, I, I, I get worked up and I, I need to calm down. This is the David Feldman Show. Friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. We're doing office hours and hours. That's 24 hours of office hours with lessons and courses and great people. I host the first hour and then I shut up, I promise you, from eight till nine and then I'm done and I kick back and watch all the brilliant members of the community who, uh, have much more interesting things to say. We will be back with the professors and Marianne. Thank you. It's time right now. Of the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. 
He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome back. Uh, I'm going to bring the professors and Marianne on in a second. I getting a little paranoid and I have to thank the Invisible Ninja and Professor Mike Steiner. We just ran an animation that the Invisible Ninja made that is just so brilliant and funny. And I have to offload these shows onto a hard drive and get them off my computer. And there are like 20 hours a week of video and audio that just, I get it off my computer and I do have a filing system, but what happens on one show, it's almost as though it disappears. In my mind, it disappears and I need to do a better job of going, plugging in the hard drive and getting the music that Mike Steinell writes or this animation that the Invisible Ninja uh, just did it. I should be playing that more often. And I, uh, I apologize that it was just so I haven't seen that in so long. And it's the invisible ninja. That was just so great. And I need to do a better job of organizing the hard drive because there's just stuff in there. there's a treasure trove of stuff that goes back 12 years that uh, I just can't curate it all. And that this stuff is great. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. I'm going to be a little pushy. I, 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 we have a, a professor who normally does this, but I know he's been working hard and he's here. If he wants to join us, no pressure. He can raise his hand, but I'm not, you know, he's here just to watch and participate in the, uh, the chat room. But, uh, I'm not going to, you know, he's tired. We're all tired and he showed up to see his friends and and he doesn't have to uh, participate if he doesn't want. I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, <laughs> Professor Ann Lee joins us. Hello, Professor Ann Lee. Professor Hi. Jonathan Bick joins us. And Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. I always start. Here's what I do. Uh I always end with Professor Marianne Cummings because she's on Monday show and but she gets shortchanged on I feel I feel shortchanged. So let's start with Professor Marianne Cummings. What is on your mind, please? Well, um, 
I just came from a friend's house where I was watching Alec Baldwin being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos. Did something happen with yeah. uh, Alec Baldwin? Yeah, wait a minute, what was that? Oh yeah, two people killed, like he was reminded, the first thing he said was, I want to remind everybody, there are real victims here and I am not the victim. And I'm going, no shit, you're right. not the victim because you're sitting here. It's like, like Jay Leno when he said, don't blame Conan for all this. Remember that? <laughs> when Jay Leno takes Conan's job and Jay goes, don't blame Conan for this. Don't, huh? You just stole my job. Well, anyway, this was this was just I mean, he did some professional boohooing a couple of times. I mean, he he claims that he was in solidarity with IATSE and did that, that even that come up? Was, did that come up? Huh? That came that up. came up. You should watch this because he claims. I mean, this was a this was something crafted by his lawyers, I'm sure, because he uh, said he was in solidarity, that he had nothing to do with the finance or the business. He was all about the creativity. OK, you know, I mean, he told us to himself, right? Well, this is a this is kind of important to me. If you listen mm -hmm. to this show, I've went through the so did Stephanopoulos go over the contracts that are public knowledge did they go over the budgets with him and his salary did they discuss no, his salary really. he was he was actually and, and uh, Baldwin at one point said that he was uh, putting his own money into the production because he kept going saying about how it was a low budget film like they were a bunch of yeah film students or something making a movie suddenly uh, eight million dollars yeah. it was eight million dollars it's more than yeah. the francis mcdormand mo movie that won an oscar and eight million dollars of production not pre there's yeah. another budget for pre-production there's another budget for post-production and then there's another budget for promotion it was an eight million dollar budget to shoot that piece of crap mm -hmm. film and uh, did, did, did George Stephanopoulos uh, say that? Did, did George Stephanopoulos? No, no of course not. Because no. George Stephanopoulos makes $20 million a year. So it's impolite to talk about salaries. He did bring up an edgy question about the armorer and said, were you concerned that this was a relatively inexperienced person? And he said, no, I just assumed that everybody was being professional. And he kept going on about he was really more concerned with the creative aspect of this. And so it's basically, you know, he's washed his hands of, you know, culpability, even though he's deeply sorry. And I said he had at least two boo-hoo sessions and I didn't see any more because I left and uh, took my friend home. So um, <laughs> it was just quite quite a stunning little piece. Basically, I'm going, this is news. This is ABC News. This is a news. This is like, you know, a PR offensive. Yes, it's not thing. news. It's, it, it's they're yeah. trying to move a jury and he's going to be spending a year or two hiring. It's gotten so bad. Daniel Baldwin called Alec to see if he could lend him money. It's a joke. Yeah. A little joke I made up that I had in my pocket. That, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I just noticed you were discussing the shooting uh, in, in, in Michigan. I, I actually have friends up there. I haven't talked to them since it happened. Um, 
Yeah, uh, there is a uh, question always about adults who would procure or have available guns to minors. And uh, I hate to judge, but all before all the facts were in, to quote a line, but uh, I think this young man is extremely troubled. And it was obvious to, to anyone who would never have, should never get anywhere near a gun. But um, it did remind me of something. You know, there is a trial coming up and likely convictions for the in relation to the Kenosha shootings. And the trial is of Kyle Rittenhouse's friend, Dominic Black. Oh, who was the one who was the one that bought. Now, they postponed that trial. I thought that he was going on trial, but then they decided to postpone the trial. Um he was uh, he was a witness for the prosecution, and I think they were spending a lot of questions just nailing the fact that he bought the gun for Rittenhouse. But I think he ended up being kind of a valuable witness for the defense. But the long and short of it is he's he's charged with two counts of of selling um, arms to a arms to a minor, resulting in death. And each one of those counts has up to like three years in prison. I have no doubt he's going to get convicted because he basically confessed. I mean, he basically told everybody under oath that's exactly what he did. The question is, you know, what's going to be the punishment for it? I think he's going to do, he's going to get some sentence because I think the people were so, the public was so hyped up. About, uh, over the rather mis- the misreporting and the exaggeration over Kyle Rittenhouse, people, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to get something out of this. And an argument can be made that the person really most responsible for this whole situation was the guy who bought the kid the gun and drove him downtown that night. So um, anyway, stay tuned. But if they do get a conviction in this case, um, I think that that'd be plenty of uh, precedent to go after the parents in 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 the case in Michigan. Yeah, I, I, I talked about this with I, Pete Dominic earlier oh. about going after the parents. And there's something we're nibbling around the issues of the bigger problem, and that is somehow we've given these arms manufacturers immunity mm-hmm. from civil damages. We see this in public housing when the government abdicates responsibility. They go after the parents. Uh, Kamala Harris, as we know, was arresting the parents of truants. Don't improve the schools. Don't don't (laughs) hire more social workers to find out why a child is a truant. Arrest the parents. That's the Democrat vice president. And in public housing, what they do is if they create homelessness, if your child is a drug dealer or a criminal, we throw you out of public housing, even though good luck trying to control a kid. So they create homelessness by turning parents into law enforcement or social yeah. workers. I, I totally uh, I sympathy with all that. But however, there are some cases where, uh, you know, 
they're clearly at fault. But, you know, when you talked about the gun manufacturer liability, yes, they always claim that, you know, you it's like suing Ford Motor Company for, you know, people who drive drunk or something and kill right. people. Well, I think a case that can be made that the gun manufacturers whip up a narrative that encourages people to uh, – that first of all has an image of uh, gun ownership, multiple gun ownership that's somehow quintessentially American and it's appealing to a younger crowd, male crowd. And you could possibly work up, you know, culpability there. Otherwise, the real hard heavy lift, like everything else, like, you know, the corporations are people too, my friend, is to go back and see where we went wrong. And we went wrong with a horrible Supreme Court decision that somehow uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, first big frickin' part of the sentence, the right for the citizenry, not individuals, to bear arms shall not be infringed. I think we have to go back because, you know, we people argue, well, we don't know what they meant by well-regulated militia. Yeah, we do, do know exactly what was meant by well-regulated militia because one of the first laws that George Washington signed into law, pieces of legislation, was the Militia Act and gave you a very good idea what was meant at the time. People had to show proficiency with the gun. People had to show that the gun was in good working order and people had to be drilled and so on. And that law morphed. There, there's almost there's a continuous line of that line to the founding of the National Guard. So I think the real heavy lift, which nobody wants to do right now, and I agree there's probably you know much more pressing issues to deal with, is that you have to correct this ruling of the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, I, I apologize for my moral certitude tonight, because i that's one thing I pride myself on is not having moral and intellectual certitude. But for, mm -hmm. for, I don't know why, but for some reason, I, I don't know, I've been reading too much. And when we talk about guns, it gets down to the polling says the American people want an assault weapons ban. They want the guns off mm -hmm. the street. Overwhelmingly, this is an NRA that has been hijacked by gun manufacturers. Yeah. There, there is the, the, there is money to be made in selling fear and weapons to the American people. And these AR-15s, it is in the best interest of the manufacturers of AR-15s to see them in use here in the United States because they sell these weapons to our military. There's a direct connection between the military industrial complex. The, the, you know, they don't just make Boeing. It's not just Boeing or Raytheon making Tomahawk missiles. It's the Smith and Wesson making the AR-15s. We our military needs weapons that work and they need to study these weapons in action. And so it's it's all part of one the military industrial complex. It's the mil it's the militarization 
of our country and the financialization of our country. We don't get what we want. We want these guns off the street, but it's a, it's an investment and we're brainwashed. Oh, well, like like Big Pharma is an investment, like the perpetual war itself is an investment, like the prison industrial complex is an investment. They're all investments. They haven't been donating they haven't been giving money away to politicians. They've been investing in them. And, and when I'm uh, getting worked up, Here, here's the thing. Now you're getting worked up. You, we got to get. When they say we got to get the money out of politics, um, it is all about money. Everything that is stopping us from getting what we want is a trade association or a lobbyist representing the richest 1% who will tell you, you know, uh, providing uh, free food to kids who are hungry, you're going to put restaurants out of business. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to deny, you know, building homes for people. What about actors who fail and need to become real estate agents? You you want... (laughs) I mean, this is what I want to ask Professor Jonathan Bick, unless it's uncomfortable, what your thoughts are on this, because you've you don't I apologize if it's too much. On the gun issue? Yeah. If it hits home, I apologize. Oh, yeah, it definitely hits home. But um, we don't have to talk about it. No, no, I think more important than that is. uh, I mean, one thing we overlook everything that both you and Professor Marianne have said, I, I, I think I agree with. Uh, however, there is, how is it that um, lobbyists and, uh, and, and groups like the NRA are so able to dominate our political system? One of the reasons is money, no doubt about it. Another reason is the structure of the government itself, that we are not democratic in a small d sense, that since the beginning of this country, we were a republic that was intended to be ruled by the minority, the minority being the wealthy, those with money. Uh, People who didn't have money or property at the beginning of this country could not vote, no matter their color. Uh, Women could not vote. You know, obviously blacks could not vote. Um, The institutions that we have have been slowly moving toward democracy over the 200 plus years that we've been around or moving in the direction of of being democratic. Uh, But it's it's such a slow process that uh, they've been captured by a minority, by the corporations, by the for-profit industrial uh, trade groups. You know, we have to deal with that at some point. Things like the Senate, like the uh, Electoral College, like um, first past the post voting, uh, like uh, gerrymandering, all of these things allow this capture to happen. So I don't think those things should be underestimated. Yeah. 
and and the stupid constitutional amendment, the Second yeah. Amendment, which, as Professor Marianne said, uh, was never interpreted by the courts to be an independent right, a, a, a right for individuals. It was always interpreted as a right for uh, uh, groups or militias, right? Um, until the 1990s, when Antonin Scalia and Heller wrote the decision that said, no, it's an individual right. So for you know 200 years, it wasn't, but he changed it. And these are, this is the consequence, again, of an, an anti-democratic institution, the Supreme Court, uh, overriding the majority will of the people, which has for a long time wanted some measure of gun control. Oh, no, we can't do it because Antonin Scalia says the Second Amendment says this. Even though if you read the thing, uh, it's quite clear that it is not saying it is an individual right. Yeah. That's my little take on that. Yes. <laughs> I got a little uh, agitated. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why. I'm, I'm, I don't know what it is, but... Something in the air tonight. Yeah, what is it? Well, uh, Professor Ann Lee, uh, your thoughts on this? It's in the air. <laughs> are you? Are you? I'm. I'm ready to uh, have Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine arrested. <laughs> I'm I, like. I'm going nuts over what a piece. What bullshit. Tom Morello is from Rage Against the Machine. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's the least of our worries. The real worries are, you know, the the clown show that's going on in in government. You know, in the legislature, you have uh, uh, just the most bizarre kind of acting out constantly that is uh, really undermining whether things are whether real processes are going on. On the other hand, I, I still and it is probably very naive, but I truly believe that the, that the DOJ is working very hard to get an ironclad case to indict all the major figures in the insurrection. And it just it now appears that way, particularly with coordination of the subpoenas and all that other clown show stuff. It it's just going on and it's fine, you know, there's all this acting out and blah blah blah. Um but I think think uh they're using their time well and I and the shoe's gonna drop. It's just not gonna drop as fast. It just hasn't dropped like we want it to drop. But if it doesn't drop we're really screwed in 2022. I mean, if the GOP takes Congress, it could really be the ultimate clown show. And that is, you know, my particular worry is making Donald J. Trump Speaker of the House in 2023. And, and you know, they're going to sell it as innovative, you know, daring, vanguard activity. This is a new way of doing government, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's just going to get worse. It, it's does he not even know how a bill, does he know how a bill becomes law? I mean, that would be kind of, <laughs> the thing is that here's the problem. I remember, I remember Helene Olin from the Washington Post was on the show and I asked her, 
what if he doesn't leave office? And she said, wouldn't that be fun? She, and I went, <laughs> well, yeah, she, and I thought, and it's, this is how, like, it is a, a, a show. And I'm thinking, well, that would be fun to see Trump as Speaker of the House. That would be, I, we've never seen that before. That's something new. How much damage could he do? If... <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> What's the well? So Merrick Garland and you think the the Biden Justice Department is going to clean up? Well, they have they have been prosecuting, haven't they? They not people say they're not doing a good enough job, but you know sometimes trials take three years. Before, you know, right? It takes a while to. Well, even in the case of, uh, you know, uh, prosecuting Manafort and Flynn, you know, they, it, it, you can see as it, as it unfolded how complex it was that they tried to get more, more out of them. But then, you know, there's a lot of maneuvering going on. And I think what they want to do is have something so ironclad that you can't have people back out of that crap. They're really screwed. They're going to be really screwed. Um, and and I'd like to think that that career, you know, that there are smart people up there and they're going to do the right thing. But if they don't do the right thing and that's within the next year, we're all screwed. Right. I, I and and I, I I came across a new article in, in Alternet that uh, discussed <laughs> for all those who love uh, uh, being more anxious about other things, the giant meteor in 2031 and all that. Uh, there's a thing in Alternet that talks about. Um, the preparations for a war with a war with the PRC that it's not going to happen real soon, but by uh, it, it could happen as soon as uh, 2027. They they believe that both PRC and the U.S. will be at parity or will be in a situation where they can actually have war, which is really scary to just even speculate on, and. You know, a nuclear or not, that that's the kind of moment when it could happen during the Trump second term. Right. So they, they say that China is testing these hypersonic missiles. That America doesn't have. They're expanding. Oh, no, we have them. Oh, we do. Yeah. We, I, I thought for a long time. I, I, the, what I've been reading is that there, there's a hypersonic missile gap between the United States and China that we have. That's what I read. So that's is, <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. So My that chef. is so that yeah. is, is that West exec is that the military industrial complex trying to scare us into thinking we need to catch up with China even though we're ahead. Yeah, they just haven't been talking about how the Russians are actually a little farther ahead. Really. By the way, people yeah, should Russian, read you. The people Russians should, are slightly farther ahead than than the Chinese are, actually. People should be reading you over at the Daily Kos. I'll give your handle in a oh. second. Uh, and that in uh, asymmetrical, if we fought China or Russia asymmetrically, they might beat us. If we're talking about, you know, uh, a Internet shutting down our, 
Well, could be. I, yeah. You know, what's even interesting in the uh, the current, the sort of uh, culture war uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the woman tennis player, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Peng, Sh- Peng Shua, uh, who's uh, been incommunicado. The, the Women's Tennis Association has, has pulled all their events and it, it may leak over into the, uh, the ATP tour also pulling their events, which aren't quite as many. Uh, but the issue is uh, she got assaulted by a, uh, he's a vice premier. He's a retired vice premier. Uh, and so the dude had a lot of power. And uh, uh, there's ugly stuff in, in terms of that. And the, my point being is that today when, when, the, uh, when CNN had a, a feature on that talking to Patrick McEnroe, uh, uh, the PRC cut the CNN feed to China for that one uh, sequence. They, all they showed were color bars for that uh, 10 minutes. Hmm. Uh, CNN made that comment. They, you know, our, our feed is, has cut and cut in China for this segment. It, it was pretty interesting. We would never do that unless it involved the governor of New York. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the lesson from Chris Cuomo is? Don't be an a-hole. <laughs> the only thing, the only crime Chris Cuomo committed, the only reason Jeff Zucker is suspending and probably firing Chris Cuomo is because Chris Cuomo is a world-class D-bag. He's just, he could get away. That's the only crime he committed. Uh, well, what, I mean, he is related to the ex-governor, so. And, and, that is a crime. It, it was interesting TV to have them sort of fight on the air. I mean, that probably was the best television of all. You're talking about uh, uh, when it was the COVID stuff, the the playful banter about mom loves you best. Oh, even be, even before even be, before COVID, I, there was this kind of weird bullying going on between Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo. That, that was just made it more interesting, at least during that time period. Right. But I, I always I thought it was I playful. But now it's, it, you realize that it's more than just being playful. Oh, no, it's all about power. It's really they're, you know, trying to bust each other. It's, it's sort of interesting. I mean, you know, it had that that familial dynamic going on, which I, I, I always found interesting and probably CNN found it interesting, too. Right. Right. It, it's probably as close as they get to sort of Fox News sort of craziness. Right. Right. Boy, Mario Cuomo did a piss poor job raising his kids. The values mm. that he instilled, you know, the, the, the quiet, contemplative poet of a governor was seething inside, you know, the Hamlet of Albany. Uh, but underneath it all was this rage that manifested itself through his to horrific sons who will no doubt land on their feet, right? I guess. Yeah. You know, they're, well, who knows? Yeah. We'll see. Professor John, what's on your mind tonight? Well, um, I I received a request from a member of your audience to talk about the subsidization of fossil fuels. 
Mm. Uh, this was a report that was released by the IMF. Um, the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund, and reported in The Guardian in October. Um, this report says that uh, the fossil fuel industry benefits from subsidies of $11 million every minute. Globally, fossil fuel, fossil fuel subsidies were $5.9 trillion in 2020, or about 7% of GDP, and are expected to rise to 7.5% of GDP in 2025. And is that counting all the wars? Uh, no, not counting wars, no. <laughs> um, so just 8% of these um, subsidies uh, reflects undercharging for supply costs, that is, explicit subsidies. And 92% um, are undercharging for environmental costs and foregone consumption taxes. So in other words, implicit subsidies. Uh, efficient fuel pricing in 2025 would reduce global carbon dioxide. This is from the abstract of the study. Uh, reduce carbon dioxide emissions 36% below baseline levels which is in line with keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, while raising revenues worth 3.8% of global, global GDP and preventing uh, almost a million local air pollution deaths per year. Um, the ending of, sorry, getting- It's amazing. Bit. It's just amazing that, the, it's just amazing. So we're actually going in the wrong direction. They expect these right. subsidies to be increased next year. And, you know, we, we see countries uh, allowing new energy uh, discovery and production, uh, fossil fuel energy, that is, when we, we need to be uh, closing down the things that we have already. So there should be no more, you know, accessing new sources of fossil fuels for burning for energy purposes. You know, we use oil in a, a lot of applications, um, but most of the pollution from oil is from burning it for energy. Um, the G20 agreed in 2009 to phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And in 2016, the G7 set a deadline of 2025, but little progress has been made. In July, a report showed that the G20 countries had subsidized fossil fuels by trillions of dollars since 2015. How much is that? that was, How much? Trillions of dollars in subsidies. That, again, that's including uh, direct subsidies as well as undercharging for the damage that it does to the environment and for not taxing it sufficiently uh, so that the price of the damage it, that the use of the fossil fuels create is reflected in the price. 
Um, a senior analyst at the think tank Carbon Tractor, uh, Carbon Tracker, said to stabilize global temperatures, we must urgently move away from fossil fuels instead of adding fuel to the fire. It's critical <laughs> that governments stop propping up an industry that is in decline and look to accelerate the large, the low carbon energy transition instead. Um, you know, it, we've got to get serious about this, and and we just aren't doing it. Uh, I mean, any. Well, it's because it's it's about it's a it's about profits. I've been attending a a, a webinar by Resources for the Future, and it, this is on uh, offshore offshore wind. Uh, those people who are interested in the technical stuff. There's the second day of it tomorrow at uh, resources for the future and and it's really interesting how far they are far behind they are on u.s offshore wind development there's a ton of projects there's a lot of projects that have now been greenlit now that there's infrastructure money coming in from the biden administration i of course got myself into trouble asking a question about well what's the difference between what you're doing now and what was being done during the trump administration when they didn't give a shit about uh wind but uh, uh, where they're lagging is, is in areas like uh, uh, what are the labor impacts of all these things? And, you know, there's only uh, 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 there's something called the Jones Act, which which requires uh, U.S. flagged ships to be part of the installation of new wind turbines off the coast. And the problem is there's only one ship to do that right now that's a u.s ship so there's they've got to work out whether they're and they're talking about making a uh, building another one in other words this stuff has been on because i've been watching this for the last decade or so and it is just incredibly slow so most of the time today was talking about buzzwords about uh, sustainability about a blue economy about appeasing fisher fisheries it, it, it was it's quite amazing to me and their target it, their target does not even predict it uh, anywhere close to getting to helping uh, towards net zero we're talking 30 gigawatts and that's a really good uh, you know uh, a thing to try and pursue but i think we're really we're really falling behind when you consider that uh, there's only one or two demonstration projects that have only a few wind turbines and, and it, it's, uh, I mean, it could really take off, but the fact of the matter is if you only have one ship, because the Jones Act requires American flag ships for installing these darn things, it, you're really not building a lot. <laughs> Even though you've predicted that, well, we were gonna build uh, uh, turbines on this, you know, frontage and, and it's all divided up uh, according to uh, congressional districts you know, so for example, in my state, Bridgeport, New London are going to get something out of it. But, you know, there's it, it's still all pork barreling. And it's uh, it's a little scary that it's it's just not really happening as fast. I mean, we're in a place where Europe was 10 years ago. This is like it, and it's not getting any better. Well, John Kerry just uh, announced today that he has total confidence that the private sector will be solving the climate problem. Really? Yes. <laughs> I listened to a flack 
from Dominion Energy today talk about how wonderful Virginia Beach was. You know, it was just it was <laughs> like Chamber of Commerce stuff. It was it was the you know, and, and you've got the I mean, there are federal agency guys there. And, and I, it's, it's, it, it looked like, you know, 20 years ago in, in terms of procurement. Wow. Anyway. And- Five countries are responsible for two-thirds of these subsidies. China, the U.S., Russia, India, and Japan. Mm-hmm. And without any action, these subsidies are going to rise to $6.4 trillion in 2025. The wow. uh, IMF report found that the prices for fossil fuels were at least 50% below the true costs for 99% of coal, 52% of diesel, and 47% of natural gas in 2020. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, I want to show you a picture of Alec Baldwin's wife. This is Hilaria. This is a picture of her stepping out with Alec after his interview with George Stephanopoulos. This was just sent to me. She is in a in metallic leggings and a 1900 gold Montclair vest. I hope it was bulletproof. This is what she wore uh, outside. Uh, now, if your husband is facing numerous lawsuits, the first thing you do with lawyers and plaintiffs is not try to present yourself as having deep pockets. So, I mean, I can't think of a worse move for a wife to make to undermine her husband than wearing a $1,900 Montclair or Montclair gold-leafed vest to grab coffee in Manhattan. I almost forgive Alec Baldwin (laughs) with his wife. I almost forgive him. Something's going on. I mean, that is just grotesque that she would step out like that right after uh, he's asking for sympathy. Tell me you don't care about the plebes without saying you don't care about the plebes. (laughs) That's Right. The whole interview was about how he supports IATSE and it was just a low budget. Oh, it was just a complete PR exercise. It was shameless. I mean, you sort of have to admire it. And she also has the four and a half inch, you know, power heel look. Good Lord. So she's checking out. She's had it with him. Right. She just wants. I mean, I again, not she wants out. She's standing by him. But she's high. I mean, he's got a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he doesn't even know. That's the thing. Oh, by the way, he was the one, speaking of the Cuomos, he was the one who, con- he went out of his way to contact Governor Cuomo and said, I will advocate for you. I think the cancel culture has gotten out of hand. At the height of Governor Andrew Cuomo's accusations of sexual assault, not harassment, assault, Alec Baldwin said, I'll 
I'll go on the talk shows and defend Governor Andrew Cuomo. I think this cancel culture has gotten out of hand. And Cuomo said, we got it. Thank you. We're, we're OK. And Alec Baldwin went off the reservation, a reservation he wasn't even on. And I think I just said the wrong term, right? You're not allowed to say off the reservation. So I apologize. But he, he gave an interview anyway and defended Andrew Cuomo and said, this cancel culture is getting so out of hand. Uh, sexual assault. This is how twisted their minds get when when you're just living in a bubble. They live in this mm -hmm. bubble and nobody says to them, you're full of shit. You're sick. You're mentally ill. You know, I'm sure Alec Baldwin has seen doctors who are starstruck by him and don't tell him you're morally reprehensible. You can't, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. What is on your, uh, I did, let's go around just to make sure I asked everybody. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm just filled with contempt. I am, I just have, where did Professor John, did I lose Professor John? He's there. He just couldn't take it anymore. I'm I'm so No, we lost his camera. I, I have so much contempt. Professor Marianne, let me ask you, and then I'll ask Professor Ann Lee and Professor John Bick to make sure I covered everything. Well, uh, I just wanted to say something in pat passing. Um Similar to that law in Virginia where we thought that uh remember um friend of the show, who is it? The socialist was one of the people leading the charge in the Virginia State House to um, Carter. cap insulin. Carter. Yeah, cap, yeah. Carter, cap the, 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 the Uber driving Carter. Iraq yeah. veteran who yeah. ran for governor. And so anyway, uh, and then our, um, our friend of the show, uh, Jim Earl, had pointed out that really that's not what it was at all. Well, I was the the Republic New Republic had an article about what this copay uh, what this what this cap really means and it, I remember mentioning to you that I read it and there was some fuzzy wiggle words that I you know that I just picked up on that I was a little concerned about well in fact it isn't a $35 cap on insulin it's a $35 cap uh, cap on the copays for insulin improved by your insurance companies. Now, that is a vastly different thing than $35, than a $35 Explain that. Cap. Explain that. Okay, so the co-pays, so basically there's two things. First of all, this is just for people with insurance. You know, you have co-pays for your drugs, and oftentimes right. they can be pretty steep. And this would limit the co-pays to $35 a month, uh, to $35 a month on the approved insulin that your insurance company approves on. Now, of course, that doesn't solve the problem for the worst. The people, these people who die of uh, rationing of insulin are people mm -hmm. who don't really have insurance. And second of all, um, insulin and, and diabetes, this is the perfect marker for our healthcare system because unlike other drugs, which insurance companies also will deny their patients, if you're denied insulin, when you need it, you have hours often before you're in the hospital, before you're in a coma. You know, that's how desperate it is. 
I had a case with a friend. We were went to pick up her drugs for uh, anti-seizure medication. Um, and the pharmacy said, oh, your, your insurance company didn't approve of it. And she says, well, I need this drug. Why didn't I just pay for it? And, she, and they said, no, we can't give you this drug. And so she went a few days before she actually contacted her doctor and then had another, what do they call, trans-ischemic event. And when she finally got a hold of her doctor, her doctor was furious. Why didn't you call me immediately? But this is the problem. So, yes, again, this is, yeah, it's an achievement, but in the framework of keeping the insurance companies firmly in place. And this is just the kind of thing that, yeah, money, this is the money in our system talking. But it's more than that. We The, the partner to the money is the people currently in power who are only in power because of their fundraising ability. If we drastically change the system, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schubert and a whole lot of other people would not have their jobs. Yeah. Yep. That's the conundrum. And maybe our friend Alan Minsky can convince uh, his group to start using a lot of pressure on these people. If we withhold our votes, it's going to hurt you guys. So unless unless force is used, I mean, not violent force, political force is used on these people. You know, nothing is going to change. There'll be window dressing. There'll be some things around the edges, which for people affected will be significant. But in terms of the entire system, no. Yeah, I think they they would prefer they would prefer violence. They would prefer smash and grabs and looting because then they can militarize. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that's what they want. It's political. Oh, they can't get enough of these shooters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what they want. They'll never, they'll never really go after who is the congresswoman they want to strip. Somebody wants to Bobert. strip of her committee assignments because Bobert. she's said outrageous things. They love these people. They love all of the attention put to these people, right? Rather right. than solving our fundamental problems. We we have fun. to wrap it up. I, I, I I'm sorry for the rage tonight. Uh, my rage against rage against the machine will continue <laughs> after I say, because somebody in the chat room on YouTube said, look up Tom Morello and Bernie. And now my head's exploding. So I, I, I'm reading the chat room. <laughs> Google Tom Morello and Bernie Sanders. And my head is like about to explode. Harvard educated Tom Morello. Uh, the first, uh, uh, Professor Ann Lee, uh, b- b- did I get everything? Did we cover everything? And how do we read you on Daily Kos? That's, uh, I am uh, A-N-N-I-E-L-I, Annie Lee, at uh, Daily Kos. Right, which is, I love it, I do. Uh, and Thank you. Professor Jonathan Bick, did we cover everything? Is there anything... Uh, I, I think uh, I have a couple other things, but they'll keep till next week. Um, Very quickly, just uh, what, give me the headlines, just so I don't. I, I talked too much tonight. I apologize. Okay. Well, the uh, there was a article in the New York New York Times um, on November thirtieth uh, about masks, uh, face masks for preventing COVID, and how. Uh, so many of the online sellers of these masks are selling um, 
ineffective knockoff masks that do not meet the requirements uh, that they're claiming, uh, for example, for N95 or particularly uh, KN95 masks produced in China. Um, so you have to be very careful when buying these face masks. Uh, there is a group called uh, the N95 Project, which is a nonprofit that um, evaluates masks and uh, tries to identify sellers that are uh, reliable. Um, you know, obviously any mask is better than no mask, uh, but if you are inside, you should be wearing a high quality mask preferably N95, if not a good quality KN95. N95. Great. Thank you. Uh, I got to wrap it up. Thank you. I'm very grateful for Professor Ann Lee. Read her over at The Daily Co's. She is a... Uh, a treasure. She is also a former associate professor at Norwich University and is a former HBCU associate dean, as well as an independent scholar in geospatial information science. And uh, we will see Professor John, I hope, and Professor Ann Lee uh, at office hours. And I look forward to uh, anything you have to offer. And Professor Marianne Cummings is uh, impossible to argue with because she was not only a Bernie delegate, uh, she took his advice and ran and got elected. So it's hard to accuse her of cynicism. So I, uh, it's hard to accuse the, the physicist, Professor Marianne Cummings, of cynicism. You're out there knocking on doors for Nina Turner. You, uh, I always say you put your feet where your mouth is. Yes, and that's a great line. And I'll also be doing it for Janita Med, who is still coming on the show. He's running for Congress. Another Bernie delegate who is uh, running against uh, Krishnamurti, one of the most conservative uh, Democrats in Congress. So right. we'll also hook him up, hook him up with uh, Howie. Yes, good. No, he's, he's hooked up with us too. Oh. Yeah. That is fantastic. That is Alan Minsky. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. We're about to be joined by Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky, who is there. We are. Just one one quick thing about Tom Morello. I, it's not my fault. Somebody I googled it, but there's something new. You said Google Tom Morello and, and Bernie. Uh, I did, but a 2017 article came up. Is there something new? Well, it depends what you found. The first thing I found is Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine complaining that Bernie stole one of his lines in his speech. Uh, apparently that was his complaint. Uh, Rage Against the Machine's uh, Morello did not support Bernie in 20. 16 or 2020. This is the column, the Harvard educated Tom Morello rage against the machine. Have you read his columns, his self aggrandizing columns in the New York Times where he compares himself to Joe Strummer 
that, that false humility. This is what Rage Against the Machines Morello, according to Rolling Stone, said. He's expressed slightly jaded feelings about Bernie Sanders. The Harvard-educated Tom Morello said, quote, he certainly seems like the person with progressive politics and integrity. This is going to set you off, Professor. This is what Harvard-educated Tom Morello said. Uh, Bernie uh, seems like the person with progressive politics and integrity, but I worked as a scheduling secretary for Senator Alan Cranston for two years, so I got to see how the sausage is made, and it's not pretty. My emphasis has always been on direct action activism and the kind of change that comes from below, not from electing someone and crossing your fingers that they're the Messiah. And then his bandmate, uh, Tim Comerford from Rage Against, Rage Against the Machine said, electoral politics is all bullshit and Bernie Sanders is no exception. That's your Rage Against the Machine, who I, I saw Tom Morello in 2014 performing at a private party for a hedge fund manager with his little guitar that says, this machine kills fascists. And he's got these coke-addicted male and female models and hedge fund managers bouncing up and down to the ghost of Tom Joad. And I thought, maybe Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine is full of shit. Maybe. Okay, okay. okay. I, I, I just love walking into the lion's den here. Why, is he a donor? <laughs> Tom, um, I was the producer of Tom's radio show for years. Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine? Yeah, him and uh, Serge Tonkian. I'll was, tell you, uh, when you get to the pearly gates, you have a lot to account for. Yeah, you gave us Jimmy Dore, too. And me. You're responsible for that's your biggest crime is me. All right. Defend Tom Morello. What am I getting wrong? That he's not an opportunistic Harvard infection. Um, said like a true Columbia man who apparently was at a party for some hedge fund guy. I, I was there. I was there with a comedian who was performing, who doesn't purport to be. I was I went there for the free food. So t you know, defend, that, defend Tom that, Morello. To me, tell me how somebody who... You didn't ask me to defend. Your, your, your sound is bad. I just sort of wanted to walk into the lion's den and just confess. No, no, defend Tom Morello, please. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not accountable for my, my friends or the my former co-workers' politics, am I? I mean, you know, he should defend himself if, if, if he needs defending Tom. Here's what Tom would say. I don't know what Tom would say. Okay, first of all, I knew he didn't endorse Bernie Sanders. Obviously, I differ with him on that. Um, and Tom, um, I, you know, I just feel like uh, I, I'm just going to set him up for more, uh, you know, um, negative things. But I think he sees himself um, in a kind of more of a, a revolutionary Marxist communist type of politics. Sure, from Harvard. From Harvard. And now, he didn't even know what the role IATSE plays. I spoke to me and it couldn't tell me the role IATSE plays in rock concerts. Mr. Harvard educated. Let's get saved by the, the products of the oppressor, Harvard. Um, I know that, I know that um, he has a family background 
where um, his his relatives from Kenya were uh, revolutionary anti-colonialists. So he has a sense um, of entitlement. So he thinks he's like born into the revolution. So he doesn't I, I have to. He doesn't his, have to work mom, hard. His mom. His mom met his. I believe the story is. Look, I'm not. I'm not defending. You can take this information and him, but don't expect me to defend Tom. I'm just giving you information. I did work with him um, for four or five years, maybe six or seven years. You know, you lose track of time in Pacifica Radio Land. Um, it was a really positive experience working with Tom. Obviously, he was very rich. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, um, he, uh, what, what the rage against the machines? Tom Morello, who went to Harvard and is now a columnist for the New York Times, is Professor K. I'm shocked to discover that Tom Morello is rich. Have you yeah. read the Have you read the shit he's written for the New York Times? I'm ready to cancel. I, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't read. I haven't read a word of it. What is he writing? He writes about Pete Seeger or Joe Strummer and then plugs his own music. It is so self-serve. It is, it is a master's class in self-aggrandizement and self-promotion. I can't, if you want to, no, actually it's embar- It's not a master's class. It's, it's shameless and, and transparent. You would think at Harvard, he would have learned how to be a more subtler self-promoter. Oh yeah, that <laughs> is what they teach at Yale, not at Harvard. They teach it at Yale. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right. I I, I uh, apologize. Is anybody having trouble getting their pills? Their, the supply chain. Here's one. Uh, some people have been telling me they can't get their prescriptions filled. That's you may be looking at one <laughs> that might be is is somebody, you know, all our drugs are not made in the United States anymore. And all those container ships that are piling up and their supply chain issues are you having problems getting your pills? If you're having trouble getting your pills, let me know. I, I'm beginning to sense a supply chain issue. So. I uh, don't want to brag, but I don't take any pills. Oh. Yeah, I don't either, but I want to go back to Morello for a second, because here, here's the thing about Morello. Here's, here's the thing about Morello. Um, um, Seriously, I, I mean this. The guy, the guy has his political convictions. He, comes he has his what? Has his political convictions, rage against the machine and all that. But here's the thing. The guy can play a wicked guitar. Yeah, so know? could Eric Clapton. And yeah, Eric Clapton is an anti-immigrant, anti-vaxxer, like racist. racist. So. I know, but but they both, we can agree, can really friggin' play guitar. Right, okay? and, and so they think they're better, and they won the genetic lottery, or I practice, he's, Morello says he practiced, one of his columns in the New York Times was how he practiced 15 hours a day. Just, you know, but he thinks he he's earned the right that he's better than we are. He, see, he sees, you know, classes, he sees, he, you know, he thinks he's better than people. I guess he is. He writes the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, here we are. Here we are. One, one, one of the things I can't stand about, about contemporary political discourse in America is the compulsion everybody has to want to be right all the time. And maybe I just don't fit in this regard, and maybe I shouldn't be the person who's the spokesperson for the organization that I lead. 
because I don't really have a compulsion to be right all the time. If if Tom is writing really, you know, ingratiating uh, dross for the New York Times, I'm not going to defend him, you know. Well, but and it, you, sad you, if he is, you know. But I also don't. I'm not quick to condemn somebody I know. I'm not going to. I am. Him. I think we need. Cool. I, I'm being serious. <laughs> we need that's, to practice. Totally cool too. I, I, I know, think it's. I think there are char- I, I, there are charlatans who come from Harvard who who pretend that they're on our side. You have no idea how many people are pissed off at me for going after Tom Morello. He's on Why are you going after on our side? He's not on our side. He didn't support Bernie. He didn't support Bernie. He's the enemy. You know, it's time for our side to practice the art of personal destruction, the politics of personal destruction. If you call yourself a Democrat and you're rich and you're saying, you know, I'm for Medicare for all, but, you know, we don't want to put the health insurance employees out of business. You're the enemy. You're a fraud. Help me out here, Professor Harvey J.K. Did you see the did you see that piece? I think I sent it to you in a text. It's actually not a piece. It may well be a piece as well, but it was a video editorial by two New York Times. In fact, two New York Times writers on the hypo- liberal hypocrisy. I, I thought that was good. I, yeah, tell it's me about it. I, I like, try to play it, but it's, it's rare that I like anything from the New York Times as much it, as I it, like that. People were shocked. I was shocked, not by the by, by the argument, but by the fact it was two New York Times people yeah. who did it. I know. What did they say about liberal hypocrisy? Well, they th- their point was that you know they laid out how the Democrats have in their platforms these kinds of initiate. You know, they're going to they promise certain initiatives on housing on taxes and so on. And then they point out the housing crisis in California, the fact that Washington, Washington State, what is it, ranked, ranked above, it was like number one above Texas in not taxing wealth, right? Something like that. I mean, it was just these kinds of things. And um, what was the, th- it was something about New York State. What, what was that one? Jeez. Just to riff on the point, too, about California, people across the country, um, with all the things I'm on around California, they think that California is some kind of like liberal progressive paradise. (laughs) And then you see the teachers strike in West Virginia, you see the teachers strike in Oklahoma, then you see the teachers strike in L.A. And it's like, fuck, yeah, California can underpay its teachers just like with can match anybody. You know, (laughs) you match the cost of living in West Virginia and the cost of living in Los Angeles, where the pay grade is for the Los Angeles teachers. And they have it just as hard off here as you do in West Virginia, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and what the fuck was Prop 13 about to begin with, which came from California? So, exactly. Tell people what Prop is. That's, that's sort of the spirit of the piece. Tell us who Har- Howard Jarvis is and Prop 13 and what that did to schools. Uh, which, which is the third rail still of California politics to this yeah. day. And I don't view it that way, but, you know. And that is the Democratic Party, Professor Harvey J.K. I'm getting my last licks in before January 1st, when I will then explain all the good things that this grifter, <laughs> Joe Biden, has pulled off. I'm getting my la- I got three more weeks to get my last licks in on this piece of excrement. Look, I, I know of I know I live in Wisconsin, which is sort of flyover territory. Uh, we call it fly well, under. We call it fly under territory. Fly under. But I'd like to know, does anybody know, do, do we know where our Build Back Better bill is? 
Yeah, read David I Day. I don't really want to talk about that anymore. But read yes, David Day and at the American Prospect. You know, this great, uh, you know how like Nancy wanted paid family leave? Yeah. Turns out it's a love, according to David Day and over at the American Prospect, it's a love letter to the insurance companies. Yeah. I'm going, why, that Nancy Pelosi, she fought for paid sick leave and paid family leave. It's going to be like uh, a $10 billion gift to the health insurance companies. They're going to administer the insurance, well, not the health insurance. I said some weeks ago, I was expecting all of this to be lucrative for the capitalist class. Lucrative. No, and then, and then the great article in Jacobin uh, critiquing the means testing around the um, uh, paying for daycare. Oh yeah. From, yeah. uh, you know, the guy who does their, their analyses over there, what's his name? Uh, years. yeah, yeah. Check that out. This, as I said, this is, this, this, this is uh, last week's show. Remember I, you, nobody could see me. I was making everybody nauseous with the video and, uh, and the food. Uh, but the, um, um, uh, this is the if again i know harvey doesn't like this phrasing but roosevelt saves saves capitalism biden saves neoliberalism yeah and and the term liberal when the new york times attacks liberalism i guess roosevelt and kennedy and johnson called themselves liberals but they were really you know that kennedy kennedy actually of resisted ever calling himself a liberal he, he did. Um, he said to someone, I, ne- I, I was never I was never a liberal. I didn't join the American Veterans Committee, which was the liberal, prog- very liberal and progressive veterans organization. He, he strictly avoided it. He was, his family was very conservative, um, tied in with the McCarthy, you know, with McCarthy. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt did not want him at all. Um, didn't trust him and despised his father because he was basically willing to sell out to Hitler, the, you know, in 1939, 40. Um, oh, so, hold on a second. I'm sorry. It was Matt Bruning who did the analysis of the... Right. Of okay. The, yeah. So and then, and she and wanted then, Adley and, Stevenson. And they, had to talk her in, they had to have her meet with Kennedy and she basically said, okay, in the end, she'd, she'd go that way. But of course, she also was willing to go with Adley Stevenson, who was no real liberal, by the way. Right. That you told I, that upset me when yeah. you told first you told me that Jimmy Carter was a bad was, guy, was a bad guy. Right. And then, then I told you that Adley no, Stevenson. No, then you told me McGovern oh, was a bad well, guy. That one people take me apart for. But I, I'm not a, I was not a fan of I didn't vote. For, I was my first time ever voting presidential. I, I voted for a socialist. OK, this, this and, is uh, what you've done to the show. You, you ruined Jimmy Carter for us. Then then you ease into it with Jimmy Carter. Then you ruin George McGovern. Then you ruin Adley Stevenson for us. Let Who's, just give me a who, shot at John Kennedy, man. <laughs> That's what got it. I've heard that before. A lot of people said that. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, that was terrible. I didn't do that as a joke. Sorry. <laughs> I walked into that one. I was the straight man in that one. Henry Wallace? You're going to go after Henry Wallace? No, well, I'm not as I'm not as enthusiastic about Henry Wallace as my <laughs> dear friend John Nichols is. Let's put it that way. I'm going to I'll Is that because Henry Wallace was it 
another trader to I his think court. Henry Wallace. I, I think there is there was some reason to think Henry Wallace might have been a bit flaky. That's all. Well, the 1948 campaign would suggest as much. Yeah, it would definitely suggest as much. Yeah. And also, I, I also think he made one. I think he made one big strategic mistake. He he allowed that he allowed the tr- likes of Truman to drive him out of the Democratic Party. And he shouldn't have. He should have he should have stayed in the party and contested what was going on from within the party and not sought that. Peter, what is it? There's a name for that kind of thing when you go off and Peter Pan run in a what's that? A Peter Pan fan. Yeah, it was better to say Peter Pan, but there's another term for the people go off, you know, in some kind of illusion to run in in some third party moment. He was brave guy in some ways. He went south and attacked Jim Crow and segregation. So I I have mixed feelings. I, I, I admire him in many ways. But should he have been president? People on the left get very upset when I say it. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know. I don't think so. Well, what did he do? I have two questions. One is, what did Henry Wallace do in 48 that was flaky other than a third party run? And had it was like it was a campaign that was basically taken over by the Communist Party. Did he know that? He had to. He couldn't. If he didn't, then he really was flaky. Yeah, that's that's sort of my point on flakiness. Yeah, would have been would have been based on that. And so was he, uh, as many were back in 48, was he a communist or a... a, a... No, no, I, I, no, I, not, not, I don't believe for a moment that Henry Wallace was a communist. But he had no problem. He was, a pre- he was a great vice president in the years 41 to 40, well, sorry, yeah, 41 to 40. That's right. No, he would have been a bitter vice president after the 44 convention. Yeah. And, and what would have happened had Roosevelt not left it up to the smoke filled room and said, I'm keeping Wallace? What would have, what kind of president? Wouldn't there have been like that proverbial halo effect that would have turned Henry Wallace into a right wing asshole? <laughs> Wouldn't he have given us a national they, security look, state the way? It's very hard to find people you can really embrace in politics. Let's face it. Okay. You sound like Tom Morello. No, I embraced Bernie Sanders. I've liked Bernie Sanders since the since the eighties. And I, my only thing about Bernie is that for all of that which he accomplished, I just wish he had done something more. And I've always said this: he he brought back social democracy onto the American agenda, but he probably should have left left us a legacy of speech making that would have then propelled the movement all the more effectively. I'm seeing a cranky Alan Minsky tonight, which I like. I've never seen oh, it. I'm not very I'm not that cranky, but uh, it's um, Bernie, I like Bernie, it. Bernie, though, um, Bernie. Um, yeah, but hang on. Can you can you control your hang on your sound? You are the, the you you produce radio for for Tom Morello, Ralph Nader. You you run radio. When are you? What, why is your sound so crunchy? He's in a different oh, room. I should go get my better get my better mic. No, just just don't, no no just don't touch the computer. No, this mic is a janky old. No, it's, it's just don't touch the keyboard. That's all. Sorry, I'm not <laughs> trying. To, 
I expect you need a better mic. I, no, I'm I, can I just say, I, Alan, I, Alan, you're wrong. You're wrong. Sorry, not Alan. Sorry, David, you're wrong. He he's usually in a in a room that's more conducive to broadcasting. Number one, number two, he doesn't have the right mic, and number three, he's in a cranky mood. He's in a cranky <laughs> mood, and tonight he he didn't show up wearing the BBC bow tie and black jacket that I demand of all our guests. <laughs> oh boy. All right, go ahead. I, I apologize. I, I, I think that's By the way, Alan, it's good to see you. It's great to see you, Harvey. And David too. Nice to see yeah. everybody. And but uh, I was serious. Where where so I want I, I know it sounded humorous. Well maybe quasi humorous. But I, I just don't even know where the Build Back Better Bill is. Yeah, where is it? Oh, it's it's um getting it's getting it's, uh, stripped apart by Joe Manchin. It's uh, uh it's supposed to come forward. Schumer's supposed to bring it forward next week, and we'll see what shape it's in at that point. I mean, I I definitely met with a Senate office that told me changes are happening. That means it's going to have to go back to the House. And uh, and when once changes happen. We'll hope to see a few things happen to the bill that won't happen, and it'll get worse. And will Bernie support it? it what, Bernie is going to, right? He's going to have to. Yeah, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie's, uh, Bernie has been frustrating me a bit over the past, uh, you know, week to ten days. You know, nobody's nobody's perfect. It's a tough situation he finds himself in. Look, the truth of it is, is 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 we can gripe about the Democrats, but when it's 50-50 in the Senate and you have Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, Bernie Sanders, and even Joe Biden are not to blame for what this end result is going to be. Um, maybe I think some of the blame really comes with the idea that it was going to go through at a, the, what was it, 3.5 or 3.6. They really sort of had, had, they had us believe that for quite a while, that it was going to go through like that. Um, and I really think Pelosi, even there, um, is as uh, is, is, as better as she is at, at at organizing her caucus than Chuck Schumer, and is much smaller and what should be easier to organize caucus. Um, she definitely had us believe it was going to go through at three point five. Yeah, she did. You're right. And uh, and that that was very disappointing. But um, I mean, I definitely spoke to a very good Senate office, one that's very much allied with us on so many of our issues and they said look there's there they are powerless to block mansion from from doing stuff and then we did concur that um the person this hangs on now is not schumer as much as biden biden really should be doing more and as much as possible to say i'm the president the president of your party and what you're doing now is not acceptable and it has to be like this and, and, and he should have been saying that 10 months ago, nine months ago. Well, you know, I, re I read Jonathan Carl's book, which is pretty good. And according to Manchin's people and Biden's people, Biden did call uh, um, the the bill. It, what was the bill in March? That was to extend unemployment. It was the, the, relief, the relief act. I think it was. Called. Yeah. And and uh, Manchin wouldn't extend the unemployment benefits and Biden said, according to Jonathan Carl, I'm the president of the United States. I know how this works with people like Manchin. I have one call in me. 
on this bill to him and he used it and mansion was like i love you joe but i don't work for you i work for the people of west virginia and the people of west virginia the this is what mansion said the people of west virginia i cannot go home and explain to them why you're getting why why people are getting paid not to work that the people of west virginia would be appalled that people are getting paid not to work is that what do you think the people of west virginia would be appalled would say that? yeah no yeah. absolutely well, it's not. great to know that, that joe manchin supports a, a government full employment program then yeah thank you exactly exactly thank you yeah um okay president bernie sanders we're now into alternative history 10 months in professor harvey jk would bernie sanders president sanders fall into the dust heap currently occupied by adley stevenson <laughs> president kennedy jimmy carter uh who else no. george mcgovern there was some there was something that Bernie and eugene did. now eugene mccarthy was a piece of shit right i mean all seriousness right is that i i i actually don't know enough about mccarthy to conclude but that, wasn't but my but, instincts are telling me you're right right i uh, i was told <laughs> my father misled me when i was a kid and he said uh, mccarthy is the good guy robert f kennedy is stealing his thunder and then the more I read, I found out that it was actually Robert Kennedy who was more to the left than Eugene McCarthy. But Eugene McCarthy had Peter, Paul and Mary on his side. It's a tricky one for 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 um, I'm, I'm wondering about. I sort of always heard that 1960s and earlier Hubert Humphrey was a good thing. Yes. The how mayor. Good, how good was Hubert? How good was he? Hubert he might have been the farthest to the left of all of them. Yeah, I, I think I think whatever his faults were and the, and the big fault was that he was so, so, so deferential to LBJ on on the war. But I think I think Hubert Humphrey would have been the best choice. 60, 68, in, in 68. Yeah. He, oh, what he, about in 60? He ran in 60. Oh, in 60. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Hubert Humphrey was a social Democrat. He was a. A, a firm FDR, if not further to the left than than FDR Democrat, um, you with, know, he, with great with great early career pronouncements on civil rights too. Yeah, but for yeah. the time, right? Wasn't he the mayor? He was was he the mayor of he Minneapolis? Did his degree at LSU, and it wrote his thesis. I think it was on, I think it was on FDR on the New Deal. I could be wrong. But then and he they, was a spoiler. But then he was a was spoiler. Published. For McGovern, he was a, he was a spoiler for McGovern. He was not. He kind of undermined McGovern and was a little more by by the time uh, the Johnson administration ended. Humphrey came out smelling like a like a hawk. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 It's too. Yeah. It's too bad. So who 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 can we trust? Bernie, as long as he doesn't. But I do get... want to add, but you should know that later, in before he died in sixty, not sixty, in, in um, seventy eight, there was the Humphrey Hawkins bill. I mean, he was he, he was much more committed to the kinds of things that that 
classic left Democrats would be committed to. Which was Humphrey Hawkins passed and it it demanded full employment, but then they stripped it. In a watered down version. Yeah. Watered, very watered down. Yeah. Right. Alan Minsky just stormed off the show. You said he was cranky. He's cranky. I like him cranky. I've never seen him flustered. I've never seen him get upset. Not flustered. You've not flustered me. I got a microphone. You're hooking it. Do you know how to hook up a microphone? What if, by the way, in the what ifs of history, Gerald Ford should have beaten Jimmy Carter. Because then Reagan would never have ensued. Right. 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 But we would have had Rumsfeld and Cheney. We would have skipped. We would have skipped right to 2001. They got rid of, we really, it would have just, they they cut out the middle man and we would have gone right to it. Right to it. Right right to it. it. Yeah. What would you be complaining? By the way, as long as we're into that 30 year period, 30, 20 year period, did I ever tell you that it was a cousin of mine who put Dukakis in the tank that day that became the uh, the joke? Yeah. Yeah. Cousin of mine who, uh, who, who a cousin who headed up Massburg up in Massachusetts uh, was recruited. She was real critic of his governorship. And then he recruited her to join him to really push the environmental question. So one day we were talking this is years ago and she said, and she said, and I'm the one who put him in the, who scheduled him in that tank. Jack Kennedy, I'm, I'm not making this up, had a rule. Never wear a hat in public. Ne- like when he oh, yeah. never wear a mortar board. When you speak at a, a university, yeah, uh, he he said never wear, never be seen in a hat. Had he worn a hat in Dallas that day, he might have been. All oh, right, I'm not going to do that joke. <laughs> hey, uh, do you believe uh, that he had a th- lot of rules about what you shouldn't and shouldn't do, Jack Kennedy? Yeah, you should have put a hat on the, the story the, about the, the story about. I'm sorry, I, we shouldn't get into these things. But Go I ahead. review the book. I reviewed this book maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago for Daily Beast, which had which was a real effort to make Kennedy's last year into something that was that that if he had lived, think of the things he could have done kind of stuff. Right. But it was also the case that it completely ignored, you know, the fact that he was having an affair with an East German woman whose husband was, you know, probably East German intelligence who basically, you know, pushed I think it was a White House intern to do X, Y, and Z. Not even with him, but with others. I mean, it's just, what a guy. Compromot. Yeah. Uh, can you believe that there are people who don't believe there was a conspiracy to kill him? That they, they... I have to tell you that until very recently, I was in that, I, I did not believe there was a conspiracy. You didn't believe there was a conspiracy. I you mean, think... I knew there was a conspiracy to kill him, but I didn't think it was the conspiracy that uh, filmmakers usually go with. Interesting. Alan, do you think there, to me, there's no question that there was a conspiracy. I mean, I think the only thing, uh, having <laughs> absorbed a lot of information about this case, right? Yeah. yeah. I think the thing that I've arrived at is just that it doesn't seem very likely that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald killed him by himself. That's that's what, yeah, right. And that's where I've come to conclude, yeah. Right. He might have been one of the shooters. 
But yeah, it seems like there's more shots going on. There. there were more shots going on and more more scheduled attempts at Kennedy. In other words, if yeah, Oswald it just, it just it just seems like the people who at the site, the thing that always gets me is at the at the actual site, and I've never been around live gunfire, a live shooting scene, but they all ran to the grassy knoll. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. What is uh, any good news coming out of the Biden administration? Anything good the Democrats are doing? Because starting January 1st, I have to sell this horse shit. I feel morally obligated to start selling uh, this lemon. The Democratic Party. The lemon you know, selling this Why used so? car to people. No, no, you don't have to do that then. You, you got a whole primary season where you have great candidates you can endorse and talk I know. about and bring on the show. Yeah. I know. And then, but then, the, then the endorsement of the crap doesn't really have to kick in until the end of the primary season. Is it conceivable? I mean, it, run, it runs so late that it's it's maybe a little bit before the very end of it, but yeah. It, is, you know, it is this the darkness? Will we look back at 2020, what is it, 2021 and say, you know, it wasn't, well, people are getting evicted. People are falling through. You, you just can't deny the poverty, you know, if you can't well, here's, ignore. Here's one, for the, here's one for the Democrats who need young, young people. You, you know, you, the election was so close with Trump versus Biden, 40,000 votes, three states. You can point to a number of different constituencies. But one that isn't spoken about that much that's very clear is young people won the election for Joe Biden over Donald, over Donald Trump. If they want to hold on to the House, which is viewed as an extreme long shot, they got to get young people out to vote. <laughs> They're ending the student debt moratorium on January 31st. There's a policy for you. This January 31st, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I have this. <laughs> I have this other theory that that when push comes, that Biden is actually going to is going to sign off on eliminating the student debt. That will help him with a lot of people's votes. I mean, or or he really does want the landslide next next November to the Republicans, and not because people are going to vote Republican, but right now young people see very little sense right. of direction, and as a consequence, they probably won't just won't turn out to vote. Well, and and without without a heavy uh, black turnout. At the voting booth in, in the midterms, it'll be a complete slaughter of the Democrats. And if voting rights doesn't pass, um, you know, the, just the resentment will be so extreme. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a very ugly thing to, to point out at the moment. But, um, you know, the sort of there's there's a, there's a good chance that the Supreme Court uh, ruling the way that now people are expecting them to rule, rule on the Mississippi case would motivate democratic voters yeah i mean i was i always i mean i, I see marianne's hanging around so i'll say this but, but you need all three just to, before harvey goes on marianne you need all three of those groups you need the the coming out to vote to protect abortion rights you need black voters and you, you that's the democratic coalition you get slaughtered stacy abrams right. is running against kemp right in georgia Right, right, right. And then go ahead. We I interrupted her. Yeah, yeah Stacey. I wonder. I want. Here, when I went, by the way, I'll, I, let me talk about the Stacey Abrams thing. That that came as a surprise to me, but I I think that some very very wealthy folks must have said to her, "Look, 
only way we're going to hold on to Georgia is if you if is if you run. You've got to do this. She she always aspired to be the, the governor, but I I'm con- it's got to be the case that they they saw the handwriting on the wall and said we've got to do something, and she was the the way to do it. So there you and go. she never but, conceded. But I you know I criticized her for giving up. Looking, I owe her in a, as though she knows yeah. who I am. But I rereading her speech, she did not concede. Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew her for a while during that period of time. Right. I mean, I still know who she is and she knows who I am. I remember you I sent me a picture her. of her and I said, I said, yeah. I said something like she should have stayed in. But she's a, yeah. you know, she's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, she, she doesn't come far enough left, but no, yeah, she, she is amazing. Yeah. She is amazing. Um, but I was what I was going to say is for a long time, I've really kind of thought Marianne was exaggerating the state of Joe Biden's mental you know, conditions. But when I look at him lately, it's you got to you got to wonder. There's, there's just no energy there. There's no yeah, yeah. there's just nothing there. And I it's hard for me to believe he'll finish his term right now. It may be an advantage. It may be a feint. It, it, you know, it worked for Reagan. It worked for George W. Bush. It worked for Eisenhower. There's something appealing about a doddering. I'm being serious. The American people see either their grandfather or they, I don't know, you know. Maybe, but. Well, let me Reagan give you ran against a loser too. Reagan ran against Mondale. What? Well, wasn't Mondale a good? Don't tell me he was bad. What idiot goes on national television and say he's not going to tell you? We'll raise your taxes. Well, an honest well, man. I'm kind of an idiot, right? An honest man. No, he could. Not true. He could have said, in a Bernie-like fashion, "We're going to raise the taxes." On the billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's better. But he 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 was a uh, a simple man. Oh, he's a good, sure he was a good guy, but he was a loser. And then what happens? Remember, he lost the Wellstone election too. He lost the Wellstone election when Wellstone died. Yeah. He was put in as the replacement candidate. Oh, I forgot. Boy, here I am in the next door state, and I completely forgot. Well, hang on. Given that Al Franken was against Medicare for all and a big proponent of Obamacare, hence a disappointment, was Wellstone? How how good was Wellstone, Professor K? Well, you're I'm not going to ruin Paul Wellstone for us, are you? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to. But I vaguely recollect he was still in. He was still very much alive and in the Senate when the USA Patriot Act came forward. Correct? Am I right? Yes. I, and there was only one no vote on the USA Patriot Act. Russ Feingold of Wisconsin, not Wellstone of Minnesota. Okay, ruin Russ Feingold. <laughs> For us. Okay, I'll ruin Russ Feingold. Russ Feingold. <laughs> this is, this is, we should do a show called Harvey K. Ruins Russ History. Russ Feingold, who, who I would not hesitate ever to vote for. I, I'm, I right. wish he hadn't. I, even now, I can't figure out how Ron Johnson beat him. And it was it, well, I guess it was, two, was it 2010 that time? Maybe it was. Um, it, where was I going? So 
do you remember when Ash, when Ashcroft came before the Judiciary Committee? I believe Feingold voted yes in committee to put putting the name forward. And I thought, what the hell is he doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before you go, this was fun. Before you go, the great resignation. David Dayan has been writing about the great resignation. And and I thought you were going to tell me resigned as the editor. No, of, uh, no. God forbid. <laughs> oh, God. God that, forbid. that actually was the worst thing of the day, I thought. Oh, no. No, no, not. Everybody should read The American Prospect. David Dayan is just incredible. I'm reading about the great resignation, but I'm also reading, and this is how I want to end the show with this thought, that uh, because of COVID, because people aren't going out, because of the government sharing some of the largesse, there is uh, $1.6 trillion in excess savings. Americans have banked $1.6 trillion in excess savings. This is the uh, best savings rate that Americans have exhibited since World War II. The and best savings rate. Yes. Right. Best savings rate. Americans are saving money and they're quitting their jobs. And so my it's proposal, like, I'm sorry, strong correlation there. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And my, and my advice to America is the great resignation, the great resignation should also include resigning from Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, when it comes to buying all this crap. You've saved $1.6 trillion. Keep it. Don't buy crap. Don't participate in this economy. Do not. This is an immoral economy. You're being sold stuff that's either bad for the planet or bad for labor. Do not participate in this. Whatever you think you need. You don't yeah. need. Um, I like him. He's in a sort of Howard Beale mode today. Don't you think, Harvey? Yeah. David's, I, I, David's in a good Howard Beale mode. Yeah. I, I was going to say that uh, I, I'm not telling people to shop or not. I, I'm not a consumer boycott type of guy. Okay. Um, but but I've never shopped in Walmart. Let me make that clear. Okay. Um, I, you know, one point six trillion. It's amazing. I remember a time when when pundits were complaining about Americans' failure to save. Right. I mean, that goes along with what you were saying before this pandemic. And now, you you really have to think. Wow, one point six trillion. But the question is, they probably had a lot more saved, and thus they went out and have already been binge shopping, and that's why the supply chain can't keep up. Right. I guess so. Yeah, we're we're buying stuff that that we don't need. Alan, don't you think, do you, do you waste on crap that you don't need? Oh, yes. Um, yes, I confess to that on the holidays. It's just you have family members, you feel obliged, they feel slighted, you buy them something they don't need and it's never used. Well, for what it's worth, my sister and I and our family, we agreed we would not exchange presents. We, I have an agreement to, you know, I'm willing to compromise. And I've said to my friends and family, 
I'll meet you halfway. You can give me a gift. So, uh, but I'm not going to participate in this nonsense. That's great. I'm, I, in the spirit if I were of, good at remembering people's jokes and things like that, you'd be a great source of free jokes. You know that? I would, I'll come to your home and ruin it. I, I swear, <laughs> we got to wrap it up. But I used, yeah. to, I used to wear a clown suit in the 80s. That's how bad a comedian. Did you, know, you don't know this. You come on late. You I never heard the this. stories about Feldo yeah. the Clown. But I used to wear a clown suit. <laughs> and for three years, picture me in a bozo outfit. I got paid to ruin adult birthday parties. I would show up and I was drinking at the time and were I would you, come. Were you, were you expected to take your clothes off then? No, I would show up as Bozo, like a Bozo the Clown. I was Feldo the Clown. I was drunk, smoking a cigar. Jeez. Reagan was president and rich people would hire me to come okay. to their home and I would and scream. And ghosts of Tom Jode. And sing the, yes. And said, <laughs> hey, this seltzer bottle kills fascism. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, okay. let's plug some books and some candidates. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR and Democracy. Not only a stocking well, stock. Well, well, but, but David, I got to interrupt rudely here and say this. I did adopt the strategy around buying people, uh, family members, gifts. I would buy them books that I liked, and at least knowing that they would never read them, at least the really great authors would have another book sold. So I just wanted to say that in advance right. of your announcing part. Well, in a previous- yeah, You don't have to read my books, buy them. Here's what I, yes. <laughs> in a previous life- no, I, I, They're I, good books, people may read them actually. I, there, I had friends and family members who aspired to literacy, but I knew they would never go. So I'd buy them the books that I wanted to read. Yeah. So I'd have something to do when I visited them. Yeah, that, that, that was a little bit of my thing too. Yeah. I would definitely, I would borrow the book for the night. Yes. Let's uh, plug some books here. FDR on Democracy, Take Hold of Our History and Thomas Paine, by the way, the Promise uh, of America, my, yes. my favorite, favorite, favorite. Yes. And uh, Professor Harvey J.K., thank you. Follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Uh, Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And uh, this is the calm before the storm. And and basically, if you want to buy one of Alan's books, he's not he's not written a recent one, but he actually you can go to the library and get his books on sports history. Did you know he was? Yeah, you, you wrote you wrote a book on sports history. You wrote books on sports history. You never told me that. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, we're whole. Home Run Kings by Alan Minsky. It's a coffee table book. Home Run Kings by Alan. When did you write someone, that? Someone gave, someone gave me this, actually. That's why it has a thank you on it. When did you write it? It was in the, it was right out of college. Wow. Yeah. But I wrote, I wrote, I wrote four books and they got, they got increasingly like political and sociological. 
at which point the fourth one was um, going to be a history of the, the black baseball leagues in the United States. And um, um, you should have called and, me because my grandfather broke the color barrier in the old Negro leagues. He was the first white pitcher in the old Negro leagues. You could be. I'm sure you're joking. No, but, no. It was, um, he used to show. That's a very strange face he has right now. Was very, he, yeah, he broke the. It was very, um, very difficult for he was separated from his. Alan, have you have you been to Kansas City to the museum? No, I'd love to go to that, and I know a lot of the history of the players. But what what I found out is, of course, the American uh, spectacle sports that I'd grown up watching. I could write those books in my sleep. I had to do incredible amounts of research to do uh, try to do a respectful book on the on the fourth book. At which point, my hourly wage <laughs> just collapsed. <laughs> where it was not sustainable. Because I, I wanted to do a good job, and I, of course, didn't know any of the history, and it took a ton of research. And very difficult to get the, the Why don't research. you do what Doris Kearns Goodwin did? <laughs> just copy. Yeah. At the time, there weren't that many histories that were published on the Negro Leagues. There, there were a few. But um, I did some, uh, some original source research on that, and it was incredible to do. It became a real point of obsession, but it, was, um, it took a lot of time. Wow, I you know I never finished the fourth one, so that's what happened. Got published in against my will because it wasn't finished. Interesting. So, um, mm-hmm. wow. Now I have to go on Amazon, uh, not Amazon, uh, wherever you buy books. That's good. Where everyone could buy a book. Yeah. Wherever one could buy a book without paying into the oppressive system, we have to. Uh, operate mm-hmm. under thank you this is the calm before the storm i have a feeling and i want everyone to know david is in new york alan is in california don't trust eastern and western elites yes you're absolutely right trust the good-hearted salt of the earth fly under people <laughs> the, the fly from was you're right I, hey i agree with you I, I you, you get no argument from I me. I know you agree with me. I, I hear it every week. I, I can't stand the coastal elites. It's why we're falling behind. Yep. This country. Right. It's why I support the electoral college because of the coast. Without an electoral college, you the coastal elites. It would yeah. just, be, just be the popular That's vote. The, I, ironic, huh? I support the electoral college. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. This was a lot of fun. Not sure we accomplished anything tonight, but it's the holiday season. And well, we, we improved. Alan came cranky. He's leaving happy. I like you cranky, Alan. Oh, but now I'm so happy, David. Oh, I, 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 like, I like a cranky Alan Minsky. Don't worry. Be happy. Yes. <laughs> yes, let's discuss that song. Bobby McFerrin in the 80s <laughs> telling us to be happy while Reagan yeah. is president. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bobby McFerrin, you kids have no idea what we had to survive, us baby boomers. The mind control. Don't worry, be happy. This is why I'm against meditation. You're not supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be angry and get moving and support the candidates who will protect the 99%. We need to stop identifying 
with the richest one percent and think they're going to help us. They they're not going to help you. They're going to help themselves to you. That's our show. I didn't think we would be able to do this show tonight, Leslie, but we did it. I want to thank. It was a fun show. Pete Dominic, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom, John Ross, the Hershenfelds, uh, Professor Ben Burgess, Emil Guillermo. I'm going to do this. I can do this. Uh, Emil Guillermo, Professor Ben Burgess, uh, Emil, uh, uh, Doc, uh, uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I want to thank Professor Ann Lee. Professor uh, Jonathan Bick, and uh, I want to. Uh, I know Professor Adnan Hussein was here, but he didn't. Uh, he didn't was lurking. Uh, no pressure. Professor Marianne Cummings, and then uh, Professor Harvey J.K. and Professor Alan Minsky. A few final thoughts about. Office hours, it's office hours and hours, 24 hours of office hours. We start at 8 p.m. Friday night. I host the first hour, and then it's turned over to this amazing community who are just, some of them are here tonight in the Zoom room, and we, we invite you to join us. As long as you're left of center and you're not an asshole, we're in the process of uh, ostracized. We have a problem with somebody, once again, who has to be uh, thrown out. But that's part of the fun. Some people show up drunk and have to be uh, told you cannot show up here. Uh, your behavior is abusive. and uh, But uh, that's part of the fun of office hours. Uh, and I want to thank all the people who uh, helped make office hours happen. I'm going to forget some names, but Andy Brown, Sarah Brown, Joe in Norway, Lance Jeffries, uh, Professor Jonathan Bick, uh, Grace Jackson, Hannah, and of course, Dan. There are moderators who keep office hours going. I'm going to get a list of their names. But uh, I urge you all, if you're listening right now, to go to my website and sign up for office hours. All you need is Zoom and you will uh, you will meet interesting people like whose hands are. Oh, Bernie Ho. What? I. Yes, Bernie you Ho. Right. You were right, Father. Yeah. Jennifer Jason Leigh was his daughter. Oh, she Jennifer Jason. She wasn't in Howard the Duck, though. That was Leah Thompson, who's like a similar type. Right. Vic Morrow's uh, daughter was Jennifer, is the one of the greatest actors. I have a question, though. Well, hang who on. Vic, hang on for one second. Vic Morrow's better half. Oh, see, this is. I gotcha. All right. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. The 99 percent. Jennifer. All right, I'm muting you. This is an example of the bad behavior that we don't allow at office hours, Bernie Ho. Uh, 
Yes, Jennifer Jason Lee is Vic Morrow's daughter, and there was a conversation about how amazed she. You're just jealous because I thought of that joke and you didn't. Okay, Bernie. How do I mute Bernie Ho? You don't mute me. <laughs> what? I'll I... see you in your nightmares, Geldo. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, hang on. Von Fuckface. <laughs> I can't mute her. <laughs> I can't. I don't know how to mute her. Where's Jonathan Vick? Where's that be handsome beast at? Come on. Get naked. Okay. It's this kind of fun that you can enjoy <laughs> at office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to He, he never talks about anything important. It's just he just runs his mouth. He the, needs to talk about the tubes. Yeah, they he lived in San Francisco. All right, there's a mute during the heyday. There's a mute button that I seem to have lost. Hmm. Anyway, uh, thank you, Bernie. You Hope. don't mute the Mercedes day. All right, hang on. I'm going to disable your. Oh. There, I did it. You're disabled now, Bernie Ho. I disabled your talking. How does that make you feel? I have power now. How does that make you feel? Huh? You can. Ah, yeah. Fuck you! <laughs> All right, I'll let you go. Oh no, I can. Okay, I, I, it's okay. I, I. No, I can. I can disable you. Look. I have. I found the power. Uh, anyway, subscribe to uh, my newsletter, go to my website, and if you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience here on Zoom, hit attend a live taping. Please subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on every platform that provides this kind of nonsense. We also have a YouTube channel which is growing somewhat, please subscribe to it. We have 6,000 subscribers. I'm amazed that uh, we have that many subscribers. So if you would like to watch us do this show, you can either join us in the Zoom room, Zoom room or subscribe to this as a YouTube channel. Most importantly, tell your friends about all the wonderful guests we have on this show and buy their books, attend their lectures, and thank you all. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. What a stupid monkey. Look how stupid that monkey is. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's 
just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an M4 right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.